This is Audible. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Penguin Random House Audio presents Rogue One, a Star Wars story by Alexander Freed. Read for you by Jonathan Davis. Prologue Galen Urso was not a good farmer. That was only one of his many flaws, but it was the reason he was still alive. A man of more diverse talents, a different Galen, a Galen who could intuit what colonial crops would thrive in an alien world soil, or who could check a withered tree for rot without peeling away its bark, would have grown bored. His mind left idle in the fields, would have returned to subjects he had forsworn. That Galen, consciously or by habit, would have sought out the very work that had driven him to exile. He would have stared into the hearts of stars and formulated theorems of cosmic significance. In time, he would have drawn attention. His obsessions would surely have killed him. Yet an unskilled farmer was anything but idle. So the true Galen, the one who inhabited the realm of reality instead of idle fantasy, had no trouble filling his days on Lamu without succumbing to temptation. He took bacterial samples off boulders left by prehistoric volcanoes and looked in awe at the evergreen moss and grass and weeds that seemed to sprout from every surface. He surveyed the endless crooked hills of his domain, and he was grateful that he had yet to master his new profession. He constructed these thoughts like an equation as he looked out the window, past his orderly rows of budding sky corn and toward the black soil of the beach. A tiny girl played near the rose, sending her toy soldier on adventures in the dirt. Is she digging again? I swear she didn't learn the word strip mining from me. But we're going hungry next year if she keeps this up. The words breached Galen's concentration slowly. When he heard them, understood them, he smiled and shook his head. The agricultural droids will repair the damage. Leave her be. Oh, I never planned to do anything. That girl is all yours. Galen turned. Lyra's lips curled until she smiled. She'd started smiling again the day they'd left Coruscant. He began to reply when the sky rumbled with a boom unlike thunder. One portion of Galen's mind narrowed its focus and was aware of only his wife before him, his daughter on the beach. The other portion processed the situation with mechanical precision. He was walking without conscious intent, Striding past Lyra and the cluttered kitchen table and the worn couch that reeked of clove aftershave, he passed through a doorway and reached a device that might have evolved in the junkyard of a machine civilization. All cracked screens and loose wires, apt to shatter at a touch. He adjusted a dial 
and studied the video image on the screen. A shuttlecraft was landing on his farm. Specifically, a Delta-class T-3C, all sharp angles and bare metal. It busily broadcast active scans of the landscape as its broad wings folded in for landing and its sublight engines tapered their thrust. Galen studied the associated readouts and let the specifications settle into his memory. Not because they might be useful, but because he wanted to procrastinate for just a moment to shut away the implications of what he was seeing. He squeezed his eyes shut and gave himself three seconds. Two. One. Then it was time to accept that his family's life on Lamu was over. Lyra, he said. He assumed she was near but didn't turn to look. Is it him? she asked. She sounded unafraid, which frightened Galen more than anything. I don't know. But we have to. I'll get started, she said. Galen nodded without looking from the console. Galen was not prone to panic. He knew what needed doing, had rehearsed it on those rare days when the farm tended to itself, or on those less rare nights when sleep eluded him. Such preparations were the only obsessions he permitted himself. He turned to another machine, tapped in a code, and tore a series of cords from the wall with swift jerks. He began another countdown in his head. If the data purge did not complete in five minutes, he would begin physically destroying components. He heard footsteps at the front door, quick and light. He turned to see Jin dash inside. Brown hair matted and face touched with dirt. She'd left her toy in the fields. Galen felt an unexpected pang and feared, absurdly he knew, that the loss of Stormy would distress her once she was far from the farm. Mama? Lyra stepped away from the bundle of clothes and data pads and portable meals she'd piled on one chair and knelt before the girl whose pale slender features mirrored hers. We know. It's all right. Galen approached the pair, waited until his daughter had seen him. He spoke softly but somberly. Gather your things, Jin. It's time. She understood, of course. She always did, when it mattered. But Galen had no time to be proud. He turned back to his machines as Jin sprinted to a room... The data purge had not completed. There were other files he had to handle as well. Files he should have erased on Coruscant, but which he'd brought to Lamu instead. Why had he done that? Was it nostalgia? Misplaced pride? He opened a drawer stuffed with spare droid parts and removed the arm of an agricultural unit. He flipped open a small panel, dug his fingertips between wires, and extracted a data chip. The scrambler, please. He said. Lyra passed him a metal orb the size of his palm. He inserted the data chip and, before he could doubt himself, pressed the toggle. The orb heated and produced a smell like burning hair. He tossed it in the junk drawer and felt a tightness in his stomach. If there's anything else, make it quick. 
Lyra's tone was clipped. A light blinked faster on the sensor console. Set the rendezvous and take Jin, he said. I'll finish here. Lyra abruptly stopped double-checking her bundle of provisions. That wasn't the plan, Galen. I'll meet you there. You have to come with us. Her eyes were hard. Please smile, he thought. I have to buy you time, he said. The sensor light went dark. A fault seemed unlikely. Lyra just watched him. Only I can, he said. It was an argument impossible to refute. Lyra didn't try. She stalked into the kitchen and tapped at the comm unit as Galen made for Jin's room. He caught just a snippet of Lyra's words. So, it's happened. He's come for us. Jin stood with her bulging satchel at her feet. Galen surveyed the tiny chamber's remaining contents. A few toys. The cot. Easy enough to hide. Enough to buy a few more minutes. He pushed the doll out of sight before returning to the doorway. Jin, come here. He considered what he might say. Considered what impression he wanted to leave Jin if everything ended in disaster. Remember, he spoke with deliberate care, hoping to etch the words in her bones. Whatever I do, I do it to protect you. Say you understand. I understand, Jin said. And this time, of course, she didn't understand. What eight-year-old could? Galen heard his own foolishness, his ego echoed by her voice. He wrapped her in his arms, felt her slender, warm body against him, and knew a better memory to leave her with. I love you, Stardust. I love you too, Papa. That would be enough. He looked to his wife, who stood waiting. Galen, she began, all the harshness gone. Go, he said. She did, coaxing Jin with her. Galen allowed himself the luxury of watching, heard his daughter off for a last confused, Papa? Then they were gone from the house, and he resumed his work. He collected objects out of place, more toys, Lyra's clothes, unwashed dishes from the kitchen, and stashed them in niches he and Lyra had prepared long ago. He checked the unfinished data purge, returned his mind's eye to his mental countdown. A few seconds past the five-minute deadline. That meant he could keep busy while he awaited his visitors. By the time Galen heard muffled voices approaching the farmhouse, two of his homemade data processing units billowed acrid smoke as their circuits melted. He stepped out the front door to greet the new arrivals under the cloudy sky. A company in bleached white and gleaming black advanced toward the doorstep. The leader was a narrow man of Galen's own age in a spotless ivory officer's uniform, head high and movement stiff. The breeze failed to disturb the sandy hair beneath his cap. His cohorts wore armor like a scarab shell, 
bore pistols and rifles as if ready for war. The troopers stepped when their leader stepped, matched his pace. To Galen, they seemed to exist only as extensions of their superior. The man in white halted less than three meters away. You're a hard man to find, Galen, he said, not quite smiling. That was the idea. Galen did not quite smile either, though he could have. He could have let the farm and sky fade, let the troopers become shadows and conjured an office on Coruscant around him, allowed himself to believe he was sparring again with his friend and colleague, Orson Krennic. There was no point in nostalgia, however. Orson surely knew that as well as he. Orson was tugging at his gloves as he studied the fields with an exaggerated crane of his neck. But farming... A man of your talents. It's a peaceful life, Galen returned. Lonely, I'd imagine. With those words, Orson had declared his game and his stakes. It did not surprise Galen. Since Lyra died, yes, Galen said. The corner of Orson's mouth twitched as if he were taken aback. My sincerest condolences, he said then gestured to the troopers and spoke more sternly. Search the house. Shut down any machines. We'll want them examined by the technicians. Four of the troopers obediently, rapidly, made for the doorway. Galen stepped aside to allow them past. I don't imagine, Orson said. You've laid any traps. Nothing that would harm a patriot doing his duty. No. No, Orson agreed. I've always found your constancy refreshing. Galen Urso is an honest man, unaltered by stress or circumstance. Troopers called to one another in the house behind Galen, and he stifled the impulse to turn. Honest, perhaps. Still just a man. Orson spread his hands, conceding the point. He moved as if to join the troopers in the house, then stopped. When did she die? He asked. Two, three years, I think. It's a bit of a blur. She was a wonderful woman. Strong. I know you loved her very much. What is it you want? The words were a mistake. Galen barely hid his winds as he heard himself, recognized the edge to his voice. The longer he played, the longer Lyra and Jin had to escape. Instead, he'd grown impatient. Orson was replying carelessly, feigning the blunt honesty of a man too worn to lie. The work has stalled Galen. I need you to come back. I have the utmost confidence in you. In your people. You don't, Orson snapped. You were never that humble. And you have too little faith in your own skills, Galen said easily. I told you that when we were practically children. 
You could have done everything I did. But you prefer to dabble. Two shepherd people, instead of nurture theory. I always respected your decision. But don't let it narrow your world. All of it was true. All of it was also designed to hurt Orson, to pry at his insecurities. Galen kept his tone measured, casual. Infuriatingly so, perhaps, but Orson's fury did not frighten him. He feared focus, efficiency, speed, not wild rage. Orson only grimaced, a forced smile that didn't take. You will come back. So much for that sidetrack. Galen straightened his back. They were coming to the end. I won't do it. This is where I belong now. Scratching the dirt with a shovel. We were on the verge of greatness, Galen. We were this close to providing peace, security for the galaxy. Behind Galen came the sound of ceramic shattering as the troopers continued their search. He mentally catalogued dishes and ornamental vases, then dismissed the list. Nothing in the house mattered. You're confusing peace with terror. You lied about what we were building. Only because you were willing to believe. You wanted to kill people. Orson shrugged, unmoved by the argument. We have to start somewhere. Galen almost laughed. He remembered when he could laugh with Orson, instead of feeling nothing but hollow defiance. Snapping sounds from the house, furniture being broken apart, hiding places revealed. Orson would have his proof momentarily. I'd be of no help, Grenick. Needle him. Deny all familiarity. My mind just isn't what it was. And now he could only talk, not try to persuade or to enrage or do anything more than buy a few more seconds, a few precious moments for Lyra and Jin. I thought at first it was only the work. I would sit some nights and remember equations and theorems, but I couldn't hold them in my head anymore. I chalked it up to exhaustion, to foregoing the habits of a focused intellect. He shook his head. But it's more than that. Now I have trouble remembering the simplest things. Orson wove gloved fingers together, eyes glittering with cruel amusement. Your child, for example... Galen, you're an inspired scientist. But you're a terrible liar. Orson didn't need his troopers to report an extra bed or a toy left out in the fields. There would be no more delays for Galen. No hope of hiding his family's presence on Lamu. He prayed that Lyra would fare better. She had never failed him before. Galen put aside even that thought to picture his daughter in her arms. 
Lyra ran, her fingers wrapped around the fragile wrist of her daughter. She pulled without tenderness. She heard Jin whimper in pain, felt the girl stumble beside her, and longed to hoist her in both arms, carry her across the rocks and clutch her to her breast. She longed to, but she couldn't carry her daughter and crouch low enough to take advantage of the concealing hills. She couldn't add another twenty-five kilograms onto the supplies she carted on her back and still maintain her speed. Lyra loved her daughter, but love wouldn't save them today. Lyra had always been the practical one in the family. Damn you, Galen, she thought, for sending us away. She caught a flash of motion out of the corner of her eye, turned to confirm that it wasn't the wind, and tugged Jin down as she dived onto moist soil. Her stomach already hurt from the run. The cool dirt felt good on her body, but her forehead prickled with sweat and fear. She peeked around the rocks to watch a half-dozen figures, black-clad imperial troopers led by a uniformed officer in white, stride rapidly toward the farmhouse. No, not just an officer in white. Orson Krennic was leading a death squad to the farmhouse. Toward Galen. Mama, Jin was whispering, tugging at her hand. I know that man. That caught Lyra by surprise. But Jin had her father's mind, if not his obsessions. Her memory was better than Lyra's had ever been. That's your father's special friend, Orson, she wanted to say. He's a lying bastard who thinks he's a visionary. Instead, she whispered, shh, and pressed two fingers to Jin's lips before kissing her on the forehead. We need to keep going. Don't let them see you, okay? Jin nodded, but she looked terrified. They moved together, as swiftly as Lyra could manage while squatting out of sight. Her hips were cramping as she led Jin around the base of a comm spire and stopped again to peer toward the farmhouse. She couldn't make out Krennic past the troopers, couldn't see if Galen had emerged, but the group had halted near the front door. Lyra suddenly pictured the armored figures raising flamers, reducing the house to ash and charred metal while her husband screamed inside. She knew better. So long as Krennic was in control, Galen would stay alive long after the rest of them were dead. He would have no choice but to work for that man until he was old and feeble, until his intellect began to fail him, and the Empire determined he was no longer useful. Lyra realized she'd made a decision. She unslung her bag, rooted through the contents until she found what she needed. She set a bundle of clothes in the grass and placed her hands on Jin's shoulders. The girl was trembling. She met her mother's gaze. You know where to go, don't you? Lyra asked. Wait for me there. Don't come out for anyone but me. Jin didn't answer. Lyra saw the moisture in her eyes. 
A voice told Lyra, If you leave her now, she's done. You've taken all her strength away. But Lyra had committed herself to a path. Her husband needed her more than her daughter. She hurriedly reached to her own throat, pushing away coarse cloth until her fingers caught a fraying string. She pulled off her necklace, watched the pendant swing in the breeze. The jagged, cloudy crystal was etched with writing on one side. Gently she put the necklace over Jin's head. The girl didn't move. Trust the force, Lyra said, and made herself smile. Mama, I'll be there, Lyra whispered. Now go. She wrapped Jin in her arms. Don't hold her too long, don't give her time to think, and turned the girl around, pushed her away. Lyra watched her daughter stumble amid the rocks, disappearing out of sight. It was time to refocus. Jin would be safe. Safer if Lyra did this. Safer still if she succeeded. But safe either way. She looked back to the farmhouse and the group gathered around the doorstep, lifted the bundle of clothes and walked back the way she came. She kept her body low, picked up her pace as she saw four troopers enter the house and reveal Galen and Krennic standing together. She heard their voices faintly, Krennic unctuously declaring, We have to start somewhere. She hadn't expected to see an opening so quickly. She'd wanted more time to plan, but there was no guarantee she'd catch Krennic with fewer bodyguards any time soon. She straightened and hurried, kept the bundle clutched close. Krennic saw her first, though he spoke only to Galen. Oh, look! Here's Lyra, back from the dead. It's a miracle. Galen turned in her direction. She'd rarely seen such pain on his face. Lyra. But he was looking past her, searching the fields for Jin. Lyra almost wanted to smile. The black-clad troopers raised their weapons. Stop! Krennic snapped. Lyra let the clothes fall from her arms and raised the blaster she'd concealed beneath the pile. She aimed the barrel at Krennic, felt the chill metal of the trigger under her finger. She didn't look at the troopers. If they killed her, all she needed to do was twitch. The troopers kept their weapons low. Krennic smirked at Lyra. Troublesome as ever. You're not taking him, Lyra said. No, of course I'm not. I'm taking you all. You, your child. You'll all live in comfort. As hostages. She'd lived that life before, or close enough. She had no desire to do it again. Krennic seemed unperturbed. As heroes of the Empire. Lyra heard Galen's voice to one side. Lyra, put it down. The concern in his tone felt like a weight on her arm. 
a hand on her wrist. She kept the blaster up anyway, ignoring her husband. Krennic wasn't smiling anymore. Lyra let the words, the threats, roll out. She'd imagined this before, made speeches in her mind to the man who'd ruined her life again and again, and the actuality felt, in turn, dreamlike. You're going to let us go, she said. You're going to do it because you're an egomaniacal coward. And I'm sure if your superiors let you live, you'll come after us again. And that's fine. But right now, we go free. Do you understand? Krennic merely nodded and said, Think very carefully. She sensed the troopers tensing. She knew somehow that Galen was staring at her in horror. And she suddenly realized that she'd misjudged Orson Krennic's cowardice. That he'd changed in the years since she'd known him, or she'd never understood him even in the old days. Jin would still be safe. Maybe she could still save her husband. You'll never win, she said. Krennic cocked his head, a patronizing gesture to an outmatched opponent. Do it, he said. Lyra pulled the trigger, felt the blaster jump even as light flashed nearby and hot pulses ravaged her chest. She heard the trooper's shots only after she felt the pain. Dull, almost numb pinpricks up and down her body, each surrounded by a halo of excruciation. Her muscles seemed to vibrate like plucked strings. Galen was shouting her name, rushing toward her as she fell, but she couldn't see him. All she saw was Krennic, clutching a black and smoking shoulder as he snarled through pain. If Lyra could have screamed, she would have screamed not in agony, but in rage. She could not scream, however, and she went into darkness, bitterly. Her last thought was, I wish Galen weren't here to see. The last things she heard were Galen shouting her name and a furious voice calling, They have a child! Find it! But she was too far gone to understand the words. Jin wasn't a bad girl. Jin didn't like to misbehave. When her parents told her to do something, she almost always did it. Not fast, but eventually. Almost always eventually. She didn't deserve to be punished. She knew she shouldn't have stayed to watch her mother talk to Papa and the man in white. But she couldn't have known what would happen. She couldn't have known what the troopers would do. Had they been talking about her? Was it her fault? Mama wasn't moving. Papa held her in his arms. Jin couldn't stop herself from crying, but she held back a scream because she had to be brave. She had to be. She'd seen how scared Mama had been. 
whoever the strangers were, Jin knew they would hurt her too. And she knew what she was supposed to do. She needed to behave now. She needed to make things better. She had trouble breathing as she ran. Her nose and eyes streamed, and her throat felt swollen and clogged. She heard voices in the distance, electronic voices like droids or garbled comms. The troopers were coming after her. She was wheezing with a high-pitched sound that would give her away. Her face felt like it burned hot enough to see for kilometers. She knew where she was going, though. Papa tried to pretend it was a game all those times he asked her to race and find the hiding spot, but she'd known better. She'd asked Mama about it once. She'd held Jin's hand and smiled and said, Just pretend it's a game anyway. It'll make your father feel better. She wanted to pretend now, but it was hard. She found the spot Papa had showed her among the piled rocks. She dragged open the hatch cover embedded in the hillside, almost shaking too hard to tug it free. Inside, a ladder led to the lower compartment, but Jin stayed by the cover and pulled it shut. A sliver of light escaped through the hatch, illuminating the dusty gloom. She pulled her knees to her chest and sang one of her mother's songs, rocking back and forth, ignoring her tear-streaked face and filthy hands. This was part of pretending, too. All she had to do was wait. That was all she'd ever been told to do in the hiding spot. Mama or Papa would come for her. She smelled smoke, and the smoke stung her eyes worse than her tears. She could see the shapes of troopers moving among the rocks, but even though they went back and forth and back and forth, they never noticed the hatch, never saw her shelter. When the daylight began to fade, they left, and Jin climbed down the ladder. The lower compartment was too small for comfort, made cramped by stockpiles of food and machines and containers, but she could sit. She found a lantern and watched its feeble light wax and wane through the night as she listened to the rumble of a storm outside and the splashing of rainwater down the hill above her. She tried to sleep, but she never slept for long. Raindrops crept into the cave and tapped at her forehead and sleeves, no matter how she arranged herself. Even her dreams were about that insistent tapping those wet, random strikes. In her dreams, sometimes Mama fell down when the raindrops hit Jin. When morning came, she woke to the sound of metal scraping above her. For an instant, she confused dreams with reality and thought Mama or Papa had arrived at last. She believed what she'd seen the day before was a nightmare and that this was another of Papa's games. But only for an instant. She looked up. The hatch opened, and silhouetted above her was an armored figure with a dark face, graven with scars. The man looked down at Jin with eyes that gleamed in the lantern's light, and spoke in a voice of command. Come, my child. We have a long ride ahead of us. 
Orson Krennic observed Galen aboard the shuttlecraft and wondered when the man would finally pry himself from the gurney where his wife's corpse sprawled. We'll bring her home, Krennic said. I promise. Galen said nothing and stroked his wife's hand. What more did I expect? Krennic wondered. Lyra would have survived if not for her own foolishness. Krennic had risked his life for Galen and his family, given Lyra every opportunity to stand down rather than immediately signaling his troops to fire. That would have been the safest bet. His death trooper elites were unkind men who, given their druthers, would have ended the standoff far less mercifully. She'd shot him! He tried to spare Lyra for Galen's own comfort, out of an understanding that genius worked best without distractions. And yes, out of a desire to honor the cordiality, if not friendship, he and Galen had once shared. Yet self-imposed exile had changed Galen. He was no longer a man of dispassionate contemplation, able to interpret facts without prejudice. Whatever Krennic said, every action he took was to be interpreted by Galen as the ruthless ploy of a scheming power monger. This irked Krennic. Of course it irked him to have the rapport of years so neatly dismissed, but he could use it. If Galen refused to readjust, perhaps a man who changed so swiftly once could swiftly change again. Then Krennic could play the monster to ensure his cooperation. The bandage around his shoulder rendered his arm immobile. He'd need weeks, if not months, to fully recover, with who knew how many hours spent immersed in medicinal bactatanks. The pain would be considerable once the analgesics wore off, yet he could forgive that. Not so the loss of time. Any debt he owed Galen was now repaid. We will find the child, he said, more insistent. Galen did not look away from Lyra's body, another gift from Krennic. Who else would have brought her home for a proper funeral? I think, if you haven't found her already, Galen murmured, you are very unlikely to succeed. Krennic bristled, but there was truth to the words. Jin had clearly received outside aid. The signal sent from the farmhouse suggested as much, and Krennic was not prepared to underestimate her rescuer's competence. He hoped investigation of the comm stations, no matter how badly Galen had damaged them, would reveal the particulars. The results would determine how he turned the situation to his advantage. If Galen was unsure of his daughter's fate, if he'd sent out a general distress call or offered a reward for retrieval to every smuggler or bounty hunter in receiving range, then Krennic's dogged pursuit of the girl would incentivize Galen to cooperate. Galen would never admit to it, of course, but he would be soothed by the certainty of knowing his daughter was in imperial hands. 
Conversely, if Galen knew exactly who had rescued Jin, then perhaps it was best to leave well enough alone and use the threat of imperial interference as impetus for cooperation. All of which, Krennic realized with a start, was a worry for another day. He'd been so consumed by his mission that he had failed to appreciate his own victory. After a long search, Galen was back in his hands. The scientific setbacks, the engineering problems plaguing Krennic's teams would soon vanish. The constant needling from men like Willif Tarkin, bureaucrats without any true sense for the scope of Krennic's accomplishments, would soon be over. These were truths worth celebrating. Krennic smiled at Galen and shook his head fondly. Your wife will be honored. We'll have the service as soon as we reach Coruscant. But meanwhile, shall we discuss the work? Galen finally turned and looked at Krennic with loathing. Then, almost imperceptibly, he nodded. Supplemental data. Rebel Alliance Intelligence Update. Document number NI3814. Situational analysis regarding Jedi et al. Timestamped approximately 13 years after the conscription of Galen Erso by Orson Krennic. From the personal files of Mon Mothma. There is no hard evidence of an interplanetary engineering project consuming imperial resources, living, financial, and material on a massive scale. That remains the bottom line, as it has since our investigation began. Yet as before, we consider the statement insufficient and our situation grave. Major tactical deployments of Imperial forces to strategically insignificant worlds continue on Jeddah, Patrim, Idu, Holruz, and twelve others of note. Frequent communications blackouts make analysis of these deployments exceedingly difficult, and we strongly suspect our list is neither accurate nor complete. Nonetheless, we know that a majority of the worlds in question contain facilities for resource harvesting, manufacturing, or scientific research and development. More recently, we have learned that several of these worlds share a set of non-standard security protocols far exceeding the imperial norm. We have intercepted multiple communiques sent to Orson Krennic, the Empire's Advanced Weapons Research Director, from these worlds. We are not yet able to decrypt them. We have intercepted multiple communiques sent to one Galen Urso from these worlds. We are not yet able to decrypt them or confirm that the Galen Urso referenced is the former head of multiple high-energy research projects, including Celestial Power, see notes, once housed on Coruscant. 
We have intercepted multiple communiques referencing a future weapons test of indeterminate scale. Our attempts to surveil Imperial activities related to this matter have resulted in the loss of several operatives. We request additional personnel. Attempts to obtain the cooperation of Saw Gerrera on Jeddah have been ended at the recommendation of General Jan Dodama. We understand that our concerns are considered controversial inside Alliance Council leadership. We do not dispute that intelligence resources should be focused on the Senate if there is to be any hope of a peaceful political resolution to the larger struggle. Several analysts have declined to attach their names to this document for fear of giving it undue credibility. But this is not a conspiracy theory, and ignorance will not protect us from whatever the Galactic Empire is building. Full report is attached. Chapter 1 the Ring of Caffrine was a monumental span of durasteel and plastoid anchored by a pair of malformed planetoids within the Caffrine asteroid belt. It had been founded as a mining colony by Old Republic nobility, built for the purpose of stripping every rock within 10 million kilometers of whatever mineral resources the galaxy might covet. Its founder's disappointment upon realizing that such valuable minerals were scarce at best in the Caffrine Belt, had earned it the unofficial slogan that arced over its aft docking bay in lurid phosphorescent graffiti, where good dreams go bad. Now the Ring of Caffrine was a deep space trading post and stopover for the sector's most desperate travelers. Cassian Andor counted himself among that number. He was already behind schedule, and he knew that if he hadn't drawn attention during disembarkation, he was certainly doing so now. He moved too quickly down the throughway, shouldering aside men and women and non-humans of indeterminate gender who had the proper plotting gait of people sentenced to live in a place like Caffrine. Between the road and the distant rock warrens stood a thousand sheet metal shacks and shoddy prefabricated housing units recycled from foreign colonies. Outside the main throughways, there was no plan, no layout that didn't change almost daily. And even the workers proceeding home in the artificial twilight stuck to the major arteries. Cassian tried to moderate his pace, to ride the crowd's momentum rather than apply force. He failed and imagined his mentor's disappointment. The Rebel Alliance taught you better than that. But he had been traveling too long, from Coruscant to Coralag and onward, tugging at the loose threads of an elaborate tapestry that was outside the scope of his vision. He had paid dearly in time and credits and blood for precious little intelligence, for the reiteration of facts he'd already confirmed. He'd spent too much to return to Base One empty-handed. His frustration was starting to show. 
He cut across the street and smelled ammonia wafting from a ventilation shaft. Exhaust from an alien housing complex. He suppressed a cough and stepped into the gap between one tenement and another, working his way through a maze of corridors until he reached a dead-end alleyway barely wider than his arm span. I was about to leave, a voice said, full of nervous irritation. The speaker emerged from the shadows, a human with a soft round face and hard eyes, dressed in stained and fading garb. His right arm hung limply in a sling. Cassian's gaze locked on the man even as he sorted through the distant sounds of the street. Voices, clattering merchandise, something sizzling, someone screaming. But no commotion, no squawking comlinks. That was good enough. If there were stormtroopers hunting him, they weren't ready to shoot. I came as fast as I could. Cassian said. He stashed his paranoia in the back of his brain, out of the way but within easy reach. Tivik started toward Cassian and the alley mouth, wiping one palm on his hip. I have to get back on board. Walk with me. Where's your ship heading? Cassian asked. Back to Jeddah. Tivik didn't stop moving. In another moment, he'd have to squeeze past Cassian to continue. They won't wait for me, he said. We're here stealing ammo. Cassian shifted his weight and broadened his stance, blocking Tivik's path. He wasn't a large man, but he knew how to feign presence. Tivik flinched and took an abrupt step backward. As informants went... Tivik was one of the more maddening Cassian had worked with. He was, for all his faults, a true believer. He was also an abject coward, forever looking to escape the moral responsibilities he assigned himself. He responded well to pressure. And after the past few days, after rushing to extricate himself from Korolag based on Tivik's oblique message... Cassian was in the mood to press. You have news from Jeddah? He growled. Come on! I came across the galaxy for this! Tivik met Cassian's gaze, then relented. An Imperial pilot? One of the cargo drivers on the Jeddah run? He defected yesterday. So? Low-level defectors from the Empire weren't uncommon. They made up half the rebellion's foot soldiers, give or take. Tivik knew that as well as Cassian. This pilot? He says he knows what the Jeddah mining operation is all about. He's telling people they're making a weapon. Tivik spat the words out like bitter rind. The kyber crystals, that's what they're for. He's brought a message, says he's got proof. Cassian sorted through the barrage of information, cross-referenced against what he already knew, and reprioritized his concerns. This was why he'd come, but it wasn't what he'd expected. There had been leads about a weapon before, and everyone on Adalog and Zamaya's den had turned to dross. His pulse was quickening, 
Maybe he wouldn't return to base one empty-handed after all. What kind of weapon? He asked. Voices rose in the street, distorted by echoes down the alleyways. Tivik somehow shrank into himself, the small man making himself smaller. Look, I have to go. You called me. You knew this was important. You shouldn't have come late! Tivik snapped. His eyes were glassy with distress. Cassian hoisted Tivik under both arms, dug his fingers into the sling and coarse cloth and soft flesh. The man's breath had the scent of cinnamon. What kind of weapon? Cassian repeated, louder than he'd intended. A planet killer. Tivik whispered. That's what he called it. Cold crept down Cassian's spine. He tried to bring to mind old reports. Speculative intelligence documents, tech readouts, anything to put the lie to Tivik's words. A planet killer was a myth, a fantasy, an obscenity dreamed up by zealots who viewed the Emperor as a wrathful deity instead of a corrupt tyrant. Along with the cold came a shameful mix of excitement and revulsion. Maybe for this, any price would be justified. He set Tivik down as gently as he could. A planet killer? Someone named Urso sent him, sent the pilot. Some old friend of Saw's. That much fit the puzzle. Galen Urso? Cassian asked, trying to tamp down his own intensity. Was it? I don't know! I shouldn't even have said this much. Tivik shook his head. The pilot, the guys who found him, they were looking for Saw when we left. Saw Guerrera, a defector pilot, Jetta, kyber crystals, a weapon, a planet killer, Galen Urso. Cassian sorted through them and found it was too much to deal with, a hand built of too many playing cards. Tivik was on the verge of bolting, and Cassian didn't have time to figure out the right questions. Who else knows this? He asked. I have no idea. Tivik leaned in, his cinnamon breath coming in quick little bursts. It's all falling apart. Saw's right. You guys keep talking and stalling and dealing, and we're on fumes out there. There are spies everywhere. Tivik didn't finish the sentiment. As he stared past Cassian's shoulder, Cassian heard movement behind him and turned to face the alley mouth. Positioned to block the entrance as Cassian had blocked Tivik were two figures in white armor with helmets like stylized skulls. Imperial stormtroopers, rifles hoisted casually and aimed in Cassian's direction. Cassian cursed silently and made himself smile. What's all this? The stormtrooper's voice buzzed with distortion. He was curt, authoritative, but not scared. Cassian could use that. Hey, Cassian said, and gave an exaggerated shrug. Just me and my friend. If we're bothering someone, we'll get out of the way. You're not leaving. 
The second stormtrooper spoke now, impatient. Come on. Let's see some scan docs. Cassian kept his eyes off Tivik. There was nothing he could do to coax the man into playing along, to urge him to make no move. He kept smiling his small, reassuring smile at the stormtroopers, even as his blood pumped fiercely with the promise of a weapon, a planet killer. Yeah, of course, he said. My gloves? He indicated a pocket with a gesture. The stormtroopers didn't object. Thieves were common on Camphrine, and they'd doubtless seen stranger hiding spots. Neither stormtrooper reacted in time, as Cassian reached down and touched the cool metal of his pistol's grip. He barely moved his wrist and squeezed the trigger twice, averting his gaze just enough to avoid the glare of the energy discharge. The electric noise was low and sickly, muffled by an illegal silencing device that was almost effective. A moment later, the stormtroopers lay dead in the alleyway. It was a miracle, Cassian thought, that the silenced blaster bolts had penetrated their armor. In a fairer world, he would be the one lying in filth with a burning hole instead of a heart. No! Tivik was shaking his head. What have you done? Cassian caught another glimpse of white, heard a garbled voice beyond the alley mouth. There would be more troopers coming, many more, and next time they wouldn't hesitate to fire. He seized Tivik by the elbow, hurried deeper into the alley, and scanned the walls. There were no exits, no air shafts or back doors, but the rooftops weren't more than a meter or two out of reach. Unaided climbing wasn't his specialty. Still, he could be up and over in seconds and he'd disappear in the labyrinthine depths of the Ring of Caffrine. Tivik recognized his intent. Are you crazy? I'll never climb out of here. He tugged himself away from Cassian's grip. Cassian released him after a moment and adjusted his sling. My arm! He rotated his body awkwardly to watch the alley mouth. Cassian heard footsteps and a distant, distorted yell. He looked Tivik up and down and realized that, in all likelihood, the man was right. He really couldn't make it up the wall, not without help, and not swiftly. In the best-case scenario, by the time both he and Cassian were up on the roofs, the stormtroopers would already have identified them and initiated a cordon. Hey, Cassian said and touched Tivik's shoulder, gently now, his voice stripped of all force. Calm down. Calm down. You did good. Everything you told me, it's real? It's real, Tivik said. His voice was the voice of a confused child. One more payment. We'll be all right, Cassian said. And for the third time that day, he squeezed the trigger on his blaster. <coughs> He heard the sickly electric squawk, smelled burning fibers, and worse, as Tivik fell to the ground. The informant let out one last little groan, like he'd been troubled in his sleep, and lay still. They would have caught you, Tivik. You would have broken. You would have died. 
and neither of us would deliver your message. Cassian's hands were shaking as he pulled himself up and over the wall, grabbing at handholds along pipes and stained sills, kicking at the surface for support. He heard the stormtroopers behind him counting bodies and hurried on, chest flat against the rooftop. Less than an hour later, he was on a shuttle departing the Ring of Caffrine. His face and beard were dripping where he'd wiped them with a cold sponge in the sanitation station. Not just to hide the sweat on his brow, but to shock himself back into focus. He had a lot to occupy his mind, and farther to go, before he could transmit it to Draven and Alliance Intelligence. He closed his eyes and sorted the cards in his hand. Jeddah, the Pilgrim Moon, a wasteland world intimately linked to a vast imperial project only visible through its ripple effects. The Kyber Crystals, Jeddah's only natural resource of any value. The Empire had been shipping crystals off-world, their ultimate destination unknown. A defecting pilot carrying a message to Saw Gerrera. Possibly trustworthy, possibly not. Saw Guerrera. Nominally part of the rebellion. In practice, not so easily categorized. Galen Urso. The legendary scientist connected again to the Imperial Mega Project whose existence the Alliance could only speculate about. The man whose message the pilot supposedly carried. And the weapon. The planet killer. The galaxy's nightmare. Designed and built and polished to shine by Urso and his cronies. It was more than Cassian had hoped to bring back from this mission. A treasure hoard of facts and speculation and possible connections. Enough to keep the analysts busy for weeks or months or years. If he was lucky, it would even be enough to keep him from replaying over and over in his head on the long shuttle ride to safety. The last dying groan of the man he'd murdered. Bodhi Rook had only ever doubted himself, and today was no exception. His captors hadn't hurt him. Threatened him, yes. Refused him food and water and left him with a headache that seemed to squeeze his skull tight around his swollen brain, yes. But they treated him more like an object than a man. They rarely spoke as they dragged him across the frigid Jeddah Desert grasping him by the arms and marching at a pace that he, insulated by the imperial flight suit he wore under a loose caftan, couldn't quite match. His soles touched sand twice for every three steps his captors took, and so every three steps he flew, and their grip became painfully tight. He could survive this, he told himself. He'd chosen right, found the right people. And when he delivered his message, they would all understand. They would accept him as a good man, a brave man. 
He could only hope that was all true. How much farther? he asked. His captors stayed close around him, so close he couldn't see much of the wasteland. Just pale and freezing sun, low mountains that formed the borders of the valley, and the occasional crumbling monolith of one of Jetta's great statues. A stern humanoid head with lips worn smooth over millennia, or a pair of broken legs embedded in the cracked and rusty valley floor. When the wind rose, loose wisps of long, dark hair drifted before his eyes. I know you're being careful, he said, struggling to sound reasonable. I know that's smart. You think I could be a spy, and spies have to be a worry for people like you. Don't make them think about spies. He told himself that, even as another part of his brain assured him, hide nothing. Only honesty will save you. He fought to regain his train of thought. But, but, he spat air through dry lips. You also have to give me a chance. Not for my sake, but for yours. I want to help you. His captors, five revolutionaries in ragged local attire, each armed with an illegal blaster rifle, yanked him hard, and he scrabbled over the dust. No one met his gaze. Instead, scarred, unwashed faces watched Bodhi's bound hands or the endless desert. An interminable time passed before he spoke again. Do you have a family? He asked a towering man with a blade half concealed in his boot. For his troubles, he got the briefest of glances. I have a family, Bodhi said, though it was only somewhat true. The revolutionaries began to spread apart, wordlessly changing formation to put Bodhi at the center of a broad semicircle. With his newly expanded field of vision, Bodhi now saw a second group standing ahead of them in the wastes, small dark figures on a bright horizon. Is that him? Bodhi asked and received no reply. The semicircle closed the distance to the second band. The newcomers resembled Bodhi's captors, but carried their ordnance more conspicuously. A white-furred Jagorin hoisted a rotary cannon, while the humans wore bandoliers and detonator belts. At the fore of the newcomers was a Tognath, a lanky figure dressed in dark leathers, whose pale skull-like head was set in the vice-grip of a mechanical respirator. The Tognath turned his sockets onto Bodhi and said, in a thickly accented dialect, It's the pilot. Look alive. The Tognath gestured once, and the two bands merged with a swift and soldiery precision. Bodhi flinched under the Jigorin's glower and felt a flush of shame. Non-humans hadn't made him nervous before he'd signed on with the Empire. He made himself focus. Okay, so you're... you're... Sogorera? He asked, more in hope than genuine belief. Someone snickered. The Tognath examined Bodhi with an expression that might have been disdain. No? Bodhi shook his head. Okay, we're just wasting time that we don't have. I need to speak to Saw Gerrera. 
I keep telling them. He lifted a shoulder at one of his original captors. Before, before it's too late. He thought he heard another snicker. It might have been the wind playing on sand, but it was enough to raise his ire. They need you. You need to make them understand. We need to get to Jetta City. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. His voice rose to a shout thick with frustration. What part of urgent message do you guys not understand? He saw the shadow above him, then felt coarse cloth drag over his hair, catch on the goggles perched on his forehead, and slide tight against his nose, mustache, and beard. He saw the glow of the sun through the stitching of the sack over his head. Hey! he said, trying not to bite the fabric. Hey! We're all on the same side if you just see past the uniform for a minute! You always talk, his mother had said, but you say so little. Learn to listen, Bodhi Rook. Talking was all he could do now. I've got to speak to Saw Gerrera, he cried. He was pleading as one set of hands released his arms and new hands, the terribly strong hands of the Jagorin, took their place. You know what? Just tell him. Tell him what I told you, and then he'll want to speak to me. I gave up everything to come here. I'm here to help. Someone pulled the sack tight around his neck. It scraped at his throat when he breathed. Bodhi Rook thought about the reason he'd come back to Jetta, and found himself hating Galen Urso. Jin had been at the Empire's mercy before. Sometimes she'd even deserved her troubles. She couldn't blame some petty dictator for ordering her dragged off the street and slammed into holding when she really, truly was planning to blow up his ship and steal his guns. She'd had rifles pointed at her, felt stun prods delivered jolts to her spine, and generally suffered the worst a stormtrooper was authorized to deal out. What made her circumstances different now was that, for the first time, Jin had no escape route. No partners outside the prison walls waiting to bust down the doors. No inn with a greedy security officer she could promise, lying or not, to pay off. Not even a knife she could hide where the guards wouldn't find it. She'd run out of friends. She'd come to Obani labor camp alone. She expected to die there that way, and, very likely, it wouldn't take long at all. She opened her eyes, flinched away her thoughts as a drop of filthy water smacked into her forehead and took a circuitous route down the side of her nose. She smeared it away with her palm and glanced about her cell as if it might have changed since lights out. But there was no gap in the wall. No blaster tucked discreetly beside her slab. The blanket-draped lump of her cellmate moaned and wheezed, loud enough to wake Jin, even if she did manage to sleep. She waited for the stormtrooper on patrol to pass her door, counted to five, then slid to her feet and crept to the bars. 
Outside was an endless march of more cell doors, more prisoners sleeping, or in a few cases, feeding their own private demons. Clawing their arms or sketching invisible mandalas on the floor. Wobani didn't care about treatment or rehabilitation any more than it did about punishment. Order and obedience were the priority. Everything else was left to rot. Bad dreams. The moaning and wheezing had stopped. The voice sounded like claws on slate. Not really, Jin said. Then you should not be up. Her cellmate huffed, the tentacles protruding from her pinched worm-like face, writhed in irritation. The woman called herself Nail. The other prisoners at Wobani called her Kennel, for the parasite she hosted in the filthy cloth jacket that half covered her leathery chest. Only the guards called her by her real name, which, along with her species and actual gender, Jin hadn't bothered to learn. They both fell silent as the patrol came around again. Jin returned to the slab that served as her bed, considered rising a second time solely to irritate Kennel, then decided against it. If she was going to pick a fight, better to be awake enough to enjoy it. Do you want a warning? Kennel asked. Before I do it? Not really. Jin repeated. Kennel grunted and rolled from one side to the other. I will give you one anyway. Next work crew we are on together. I will kill you then. Jin laughed breathily and without humor. Who's going to keep you company? I like a quiet cell, Kennel said. What if I kill you first? Jin asked. Then I hope you like a quiet cell, Liana Halleck. Liana Halleck. Not Jin's favorite name, but probably her last. She twisted her lips into a smile that her cellmate wouldn't see. Were you always like this? She asked after the stormtrooper had passed by. Before Wobani, back to when you were a kid... Yes, Kennel replied. Me too, Jin said. Neither of them spoke again. Jin lay on her slab and didn't sleep, and toyed with the necklace tucked under her shirt. The crystal she'd managed to keep, smuggled into the prison when she should have been worried about weapons or a comlink. She didn't think much about her would-be murderer, Knowing that if Kennel didn't kill her, something else would. No one survived Wobani for long. Jin was supposed to serve twenty years. But anything more than five was a death sentence. All she could do was try to pick the most interesting end possible. The next morning, the stormtroopers gathered up the war crews, selecting prisoners at random... Supposedly at random, though everyone knew the guards had favorites for their day on the farms. Jin preferred work to sitting in her cell. She handled strained and quivering muscles better than agonizing boredom. 
and she'd almost given up hope when a guard waved a rifle at her cell door. A short while later, she and Kennel were chained by the arms to a bench in the back of a rusting turbo tank, bouncing and rocking with three other convicts as a trio of stormtroopers looked on from the front. None of the prisoners looked at one another. Jen took that as a good sign. If Kennel was planning to kill her, at least she didn't have allies. The transport stopped so suddenly that Jin whipped forward, the metal of her shackles raking the flesh of her wrists. There was shouting outside. Curiosity wormed its way into Jin's brain. They'd been in transit too little time to be at the farms. The other prisoners shifted restively, glancing at the stormtroopers and the forward door. Nobody moves! A trooper snapped. His two partners had their weapons up. All three turned to face front. Jin heard the dull thunk of something metallic and a faint, high-pitched whine. One of the other prisoners was looking up now, grinning with excitement like he'd figured it all out. Then, the front of the transport exploded. The roar of the detonating grenade... It had to be a grenade. Jin knew the noise too well, made her ears throb, and turned the screams and shouts and blaster shots that followed into a tinny, incomprehensible buzz. Smoke carrying the odor of ash and burning circuits flooded the rear compartment, stinging Jin's eyes and nostrils. She tried to follow what was happening, watch the movements of the stormtroopers, but it hurt to look and she had to blink away, grit. She kept her gaze on the floor. In her peripheral vision, she saw the stormtroopers die one by one, felled by a barrage of particle bolts that burned through their armor and sparked against the transport walls. Halleck! A muffled voice called, barely audible above the ringing in her ears. Jin lifted her chin with a jolt and turned toward the front of the turbo tank. Three armed figures in battle-stained attire picked their way among the bodies. They wore no insignia, but she knew them by their movements, by their uniformity of manner and their scowls. They were professionals. Soldiers. They weren't with the Empire. That made them rebels. They'd found her. She couldn't stop the thought. It leapt into her head, demanded that she fight, that she run. But it made no sense. Why would they even be looking for her? Maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe they were after a different prisoner and she'd misheard. Liana Halleck! The leader, a man so thoroughly covered in gear that his exposed face seemed out of place among the cloth and leather, called again. Jin slowly lowered her gaze to the chains around her wrists. Her hands were shaking. She gripped her seat to make them stop. Her! Another rebel said, and gestured in Jin's direction. Her deafness was abating. She waited, half expecting a blaster bolt to the head. She wondered how it would feel. People died fast from blaster bolts. She'd seen it enough. She didn't think it would hurt much. You want to get out of here? The rebel leader asked. His tone was neutral, guarded, 
as if he was as cautious of Jin as Jin was of him. Jin tried to imagine what had brought the rebels to her. Had Saw decided to bring her back? Had one of his people decided she knew too much? She nodded at the man, lacking any better option. One of the rebel grunts fumbled with her shackles, finally unlocking them with a key from a stormtrooper's corpse. Jin snapped upright, dizzy from the smoke and the blood rushing to her head, but determined not to show it. Her rescuer started to say something when from the other side of the transport, a prisoner called, Hey! What about me? The rebel standing over her turned away. Jin recognized it as an opening. She was halfway across the transport floor in a second, her foot driving firmly into the leader's soft gut to slam him against the wall. Momentum kept Jin upright as she spun toward a second body closing in. She swung a fist, landed a solid blow to the newcomer's face, felt his teeth through his cheek. She stumbled forward, still lightheaded, and grabbed the first weapon she could find among the farming tools stored nearby. A shovel, solid and long enough to give her reach. She'd seen the damage a shovel could do in a prisoner's hands. She let the shovel's weight carry her through her first swing, gave a solid fleshy smack to the leader as the man bounced back from where she kicked him into the wall. She swung again to strike the rebel who'd unshackled her as he came up from behind. Jin saw a clear path to the front of the transport and dashed for the twisted and broken doors. The world was a blur, but she was out, feet striking the gravel trail. She could find a way off Wobani, forge new Scandocks, retire Liana Halleck and start over yet again. Pick whatever name she wanted. One the Empire wouldn't care about and the Rebel Alliance would never find. You are being rescued, a voice said. It was electronically distorted, but too high-pitched to be a stormtrooper. A cold metal hand snagged her collar, hoisting Jin until she was wriggling half a meter in the air. Before her towered the spindly chassis of a sunlit security droid, black as night, save for the imperial insignia on its shoulder plates and the dead white bulbs of its eyes. Congratulations. The droid flicked its arm and tossed her to the ground. Pain flashed up Jin's spine, crashed through her skull. Tilting her head back, she saw an angry, bloody-mouthed rebel pointing a rifle at her chest. Damn Sol Guerrera, anyway. Damn the whole rebel alliance. Chapter 2 Somewhere inside Jin's brain, there was a cave sealed shut by a heavy metal hatch. The cave wasn't for her protection. Instead, it was where she locked away the things she was done with, but couldn't altogether forget. The rebellion. Saw Guerrera. People and places buried in the dark for so long that she barely recognized their names as more than cruel, hurtful impulses. 
She loathed the cave and everything inside it. Everyone who knew about it. It wasn't real, of course. Though she'd described it to someone once, someone she trusted, and admitted what the image meant to her. She'd immediately regretted it, and sworn to keep it hidden forever after. Now the grenade that had ruined the prisoner transport had exposed the hatch, blasted away the concealing soil, put it in open view of Jin and the world. On the long, harrowing flight from Wobani, the Ewing's navigation computer malfunctioned, forcing her rescuers to hail a fleet of rebellion fighters for help. Although the X-Wings were meant to defend them, Jin felt herself trapped between the armed rebels surrounding her and the hatch inside her mind. Once again, she had no escape. A moist film swaddled Jin as she disembarked onto the jungle moon of a red gas giant. Warm breezes carried the aroma of rotting vegetation from the forest floor, masking the subtler stench of mildew. The shadow and shelter of a great stone ziggurat provided only a semblance of relief, just enough to remind a person how pervasive the heat and humidity and stink really were. It wasn't the most uncomfortable rebel outpost Jean had ever visited. But it was the first she'd seen while under armed guard, or without knowing where she was. Maybe the star system was too obscure to even have a name. Keep walking. The man who'd led the raid on Wobani marched Jin down the outdoor tarmac and onto the slick stone floor of the ziggurat's makeshift hangar. The man's name was Scott Melshi. He hadn't bothered to introduce himself, but she'd overheard him talking to the pilot. You're still mad, aren't you? She said. About what? Being hit with a shovel. Melshi grunted. They're waiting, he said, and she didn't ask who, because she knew it was what he expected. If it was Saw who was waiting, she knew how to deal with him. They walked together, past pilots in jumpsuits chattering at technicians, past starfighters and freighters and transports sitting in orderly rows. It was more than a mere rebel outpost should have had. Wherever Jin was, it was important. Even without knowing what system they'd arrived in, she suspected she'd seen too much to be allowed to ever regain her freedom. She fantasized about tripping Melshi on the wet stone, smashing his face into the rock, grabbing his weapon, dragging him bodily back to the hangar entrance, and using him as a human shield. The rebels wouldn't let her off-world, but she could escape to the jungle where she would... What? Poison herself, trying to live off the local flora? She let Melshi guide her deeper into the ziggurat. A troubling thought came to her. Saw would never let a prisoner see all this. The rebels hadn't built the ziggurat. That much was obvious. But they'd made it their own, 
strung cables across ancient etchings, and set flashing consoles like offerings on the slabs of altars. Melshi seemed unmoved. Jin recalled her mother's love of history with the faintest of pangs and banished the memory. When they arrived at a chamber deep below the surface, a bunker maybe, fortified to withstand an attack while the ziggurat crumbled above it, Melshi gestured her inside. Try what you tried on Wobani, he began. She finished for him. And I'd better succeed. The bunker was dimly lit and subdivided by a conference table. Melshi steered Jin to a chair, and she surveyed the faces arrayed against her. Two men, wearing the insignia of rebel generals. One elderly, pale and soft-eyed. The second, a decade or more the first man's junior, wearing a perpetual scowl under hair like rust. A third man, dark-haired, mustached, closer to Jin's age, stood to one side as if unconcerned with the role he'd been assigned in the rebels' drama. He looked at Jin with an expression of dispassionate curiosity. Saw Guerrera was not present. You're currently calling yourself. The rust-haired general stepped forward, glancing deliberately between Jin and the data pad in his hand. Liana Halleck. Is that correct? He stood above her as if he could intimidate her. Jin waited. Let him try. Possession of unsanctioned weapons. Forgery of imperial documents. Aggravated assault. Escape from custody. Resisting arrest. He lowered the data pad and cocked his head smugly. Imagine if the imperial authorities had found out who you really were. Jin Urso. That's your given name, is it not? She flinched. She felt as much as saw the general smile at his petty victory. Nothing about his words surprised her. The rebels wouldn't kidnap Liana. But hearing Jin Urso aloud for the first time in years felt like a violation. The general had taken a cutting torch to the hatch in her brain, crudely attempting to burn through the barrier. He kept talking. Jin Urso, daughter of Galen Urso, a known imperial collaborator in weapons development. She could have struck him once, maybe twice, to stop him from saying Urso, Urso. The mention of Galen sent a black charred crack through the hatch, and she felt her pulse quicken in response. Before Jin could act, however, she saw movement from the bunker's far entrance. A woman in white robes emerged from the shadows, at once tired and steely. Her face was lined and her copper hair impeccably styled, not like a soldier's or a general's at all. The men, nearly in unison, took half a step away as she claimed the head of the table. What is this? Jin hissed at the newcomer. It's a chance for you to make a fresh start, the woman said. We think you might be able to help us. 
The words were gentle, but her voice was unforgiving. Who are you? You know who she is. The rust-haired general again. A fleck of spittle touched Jin's forehead, but she kept her attention where it was. The woman gestured at the general, and he fell silent. My name is Mon Mothma, the woman said. I sit on the Council of Alliance High Command, and I approved your extraction from Wobani. Mothma, the Alliance Chief of State. That made the Ziggurat Rebel Headquarters. The place where decisions were made, where orders were given while people far away died. Why was she here? Where was Saw? There's a bounty on your head, Jin said, because it was better than not speaking. Because she'd spotted a vulnerability she could jab like an unprotected eye. Mon Mothma didn't laugh, but Jin caught her smiling before she gestured to the third man. This is Captain Cassian Andor, Mothma said. Rebel Alliance Intelligence. Cassian moved toward Jin, but feigned a respectful distance. One that would also give him space to maneuver if she lunged. The rust-haired general retreated to the edge of the room with a shake of his head. When was the last time you were in contact with your father? Cassian asked. Jin didn't flinch this time. A second crack spread through the hatch. Sparks poured from the cutting torch. Fifteen years ago, she said. It was a guess, but close enough. Any idea where he's been all that time? While the general had tried to intimidate, Cassian's tone was casual and his eyes were keen. As if these were questions he'd ask over dinner to show he was interested in you as a person. I like to think he's dead, Jin said. Makes things easier. Makes things easier, Cassian echoed. Easier than what? Than him being a tool of the Imperial War Machine? Despite the baiting, he kept the same casual tone. I've never had the luxury of political opinions. Jin spotted another trace of a smile from Mothma. But Cassian became sterner. Really? When was your last contact with Saw Guerrera? Shouldn't you know? If Saw wasn't here, if Saw hadn't helped the rebels find her, then what was any of this about? It's been a long time she said. Cassian's warmth was all spent. His keenness was the keenness of an interrogator. He'd remember you, though, wouldn't he? He might agree to meet you, if you came as a friend. Jin opened her mouth to argue, to swear, but she said nothing. She needed time to figure out an approach, time to decide who she was ready to betray to save herself. We're up against the clock here, girl. The rust-haired general snarled. So if there's nothing to talk about, we'll just put you back where we found you. Fine. The simple answer. The honest one. 
the one you already know. I was a child, she said. Saw Guerrera saved my life. He raised me. But I've no idea where he is. I haven't seen him in years. The elderly general nodded as if this confirmed something he had suspected. He exchanged a glance with Mothma, yet Cassian was the one who spoke next. We know how to find him, Cassian said. That's not our problem. What we need is someone who gets us through the door without being killed. Jin fought down a smirk. You're all rebels, aren't you? Yes, but saw Guerrera's an extremist. He's been fighting his own war for quite some time. Mothma said, We have no choice but to try to mend that broken trust. So that was it? Even when Jin had first met Saw, he'd been on the fringes of the rebellion. If he'd parted ways with the Alliance altogether, it meant his course had held steady. And now the rebels had kidnapped her from the labor camp to use her as a peace offering. Only that didn't explain everything. She dug her nails into her palms and asked the question she didn't want answered. What does this have to do with my father? Mon Mothma gave Cassian a prompting look. There's an imperial defector in the holy city of Jeddah, a pilot. He's being held by Sogarera. Cassian paused, sought Jin's eyes as if to emphasize the gravity of what he said next. He's claiming the Emperor is creating a weapon with the power to destroy entire planets. This time, Jin couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> That's a terrible lie, she said. She expected Mon Mothma to offer another wan smile. Instead, the woman looked at Jin for a long while before saying, I believe it's the truth. I may be wrong, and I pray that I am. But I believe a weapon that murders worlds is the natural culmination of everything the Emperor has done. You're all crazy, Jin wanted to say, yet she held back. You're right, though. Mothma continued. If this were just about Sorgerera, we would have other approaches. Cassian resumed, apparently untroubled by the interruption and Jin's mockery. The pilot, he said, the one Guerrera has in custody. What about him? Jin asked. He says he was sent by your father. The hatch inside Jin's mind shattered like baked clay. The things inside the cave damp and soiled by darkness, seeped unwelcome into her brain. Foreign thoughts spread like stains, obscuring everything else. My father is alive. My father is a traitor. My father is building a weapon to destroy worlds. My father is a hero. My father is a coward. My father is a bastard. Galen Urso is not my father. Galen Urso didn't raise me. Her palms were bleeding where she dug in her fingernails. 
She wiped her hands on her hips, looked around the suddenly vertiginous room, barely heard Mothma say, We need to stop this weapon before it is finished. Or the condescending tone of the rust-haired general. Captain Andor's mission is to authenticate the pilot's story, and then, if possible, find your father. It was too much. Too much to think about now. Maybe too much to think about ever. But the others were watching her. Jin focused on the sensation of her breath, her clammy skin against the metal chair, the awful, stinking, humid air. She forced her mind's eye away from the broken hatch above the cave, forced revulsion and loathing and doubt down like bile. Mon Mothma was speaking again. It would appear Galen Urso is critical to the development of the superweapon. Given the gravity of the situation and your history with Saw, we're hoping that Saw will help us locate your father and return him to the Senate for testimony. And if I do it? Jin asked. She spat the words out bitterly, though she didn't hear them. We'll make sure you go free, Mon Mothma said. It was the best answer Jin could hope for. She wasn't calm by the time she walked out of the hangar and onto the tarmac, but she was calmer. Her body felt bruised and sore like the morning after a fight, but she breathed without struggle. If she didn't think about it, the mission, the meaning behind the mission, she'd be okay. And when it was over, she could go back to her old life, make a new life, find somewhere away from the Rebel Alliance, away from Saw Gerrera and Galen Urso, and just don't think about it. Captain Andor, a voice called. Cassian halted mid-stride beside Jin, glanced toward the hangar, and spotted the source of the yell. The rust-haired general from the bunker, who'd been all snide remarks and grunts instead of mute senility like his partner. General Draven, Cassian murmured. Give me a moment. No rush, Jin said. Cassian dashed ahead to the boarding ramp of a battered U-wing transport, unslung the duffel he carried over his shoulder, then hurried back in Draven's direction. Jin followed his path to the ship, giving the vessel a cursory once-over. While the base as a whole was larger, busier, and better equipped than anything she'd seen from the Rebel Alliance before, the U-wing was in line with her expectations. Like the one that had retrieved her from Mobani, It looked like a set of engines with a cargo base strapped to it, maintained and repaired over the years by a droid with pistons for hands. She'd been aboard worse. Jin Urso, alias Leanna Halleck, prisoner 6295 Alpha. She flinched again at the sound of her name. She would have to get used to it. She looked up the boarding ramp to the main cabin. Towering above the communications console stood the security droid emblazoned with imperial symbols that had captured her on Mobani. I'm K2SO, he went on, 
with a cheerfulness Jin could only interpret as threatening. I'm a reprogrammed Imperial droid. I remember you, she said. She'd heard stories about reprogrammed droids going wrong, about safeguards reasserting themselves, about old code suddenly resurfacing for reasons no one could explain. She wasn't overly concerned. If K2SO reverted to type, the ranking members of the Rebel Alliance would be his top priority. Jin, an escaped convict drafted into the mission, wouldn't be strangled until second or third at least. I assume your presence indicates that you will be joining us on our trip to Jeddah. The droid went on. A statement, not a question. Apparently so. That is a bad idea. I think so, and so does Cassian. What do I know? My specialty is just strategic analysis. Jin was barely listening. She'd turned away from the droid, looking across the hangar to where Draven and Cassian huddled together. They stood too near each other, leaning in to avoid being overheard by passing pilots and technicians. To her surprise, Jin realized she trusted Draven. He was an ass, but that made him predictable. Cassian, the intelligence operative, the spy, the casual liar, could be trouble. Can you tell what they're saying? She asked K2SO with a glance over her shoulder. Yes, the droid said, and retreated to the cockpit. Fair enough, she thought. Left alone in the cabin, she took the opportunity to examine Cassian's duffel and its contents. Nothing but gear. Weapons and portable med packs and signal boosters. No hollow image of a dutiful wife or a tattered childhood security blanket. He packed impersonal and he packed light. Jin pulled out a blaster pistol, tested its heft and grip, and strapped it on her hip. A Blastek A-180 wasn't her weapon of choice, but it was sturdy and low-profile. By the time Cassian had turned back to the U-Wing, Jin was moving to peer into the cockpit herself. The droid, adjusting one setting or another on the flight console, ignored her. She heard the exterior door shut and seal. You met K-2? Cassian asked. Charming, Jin said. Cassian lifted his shoulders in a boyish, what-can-you-do shrug. He tends to say whatever comes into his circuits. It's a byproduct of the reprogram. The droid's vocabulary increased in volume, loud enough to hear in the cabin. Why does she get a blaster? And I don't. Jin kept her hand off her weapon, but shifted her weight into a defensive stance as Cassian shot her a look. I know how to use it. She said, That's what I'm afraid of. Cassian answered. Jin watched the humor, the warmth, evaporate in a flash. The expression of a calculating spy emerged. She felt a certain sour satisfaction. Give it to me, he said. We're going to Jeddah. That's a war zone. You want me to risk my life to help find Saw? She shrugged. 
trust goes both ways. Cassian stared a moment longer. The look of calculation, too, vanished, and Jin could no longer read him at all. He returned her shrug and hauled himself into the cockpit. Off to a grand start, Jin thought, and went to find a bunk, or at worst, a half-comfortable surface. She hadn't slept since Wobani. On the night her cellmate had promised to kill her. You're letting her keep it? The blaster? Cassian Andor pulled himself into the pilot seat of the U-Wing. Worn, thinly padded, stained by the sweat of a dozen species, and swept a hand over the controls, refamiliarizing himself as best he could. It had been a while since he'd flown a transport. K-2 waited for a reply that didn't come, then asked, Are you interested in the probability of her using it against you? Humidity had fogged the cockpit viewport, rendering the jungle a green smear. Cassian sketched out a course in his head. Flight control recommended skirting the canopy briefly before attempting full ascent from the moon of Yavin 4. A half-hearted attempt at disguising Base One's exact location from any Imperial probes. It's high, the droid said. Cassian shook his head. Let's get going. It's very high. You don't know the half of it, Cassian nearly said. He thought back to his conversation with General Draven in the hangar. The assurances of trust, of confidence in Cassian's judgment, were swiftly being pulled into the amorphous eddies of his memory. But Draven's orders were etched in steel. Galen Ursa was vital to the Empire's weapons program. There will be no extraction. You find him, you kill him. Then and there. Draven wasn't wrong to want Galen Erso dead. It would be a righteous killing as well as a practical one. The execution of a man surely responsible for the deaths of countless civilians. Erso's years inside the Imperial War Machine could have no innocent outcome. If killing Erso saved a single life, then that was cause to celebrate. But if not... His assassination was no less justified. Nor did the contradiction between Mon Mothma's orders and those of General Draven trouble Cassian. The notion of bringing Galen Urso to a Senate hearing, of exposing the Empire's planet killer, of creating such an uproar inside the civilian government that the Senate would move openly against the Galactic Emperor was absurd on the face of it. Mothma desired a leveraged detente, a political solution made possible through rebel military action. That was, to Draven and Cassian, self-evidently impossible. The Imperial military was loyal to its commanders, and its commanders believed that they, rather than the Senate, already affected complete control over the Empire. They were right. No peaceful transfer of power could occur. Yet Mothma was an idealist. Cassian suspected she wanted a Senate hearing not because she thought it would work, 
but because she felt obligated to try. Cassian admired Mothma. Galen Urso's assassination would free her from the obligation of a doomed peace effort. And yet, Cassian was troubled nonetheless. He was escorting a girl not much older than a teenager to see the father she had believed she'd lost. A girl who, genetics notwithstanding, had clearly inherited Saw Guerrera's burning rage and icy competence. The need in her eyes frightened Cassian. Had the other seen it? Had he imagined it? He wasn't sure what troubled him more. What he was doing to Jin Erso, or what she would do to him if she ever learned the truth. Chapter 3 Bodhi believed his suffering would end soon, that Sagarera would hear him out and set him free that the weeping sores on his feet would be treated and his wrists would be unbound and the coarse cloth hood torn from his face so that he could see and hear and breathe again. If he didn't believe these things, he knew he would go mad. He had marched with the rebels for most of the day, only sure of the passage of time by virtue of the sunlight that passed through the fabric of his hood. From the desert they'd entered a shelter of some kind, a building or a cave where the feeble warmth of the sun vanished. Now he knelt on a rough stone floor and waited. He heard bodies shuffle nearby, distant footsteps, voices in adjacent rooms. He didn't try to speak. His mouth was parched. These were not the rebels Galen Urso had described. Gallant men and women whose righteous hearts led them to oppose the horrors Bodhi had seen, the deeds in which he'd been complicit. Instead, these were the rebels the Empire had always warned of. The murderers, the criminals and terrorists who concealed their viciousness in a patriotic wrapping. The ones who saw the deaths involved in spaceport bombings as a small cost for smaller victories. Saw Guerrero would be different, though. He had to be different. Lies! The hoarse, ghostly bellow echoed in the chamber. Along with the voice came a rhythmic, metallic clanking, like the firing of a piston. Deceptions! There was nothing but fury in the voice. Let's see it! A demand hissed from terrible depths. Bodhi listened to more shuffling and scraping, craned his neck and strained to see something other than silhouettes and stitching. Bodhi Rook, cargo pilot. Hands suddenly grasped Bodhi and yanked him to his feet. He would have fallen if the hands hadn't clamped his shoulders. Local boy, the ghost scoffed. Anything else? There was this. A second voice in another language. Bodhi recognized the speaker as the Tognath with the respirator. A hollow chip, unencrypted. 
It was found in his boot when he was captured. Bodhi jerked forward in the hands that held him, not to escape, but to demand attention. I can hear you! You made your point! I'm scared. You made me scared. But he didn't capture me. I came here myself. He couldn't tell if they understood him through the cloth. I defected! He called around a mouthful of fabric. I defected! Lies, the ghost repeated. Every day, more lies. Lies! Bodhi was almost screaming now, violently sucking in breath through the sack to give his fury strength. Would I risk everything for a lie? We don't have time for this! I have to speak to Sagirera before it's two! Someone grabbed the sack and tugged, yanking the hood free and scraping the work goggles back on Bodhi's scalp. Bodhi could see again. He almost wished he was still blind. He was in a room, not a cave, but a chamber hewn from ancient stone and sparsely appointed as a living space. Three of his captors stood nearby while a fourth man, a stranger, stood before him. This man, the ghost, Bodhi assumed, the hoarse and chilling voice, had wild, graying hair and a face knotted with scars. He leaned on a thick metal-shod cane to support the weight his artificial leg could not. Saw Guerrera? Bodhi asked. This time no one snickered. Saw pinched a hollow chip between two fingers. Bodhi nodded toward it. That's for you, he said. He heard himself babbling, protesting, couldn't stop the flood of words. And I gave it to them. They did not find it. I gave it to them. Galen Erso, he told me to find you. Saw Guerrera laid his cane aside and grasped an oxygen mask attached to his armored chestplate. Without looking from Bodhi, he brought the mask to his face, inhaled, and returned the mask to its place. Please believe me, Bodhi thought. Or maybe he said it aloud, he wasn't entirely sure. I did this for you. I did this to do something right. Saw turned his head to signal the Tognath. Poor Gullet, Saw said. Poor Gullet, Bodhi asked. Then the cloth scraped over his forehead and nose and lips again, and arms dragged him backward, spun him away from Saw, away from the man he'd been sent to find, away from salvation and vindication and redemption. Galen also sent me! He cried through the sack. He told me to find you! He said it and things like it over and over. And it did him no good at all. Orson Krennic, Advanced Weapons Research Director of the First Galactic Empire, had never received the respect he was due. This was not an accident of fate, nor a symptom of some personal weakness. While Krennic could acknowledge that he lacked the scientific prowess of a man like Galen Erso, 
Even the most arrogant researchers under his command largely accepted that genius, when bound to Krennic's vision, accomplished more than genius could alone. It was Krennic who, across two decades, had directed a thousand brilliant minds like a maestro with his symphony. Krennic, who had focused the energies of a million scientists and engineers and strategists and laborers into a singular creation. And this, all the while playing the games of the Emperor's ruling council, all while assuaging the petty jealousies of admirals and joint chiefs. Orson Krennic had built the Death Star the greatest technological achievement in galactic history, a feat of engineering that rivaled the transformation of the city world of Coruscant or the invention of the hyperdrive. His achievement as much as anyone's. If that extraordinary and all-consuming venture had left him vulnerable, it was no failing on his part. Instead, responsibility for his circumstances rested squarely on one man the very man who had summoned him to meet aboard the Star Destroyer, Executrix. Grand Moff Willif Tarkin was Krennic's true bane. While Krennic created, Tarkin fought to keep Krennic from rising above his station, from earning the attention of the Emperor himself. The old governor's back was to Krennic as Krennic strode onto the Executrix's bridge. Behind Krennic came an escort of his personal troops. An intimidation tactic lost on Tarkin as he stared out of viewport toward the massive Death Star battle station. Today the firing array of the station's primary weapon was scheduled to dock. Six thousand detachable thrusters were maneuvering the colossal dish above the spherical superstructure of the station, where droids, technicians, and mechanical arrays awaited. Once the dish descended, they would lock it permanently into place. The operation had taken months of planning and required the shutdown of many of the Death Star's power systems to eliminate any risk of an energy surge. Krennic should have been there, sealed in a full environment suit in the temporarily airless corridors of the battle station, to supervise and observe the final stages. Most unfortunate about the security breach on Jeddah, Director Krennic, Tarkin said, and turned his frail body around at last. He gave Krennic's death trooper escort not a glance, and reserved his most withering look for the hem of Krennic's white cloak. I'm afraid I'm not sure what you're referring to, Krennic lied with a quizzical expression. You think I'm a fool, Tarkin? He wanted to say. You believe I don't have my own people within your ranks telling me everything they tell you? But if Tarkin thought him a fool, best to play the part. The governor kept speaking. After so many setbacks and delays, and now this. We've heard word of rumor circulating through the city. Apparently you've lost a rather talkative cargo pilot. And what does a cargo pilot know that's of consequence to us? Krennic asked, as lightly as he could. You acknowledged yourself that secrecy was becoming an impediment to progress some time ago. Rumors were bound to spread. 
The rumors are not the concern. The concern is proof. If the Senate gets wind of our project... Tarkin spoke with distilled contempt. Countless systems will flock to the rebellion. Krennic countered instinctively. When the battle station is finished, Governor Tarkin, the Senate will be of little concern. Tarkin's lips looked as chiseled as a crevice in a cliff and just as good-humored. When has become now, Director Krennic? The Emperor will tolerate no further delay. You have made time an ally of the Rebellion. As if you speak with the Emperor's voice. I suggest, Tarkin said, we solve both problems simultaneously with an immediate test of the weapon. Failure will find you explaining why to a far less patient audience. Krennic was taken aback. It was not the way the conversation should have gone. An immediate test. Look for the trap. Tarkin demands nothing that doesn't serve him. But the old governor was waiting for an answer. If Krennic appeared less than confident in the Death Star's capabilities, then that too would be turned against him. I will not fail, he said. A test of the weapon to wipe Jeddah clean. In a better world, he would have been able to say such a thing with triumph and anticipation. To see the battle station fully functional would be a glorious thing. And Tarkin had found a way to poison it. Tarkin turned away in dismissal and disinterest. Later, back aboard the Death Star, Krennic stalked through the voluminous corridors that honeycombed the massive station, inspecting the results of the day's work. The black floors were polished to a mirror sheen, and the reflection of Krennic's white uniform shone like a guiding beacon. Though he made a show of interrogating engineers and droids, of personally scanning conduits from microfractures, he knew there was nothing meaningful he might discover that wouldn't appear in the daily activity reports. He walked because it helped him focus, because vigorous exercise gave him an outlet for his frustrations. His meeting aboard the Executrix raised too many questions, and he analyzed and clarified circumstances and stakes with every harried step. Lay it out as you would for a new development team. Solve the problem. Did Tarkin believe the Death Star was not ready to be tested? That the primary weapon would fail? Revealing the Death Star as impotent above Jedi carried substantial risk. It would be humiliating as much for Tarkin as for Krennic. Yet Krennic had heard rumors that the Emperor's right hand, Darth Vader himself, kept Tarkin as a close ally. Was it conceivable Tarkin sought to use Vader as a shield? A bold man, Tarkin. Bold and arrogant enough to orchestrate a public failure and deflect responsibility. Which raised another question. Why did Tarkin believe the test would fail at all? He had long belittled Krennic's own ability mocked Krennic's every recitation of the engineering challenges before them. So perhaps his disdain had blinded him to success. But to build a risky plan on an ungrounded assumption 
seemed unwise, even for Tarkin. Was it mere coincidence that Tarkin had summoned Krennic while the firing array was being placed? Would Tarkin go so far as to sabotage the installation? Krennic halted in his walk, spun about, and made for the outer decks where the firing array had been locked into place. His pulse quickened and his blood burned with ire. He commandeered a maintenance turbo lift and dismissed its occupants with a gesture. Only when he had arrived at the force field blocking a still airless corridor did he begin to calm. Behind the shimmering field stood two stormtroopers equipped with oxygen tanks as vigilant as ever. There were a hundred other entry points to the construction areas that a saboteur might take, of course. Even the stormtroopers might have been in Tarkin's employ. But the scene was tranquil enough to drain Krennic's rage. Sabotage. The possibility galled him, yet he could adjust. He would reach out to his contacts within Tarkin's inner circle, learn what, if anything, they knew. Meanwhile, he had a day, perhaps two, until the evacuation of Imperial assets from Jeddah was complete. In that time, he could order every diagnostic imaginable for every focusing lens and kyber crystal and conduit in the firing array. If there was sabotage, his people would find it. Nothing aboard the Death Star could be hidden from Krennic. He alone, or at most he and one other, could comprehend its magnificence as a work of mortal invention. With those thoughts to comfort him... Orson Krennic finished his walkthrough and returned to his sparely elegant quarters, his home more than any planet or moon. He sat at his desk and drank wine and distributed orders and read his reports. His confidence was renewed. The Death Star would soon be complete, every last toggle operational and every hull plate ground smooth. The test on Jeddah would be a triumph rather than a failure, and he would see the galaxy respond in awe and terror. No one, certainly not Willif Tarkin, would deny Krennic that pleasure. In her dream, Jin was five years old, or maybe four, or maybe six. It was long ago, and she lay in the most comfortable bed she would ever know in her life. She clutched Beanie, her favorite toy, her best friend, against her face, so close that Beanie's fur was damp with Jin's breath. She held Beanie tight, and she listened. Whatever atrocities they seek to commit, they have no movement, no organization. That's the upside of having anarchists as an enemy. Jin didn't understand the words. She didn't like that. Sometimes it was nice, lying in the dark. She wasn't afraid of the dark at all, listening to the grown-ups talk. But tonight wasn't nice. They were talking about fighting. Even the Separatists wanted more than just destruction. Mama's voice. And if they're so far gone, how is building a shining new empire going to win them over? We're talking about... We're talking about a very delicate time in our history. 
the first voice again. Jin rolled over, peering through the door at the gathering in the living room. Mama in her pretty cloak, Papa in his gray uniform, and Papa's friend in white. They were gathered around the dessert table, and the man in white was pouring a drink, offering to refill glasses as he spoke. If people believe in the Empire, military victory over separatist holdouts and malcontents is inevitable. If people lose faith... Mama was trying to interrupt him. The man waved her off. Well, you know about Malpass. Coruscant will be fine, of course, but we'll all feel guilty enjoying these meals while terrorism flourishes in the outer rim. Mama laughed. Not a real laugh, but the quiet sort of laugh she used when she was supposed to laugh but didn't really want to. Papa looked over at Jin's bedroom. At Jin and she saw that he knew she was watching. Mama was talking again as Papa stood and walked toward Jin. Jin drew her knees up, shrank back into her bed as if she could hide. She didn't want Papa to shut the door. Not because she was afraid of the dark, she wasn't afraid of the dark, but because she wanted to keep listening. She deserved to keep listening. Papa didn't close the door. Instead, he stepped inside and sat beside Jin on her bed. She felt the mattress sink under her. What's the matter, Jin? You look frightened, he said, and pushed back a strand of her hair. He smelled like his uniform, sour and scrubbed clean. I'll always protect you, he murmured. Then the dream changed. Papa's body looming over Jin was no more than a shadow. Jin was alone in a cave, slamming a hatch shut, trapping herself in the dark. Mama was a corpse in the dirt by the farmhouse, and Jin had nothing. Even her song wouldn't emerge from her lips. She couldn't speak, and her lungs were full of smoke and ash and soil. Why do people fight? she asked, as she was back in her bedroom again, the horrors of her future forgotten. Papa took a long time to answer. When he finally spoke, he spoke as if he were thinking about it for the first time. That's a good question, he said. My friend Orson says some people just fight because they're angry. But I think... He stopped talking and half-closed his eyes. The voices in the other room continued. I think, usually, people are unhappy and they don't agree how to make things better. Jin watched her father try to tell what he thought of that idea. Maybe they'd agree if they'd stopped fighting first. Papa looked at her kindly. Jin thought she'd surprised him in a good way. Stardust. Don't ever change. He leaned in to kiss her on the forehead. She wrapped her arms around him, felt his smooth and sour-smelling uniform press against her. I won't, she promised, then softer. I love you, Papa. You're a good man. Papa returned the hug, in her bedroom in the city and in her bedroom on Lamu. Both at once. With her chin on his shoulder, Jin looked past her father to her bedroom door. Mama stood in the living room watching them. She smiled very gently. Behind her stood the man in white. 
The arms around Jin's shoulders became thin and rough like string. Now Mama was right in front of her, putting her crystal necklace around Jin's neck. The hatch opened and saw Guerrera looked down. When Jin woke up, she was no longer a child, and she was no longer in a comfortable bed in an apartment on Coruscant. Her mother and father and Beanie were long gone. Beanie had been the first casualty of a private war, never making it as far as Lamu. The hatch she knew was irreparably broken. The U-wing trembled as Jin, in the dark of the ship's cabin, fumbled to find her mother's crystal necklace against her breast. Supplemental Data Battle Station DS-1 Document number YT-5368 Official Statement on Battle Station DS-1 General Directive Time stamped approximately two years prior to Operation Fracture Sent from the office of Grand Moff Willow Tarkin To Director Krennic I find these communiques distasteful, but since you evidently require written reminders of your duty, I will oblige. It is incumbent upon everyone involved in the construction of the battle station, of clearance level DS-30 and above, to share a unified vision for the technologies involved, and in turn, our doctrine of use. The time for painstaking compartmentalization of development cells is past. Lying to your engineering teams about our ultimate goal let you recruit energy researchers and materials experts more interested in revitalizing Coruscanti infrastructure than in building a weapon. For this I give you credit. But we are building a weapon. One with a specific purpose that must not be compromised. Quite simply, it's time to stop playing games. The project of this scope has never before been attempted. I do not care what motivates your engineers, but it is imperative that they comprehend our priorities. In a battle station with eight billion component parts... Even a handful of poor decisions could compromise our ultimate effectiveness. Shall I elaborate? I shouldn't have to, but to wit. The battle station is not a military force unto itself. It is part of a system, and individual elements must be manufactured to imperial standard. If there are incompatibilities with the Star Destroyer fleet, these must be remedied. The battle station is not a testbed for new technologies. Promising your people opportunities for innovation was a mistake. Update only when necessary. And if we must add a hundred reliable, proven reactors, instead of developing a single new one, so be it. The battle station is certainly not symbolic meant only to demonstrate the Empire's might in ceremonial planetary executions. The main weapon must be built to fire repeatedly within a short span, as it might during the course of a single fleet battle. Both the mechanisms and the control scheme must support this practice. 
We are building a weapon not to prevent a war, but to end one. Time and again we have seen the galaxy dissolve into instability and chaos. And the rise of the rebel terrorist movement is only the latest iteration of a cycle. The rebels have no chance of overthrowing us, but they threaten our order nonetheless. The Death Star will not put an end to treason. Yet never again will a conflict consume our galaxy as did the Clone Wars. When an enemy rises, we will strike with decapitating vehemence. If one strike does not suffice, we will repeat the process and burn planets until either our enemy is annihilated or the galaxy is so terrified that further resistance is unthinkable. The new peace will last until the cycle begins again, at which point the battle station will be redeployed. The interruption of stability will be brief and illuminating. Are we of like minds now, Director? The Death Star is the ultimate weapon of war. It serves no other purpose. It is not a monument to your workers' scientific prowess or the cornerstone of a new navy designed to your personal ideal. Crude but functional is an acceptable watchword. See to your staff immediately. Document number YT5368A. Reply to official statement on Battle Station DS-1 General Directive. Sent from the office of Orson Krennic, Advanced Weapons Research Director. Respectfully, Governor, I request clarity. My understanding is that the Battle Station project was initiated at a level above either of us. I know you have the ear of the Emperor. Can you confirm that the vision you've elaborated comes directly from him? I would hate to see anything spawned from his mind, described as crude but functional. Indeed, I endeavor to exceed his expectations. No follow-up documents found. Chapter 4 If Jetta had ever been more than a barren rock of a moon, some years or centuries past, Jin couldn't see it now. There was nothing to see from space. No great oceans. No churning clouds. No glittering cities of metal and glass that spread across continents like mold. Only amber dust and cold desert. That's Jeddah, Cassian announced. What's left of it anyway? Winds tore at the U-wing as it breached the atmosphere, rocking the vessel and causing Jin to sway in the cockpit doorway. It was enough to leave her nauseated, Cassian and the droid seemed unperturbed, and she retreated to the cabin for the landing. Unwanted images of Saw Guerrera, Galen Urso, my father is alive, my father is a bastard, crept into her mind, spilling out of the hatch and crawling behind her eyes like parasites. She couldn't afford to sit and think. She'd go mad, ignore the nausea and do something useful, she told herself. By the time the transporter lit on a cracked desert mesa, 
Jean had already sorted through everything she might need on the moon's surface. Thermal layering, gloves and jacket and hood, to ward off the chill, a pair of combat truncheons for close-quarters fights, a satchel full of code breakers and ration packs and maps, because she'd found them on the U-Wing and she had an empty satchel to fill. While Cassian and K-2SO were still in the cockpit, she left the ship and found a seat on a boulder like an icy knife. From there, she looked onto the valley and toward the distant walls of the city. The Holy City. Jeddah City. Ni Jeddah. Depending on whose databank you checked. Dust and smoke obscured dully painted spires and palisades. Ancient stone plazas and gold-topped manors. From so far away, the settlement looked like a smudged painting of a history Jin didn't recognize. All she could make out with certainty were the shuttlecraft drifting like flies near the belly of an Imperial Star Destroyer hovering overhead. Where the city was rough and decayed, the destroyer was sleek and impermeable. Cassian and the droid emerged from the U-Wing behind her, sending small pebbles tumbling down the side of the mesa. What's with the destroyer? she asked. The Empire's been sending those since Sagarera started attacking their cargo shipments. Cassian said. That didn't surprise Jin. You don't stop Sagarera with a few extra TIE fighters. She wondered if she was proud or simply resigned to Saw's doggedness. What are they bringing in? she asked. It's what are they taking out? Cassian passed a set of quadnocks to Jin. She raised them to her eyes, scanned the horizon, let the automatic tracking systems fix and zoom in on one of the shuttlecraft. She saw half a dozen cargo crates colored hazard orange strapped to the undercarriage, but she didn't spot any markings. Kyber crystal. Cassian went on. All they can get. We believe the Empire is using it as fuel for the weapon. The planet killer... She sounded more sardonic than she felt. You don't think it's real? Jin shrugged and passed back the quadnox. Could be. Your boss was right when she said it seems like the sort of thing the Empire would do. The natural culmination of everything the Emperor has done. Cassian corrected. His lips curled in a wry smile. Either way, it's not surprising the Empire wants a planet killer. It'd just be surprising if it works. The droid spoke cheerfully. It might not. Not much crystal left at this point. Jin glanced at K2 and found herself eyeing his imperial markings. Maybe we should leave target practice here behind. Are you talking about me? The droid asked. Cassian straightened and tugged his jacket tighter as the wind picked up. She's right, he said. We need to blend in. Stay with the ship. I can blend in. K2SO returned. It wasn't so much a protest as a declaration. Jin snorted. With Saw's forces. Or the Imperials. Half the people here want to reprogram you. The other half want to put a hole in your head. I'm surprised you're so concerned with my safety. Jin turned back to the city and the valley trying to guess at the distance they'd need to cover. You overpacked, she decided, and tossed her satchel to K2SO. I'm not concerned, she said. 
I'm just worried our enemies might miss you and hit me. Cassian had already started walking. Jin followed. When the droid called, Doesn't sound so bad to me. She pretended not to hear. Bodhi Rook couldn't see the creature in the cave. When he craned his neck, tried to squirm out of his bonds or pull himself away from the chair, the shadows of the cave seemed to crawl, wriggling, like the ocean creatures he'd seen in an aquarium as a child. The shadows writhed and played in long wisps and blunt stubs, but when he tried to focus on them, to bring a single tendril into view out of the dark, he saw nothing. No motion but the flicker of lanterns in his peripheral vision. Poor Gullet can feel your thoughts, said the ghost. Saw Guerrero was watching. He was outside the cave, the cell that contained Bodhi and the creature. Safe, but watching. Don't do this, Bodhi said, barely loud enough to hear. Don't do this, please. He mumbled things, incoherent things, pleading things, because it was all he knew how to do. The sores on his feet, the chill in his fingers, the dehydration and bruises, these were discomforts he could survive. They were discomforts he understood. He'd suffered before, gone through sleep deprivation during pilot training. He was afraid of pain, yes, but the thing in the shadows repelled him, offended him on a level too intimate for words. No lie is safe, Saw Guerrera said. The shadows were crawling toward Bodhi now, swirling around the base of his chair. They smelled cloying as blooming flowers. He held his breath, tried to shrink back into his seat. What have you really brought me, cargo pilot? Borgullet will know the truth. Bodhi felt a touch on his shoulders, on his neck, feather light and almost gentle. When he trembled, however, the touch became painful, like his flesh was being pinched in a vice. He thought he was saying, I never lied to you, I never lied. But he couldn't hear his voice. The tendrils found his forehead. He felt his hair pressed tight against his skull as something wrapped about him. He closed his eyes. His body felt cold and clammy with sweat. He was too dehydrated to exude, and pinpricks of fire burned at his temples. These are a few of the things that Bodhi saw. His mother, her hands over his own, showing him how to cut a vegetable stalk with a knife in the family kitchen. His mother never let Bodhi handle knives, but this time was different because she felt sorry for him and he couldn't recall why. He was certain the reason would break his heart. There was something he had lost. He would have wept if he had not begun to see. Miserno, his teacher, his co-pilot on the Fentersone run, who would while away the journey talking about his years shooting pirates and rebels and separatist holdouts in a starfighter whose breath stank, and who joked loudly about how badly he treated cadets, but who drunkenly called Bodhi his best friend, his only friend. Galen Urso, who looked not entirely unlike Maserno, telling Bodhi, There is nothing brave about blind obedience. 
the simplest Troy does what it's told, never questioning or deciding. If you want to know what we're building, Bodhi Rook, you could simply ask. And he hadn't asked. Not then. Not yet. His cargo shuttled in flames, his hands burning as he worked the controls, trying to gain altitude, to keep out of the streams of particle bolts from the ground as the rebel shot at him. Someone was screaming in the aft compartment, but he couldn't do anything. Just fly! Just hope the stormtroopers or the TIE fighters would intervene. Bodhi wasn't sure if these things had happened at all. He could no longer remember how to breathe and felt the strain in his lungs. The unfortunate side effect, the ghost voice of Saw Guerrera said, is that one tends to lose one's mind. From a distance, the city had seemed as silent as the desert, its desolation broken only by the rumble of starships like wind. But up close, the streets were awash with the sounds of daily life in Jeddah, the shuffle of foot traffic and the shouts and clatter of merchants, the monotone chanting of pilgrims and the hum of machinery. Threaded among these noises were the sounds of occupation. Distorted voices of stormtroopers demanding scan docks at checkpoints, the roar of uncontrolled fires in contested sectors, and the echo of distant sporadic blaster volleys. Jin knew the sounds of occupation well. They were the sounds of home. We've got a good few hours of daylight left, Cassian said. Jin followed him through a curtain and into a pockmarked alley-turned living room for a colony of Kubas. The two ignored the long-snouted aliens and picked their way around blankets and sizzling cookpots as they walked. We'll probably need them. There's a curfew at sunset, and I don't fancy a walk back through the desert after dark. No sightseeing, then? No sightseeing. As they turned a corner and exited a second curtain, they passed into a tightly packed crowd constrained by a narrow street. Jin brushed against a passerby then felt a jolt as someone shoved her to one side. Her hand went under her jacket, sought her truncheon as her assailant snarled, You better watch yourself! Spoiling for a fight. Her gaze caught the man's face, a barely human mien distorted from burns or scarring, and moved to a second individual, aqualish, all tusks and bulbous black eyes behind him. She could take them both. Her heart was suddenly racing. She smiled coldly. No, no. Cassian grasped her arm, tugged her back into the flow of the crowd. We don't want any trouble. Sorry. The surge of adrenaline left her. Without a distraction at hand, her mind returned, unprompted, to an image of her father's face. A face nearly fifteen years out of date, but still the face of the man who'd abandoned her to serve the Empire. She kicked at the dust, shook her head when Cassian started to speak. So what now? she asked. If he noticed her discomfort, he didn't show it. Good for him, she thought. I had a contact, he said. One of Saw's rebels, but he's just gone missing. His sister will be looking for him. Sweet family... The temple's been destroyed, but she'll be there waiting. 
There are enough pilgrims around to make it a decent place to hide in plain sight, use as a dead drop. We'll give her your name and hope that gets us a meeting with Saul. Hope? She eyed Cassian dubiously. Is that the best rebel intelligence can do? Cassian might as well have shrugged. Rebellions are built on hope, he said. The crowd thinned out one street over. Jin drew up her hood as they passed a squad of stormtroopers knocking on doors and manhandling residents. She didn't reach for a weapon this time. She'd be too tempted to use it. She tuned out the pleas of the Jetta citizens instead and zeroed in on the words of an imperial propaganda hologram shimmering nearby. Something about an armed fugitive in a stolen imperial flight suit. She waited until they were out of earshot of the troopers and then asked, Is this all because of your pilot? Cassian didn't bother answering the question. Wait for me, he said and disappeared into the crush of bodies. Jin grunted an assent and began a slow orbit of a tight cluster of merchant stalls. She made a show of turning her head to study the contents of the shops. Hand-knit fabrics, fruit so brown and spotted that it had to have been grown locally. Shards of stone ostensibly from ruined shrines within the wastelands and avoided eye contact with the hawkers. She could still hear the propaganda hologram in the distance. Goes by the name Bodhi Rook. But a pilgrim's chanting rose in volume until it drowned out almost everything else. Over and over a simple refrain. May the force of others be with you. She picked up a palm-sized heater that a merchant promptly slapped from her hand. Her mind began to drift and she feared she'd start thinking of Saw again, of Galen Urso. Yet the chant resounded inside her skull. It followed her as she walked, until she was sure that the pilgrim responsible had fallen in behind her. She snapped a glance over her shoulder. The chant ended. At Jin's back was an ancient woman with withered hands, currently haggling over the heater Jin had set down. Not her chanter. Would you trade that necklace... For a glimpse into your future? The voice of the pilgrim. Jin frowned and took another step forward, trying to locate the source. Yes, I'm speaking to you. Without the monotone sobriety of the chant, the voice seemed touched with gentle humor. She found the speaker at last, seated on the ground a few steps down the line of stalls. He was dressed simply in a dark shirt and charcoal robe in the local style, and his smooth skin fought gamely against the ears that infected his words. His eyes were milky and unfocused, and at his side lay a sturdy wooden staff in the dust. Are there trees left on Jeddah? Jin wondered. Your necklace? The man repeated. Jin felt the crystal against her skin. Her necklace was still hidden, buried under layers of cloth, and the man was blind. I am Chirrut Imwe, the man said. How did you know I was wearing a necklace? Jin asked, and felt like a fool, like a mark, even as she spoke. Chirrut's next words only confirmed her instinct. For that answer, you must pay. It was the reply of a con artist. 
Jim shook her attention from Chirrut to search for his partner. He must have had a partner, one who had spotted her necklace somehow, and immediately found her quarry. A hulk of a man with hair as wild as Chirrut's was neat, in a filthy civilian flight suit and battered red plastoid armor half concealed under a wearable tarp. On his back was a generator unit connected to the blaster cannon he held casually in one hand. He stood with the stoic confidence of a bodyguard, unafraid of thieves or stormtroopers. How did you know I was wearing a necklace? Jin asked the second man, who shook his head slowly and snorted. Under other circumstances, she might have admired his weapon. Now she didn't want to give him the satisfaction. What do you know of Kaiba crystals? Chirrut asked. His tone was patient, prompting. She should have turned away, refused to be lured in. Yet Chirrut's voice seemed to resonate like his chant and demand an answer. My father, she eventually said, and it tasted less bitter than she expected. He said they powered the Jedi lightsabers. Chirrut nodded approvingly. Jin half-parted her lips, tried to speak before the blind man's voice could enter her skull again, but another sound broke the spell instead. Jin! Cassian, sharp and low. Come on! She wrenched away from Chirrut, took three strides at Cassian's side before the pilgrim's next words found her. The strongest stars have hearts of Kaiba. Her necklace seemed to burn in the cold. Let's go, Cassian urged. She couldn't help glancing back once at the pilgrim or the con man and his partner. But she shrugged off Cassian's guiding hand and trailed him willingly down the street. We're not here to make friends, he muttered. Not with those guys. Who are they? The guardians of the wheels, protectors of the temple of the Kuiper. But there's nothing left to protect, so now they're just causing trouble for everybody. She frowned. What kind of trouble? Cassian turned his head in a slow arc as if checking for pursuit. For the guardians. Anyone who's not a pilgrim is intruding on holy ground. The Empire calls them strays. Used to be domesticated, still beg for scraps, but they've really gone feral. Look at them wrong and they'll bite your hand in a second. You'll make me like them, Jin said. She tried to push their faces, Chirrut's voice out of her brain. They probably were con men, even if they'd been zealots once. Beyond that, she didn't know enough about the local religions to speculate. Pilgrims from a hundred faiths came to the moon from across the galaxy, and all of them blurred together into the same pathetic cult chanting and moaning and squirming under the Empire's boot. Cassian didn't reply. His pace picked up. You seem awfully tense all of a sudden, she said. What were you doing back there? Spotted an old associate. He didn't have any better line on Solgarera. But he's been hearing rumors. What kind of rumors? They were drawing closer to the Holy Quarter, and the character of the streets was changing. The roads grew wider, just as ancient, but no longer touched by the centuries of expansion, of the layering of building onto building by residents and merchants. 
The vendors and their customers were fewer, replaced by pilgrims in bright red caftans and hoods and shawls. The search for the pilot, Cassian said. The door-to-door inspections. There were shootings last night. An elderly couple dead in their home. Other civilians rounded up. No one's sure if they were innocent or if they knew something about the defector. But word is out that Sagirera is planning reprisals. That doesn't sound like so, Jin said. Cassian threw her a skeptical look, and she hastily explained. Not that he wouldn't arrange revenge attacks, but if he were that easily baited, they'd have caught him long ago. Cassian frowned in thought and seemed to process the words. Could be my associate was wrong, he said. Could be it's one of Saw's people arranging the attack without oversight from Saw himself. Or it could be Saw thinks the Empire is vulnerable right now, distracted by the search or something else we don't know about. Regardless, we have to hurry. This town, it's ready to blow. They passed a mural, colors long since faded to muddy indecipherability. Jin saw chips in the stone and a grenade fragment lodged into the wall. She laughed gutturally. We're a little late for that, she said, though she didn't slow her stride. They arrived on an upper-level street overlooking a large plaza. The shadow of a descending Imperial cargo shuttle spread over the ground while a squad of stormtroopers rousted sleeping forms out of doorways and shoved them headlong into neighboring streets, waved blaster rifles at pilgrims and barked orders. Jin was surprised by the aggression. At close quarters, one squad couldn't suppress a riot until she saw the assault tank rumbling around a corner to join the Imperial forces. Its blaster cannons could have leveled a city block. Jin didn't doubt its pilots were eager for a challenge. Secured to the back of the tank were the same orange cargo crates she'd seen while spying on the city from afar. The kyber crystals mined from the ground or stolen from holy sites. The strongest stars have hearts of kyber. She indicated the crates to Cassian with a nod. His attention was elsewhere. He was scanning the rooftops, his gaze flickering back periodically to the civilians lined up along the edge of the plaza. To a person, the onlookers were garbed in thick, bulky cloaks and overcoats. When Jin recognized what was happening, she was surprised the stormtroopers hadn't already opened fire. But the Imperials appeared entirely, almost pitiably oblivious. How far is your contact? The sister of Saul's man, she asked, barely louder than a breath. Half a dozen blocks over, Cassian murmured, but I don't think she's going to stick around. A wrinkled duro scampered up the stairs from the lower level and passed Jin and Cassian, red beetle eyes avoiding the now grounded shuttle, the tank, and every living creature nearby. Tell me you have a backup plan, Jin said. You want to tap one of these guys on the shoulder and ask if they can spare some advice before the shooting starts? We've got to get out of here. Cassian spoke the words like a curse. Jin didn't see who threw the first grenade. 
She heard it strike pavement despite the noise of the vehicles, recognized the sound despite the murmuring from the rooftops and the sharp commands of the stormtroopers. A glint of sunlight drew her eye to the metal sphere, and she saw it bounce once, roll half a meter in the direction of the tank, then disappear in an eruption of street fragments and smoke and shrapnel. She felt the resonant boom in her teeth. She heard a dozen cloaks and overcoats being shucked in unison, then the dull clack of pistols and rifles being brought to bear. The air turned bright with the arterial glow of a hundred particle bolts. Sparks burst off ancient stone walls. The noxious smell of burning plastoid armor and the ozone of vaporized Jetta atmosphere stung Jin's nostrils. A volley of blaster fire coursed across the plaza's upper level. Originating from stormtrooper or insurgent, Jin wasn't sure. And Jin reacted instinctively, dashing with Cassian into the flimsy shelter of a doorframe and squeezing tight against him. Looks like we found Saw's rebels, she said. Her blaster was in her hand. Her finger was on the trigger. If Cassian replied, Jin lost the words in the bedlam. She tried to read the battlefield, pinpoint every combatant, and found the chaos overwhelming. This wasn't her kind of fight anymore. There were too many people on each side deploying tactics she hadn't thought about in too long. All of Saw's training, the long months staring at holographic carnage and the years of staging ambushes with his soldiers, churned wildly in her brain. She spied only moments. A stormtrooper shot in the visor while swapping blaster packs. A rebel bleeding on the stairs and desperately searching for cover. The guns of the tank elevating, aiming toward a shop whose rooftop supported a trio of rebel attackers. Beneath the awning of the shop stood a girl, ten years old at the most. Probably a pilgrim, Jin thought. The girl was trembling, staring at the battle, utterly paralyzed. Jin left the cover of the doorway and ran for the shop. Cassian called her name, but it meant nothing. Jin didn't see the tank open fire. She grabbed the girl, scooped up her two-light body, and didn't stop running as stone burst and sparks spattered her back like rain. Fury drove her forward, a sudden revulsion that had lain buried and forgotten under the hatch in her brain, a violent horror at Saw Gerrera and his people, and the cost of his tactics. Jin might have kicked the woman who stepped forward to intercept her if the girl she carried hadn't writhed and twisted, almost leapt into the woman's outstretched arms. Jin let the girl go, ignored the woman's babbling, and waved her off. You cluster together, you die, she thought. The old training was resurfacing after all. She was too exposed, she knew that. She searched the plaza for cover and for Cassian. She spotted him out of the shelter of the doorframe, stupidly, dangerously near the tank, and realized he'd already seen her. He had his own blaster out and fired a cluster of tight shots above her head. She craned her neck around in time to see Cassian's target, a rebel stationed on another rooftop behind her. An instant later, Cassian's target and his rebel comrades disappeared in the fiery bloom of a grenade. Jin could only guess one of the rebels had been aiming the explosive her way. 
Cassian had shot one of Saw's rebels to save her life. Jin supposed she should have been anguished, torn at the thought. She wasn't. She sprinted toward Cassian. Clustering would get them killed, but she didn't plan on staying in the plaza, and she didn't relish the thought of escaping Jeddah on her own. She bowled into Cassian as another grenade impacted the tank. She slammed him to the ground and shielded him as metal shredded the air. Cassian dragged her to her feet and uttered a breathless, Come on! He didn't thank her, and Jin was grateful for it. They made it 50 meters from the plaza before hitting another stormtrooper squad. Half a dozen soldiers obstructed the alley Jin and Cassian had turned down, advancing gingerly through the Holy Quarter like they expected the streets to be mined. Jin swore to herself. Cassian pivoted around, but the stormtroopers reacted faster, turning their rifles on the man. One might miss. Together they'd cut him down in seconds. Jin called Cassian's name and barreled forward, pulling her truncheons from her coat. The fight in the plaza had numbed her senses. Her body had acclimated to the roar of explosions, the glare of particle boats, the heat of flames, and the blasts of demolished stone across her face. The brief respite from combat had let her feel again, and now her cheeks prickled and her legs throbbed with fatigue. She gripped her truncheons too tight, afraid she'd lose one as she slammed the metal rods into the joints of stormtrooper armor. She targeted throats and behind knees, felt the cushion of bodysuits underneath the trooper's plating, and struck again, again, crushing her own fingernails bloody in the pressure of her grasp. She knocked aside rifles with her shoulders, wedged herself into the fray to deny her opponents the opportunity to aim. She let her strikes determine her balance, moved from blow to blow, and ignored the flat smack of a rifle butt against her ribcage. When her truncheon found air, when no foe stood within reach, she stumbled back against the alley wall and exchanged a truncheon for a blaster. She fired two shots, dispatched two more troopers bringing their weapons to bear on her. She kicked one of the men she'd left on the ground and turned in time to see Cassian execute her last upright opponent. She was ready to drop from exhaustion. The blow to her ribs made her want to vomit. But she saw a long, spindly shadow extend down the length of the alley and forced herself to turn. In the stormtrooper's wake came the black metal body of an imperial security droid, marching on thin, titanium-strong legs. She dropped her second truncheon, gripped her blaster in both hands, and felt her aim waver as she fired. Despite her unsteady hands, the shot hit its mark. The droid's chest sparked, and something internal popped. It tumbled to the ground, only to reveal a second identical droid marching behind it. The second droid shuffled to a halt. The heat of the blaster barrel warmed Jin's cold fingers. She took aim. The second droid bent his head to study his fallen comrade. Did you know that wasn't me? Jin furiously searched her memory and recognized the voice of K2SO. Of course, she snapped. 
Cassian joined them as she tucked away her blaster and recovered her truncheon. I thought I told you to stay with the ship, he growled. You did, K2SO replied. But I thought it was boring, and you were in trouble. There are a lot of explosions for two people blending in. A series of short resonant blasts echoed from the direction of the plaza. A new column of smoke, threads of blue mixed in with the black, wafted above the rooftops. Another assault tank? Jin wondered. Maybe a walker? We could find one of Saw's people, Cassian said. Jin noticed he was sweating despite the cold, despite his matter-of-fact tone. Preferably someone down but still breathing. Maybe he could help us. If you want to drag someone out of that death trap, Jin jutted a thumb toward the plaza. You're welcome to try. But I'm guessing the rebels here aren't feeling trusting right now. Just keep an eye out, Cassian said. K2SO turned his head. Jin couldn't tell if he was listening to something, concentrating on whatever sorts of frequencies an Imperial security droid might pick up, or looking at Cassian askance. The Imperial forces are converging on our present location, K2SO said. The droid's head jerked again, and Jin followed the machine's gaze to the stormtroopers left sprawled on the ground. One trooper had risen to a knee, a small metallic cylinder in his left hand. He threw the grenade limply. Before Jin could move, as she tensed to leap away, K2 extended an inhumanly long arm and caught the cylinder in one hand. A moment later, the grenade retraced its arc perfectly. Jin winced and turned away from the explosion. A cold voice inside her said, No more witnesses. I suggest we leave immediately, K2 declared, and they left. For the first time since crossing the desert to the Holy City, Cassian noticed the cold. The insulating press of bodies in the street had kept him warm much of the day. Then, during the fighting, the chill hadn't registered at all. Now that sunset was approaching and his undershirt was soaked with sweat, he found himself shivering and watching his breath steam from his lips. If it was this bad for him... He couldn't imagine how Jin was still standing. The need in her eyes had been subsumed by an almost feral anger, a survival instinct that guided her with frightening surety through the chaos. But while he didn't doubt her alertness, she was slowing physically. The bruises she'd sustained brawling with the stormtroopers left her wincing with every other step. Cassian wondered, too, if she'd been concussed when she'd saved his life in the plaza. The grenade had gone off with stunning force, and she'd shielded him from the brunt of the blow. She needed a medical droid, a chance to recuperate. Instead, she traveled with Cassian and K2 through the maze of the Holy Quarter, her head low and her breathing strained. We'll find shelter soon, he said. He kept his eyes averted, and his tone matter-of-fact. He doubted she would respond well to pity. Even so, she didn't argue. That struck Cassian as a bad sign. He tried to focus on practicalities. They had to escape the Holy Quarter before it was cordoned off. 
they would need to reach Saw Gerrera and the pilot without the help of Cassian's contact. And while Jin was right that Saw's people wouldn't be trusting right now, Cassian couldn't see any other leads. Could Saw Gerrera put aside bad blood in the face of a planet killer? It seemed madness to have to ask, but by all accounts, the rift between Saw and the Alliance was profound, nurtured by years of bitterness that had curdled into violence, and Saw Gerrera was not a man who knew how to forgive. He'd passed that on to his adopted daughter, or maybe she'd taught it to him. Jin blocked Cassian's path with an outstretched arm. From a passageway too narrow to be called an alley, they watched a dozen stormtroopers pass through an intersection. Cassian recognized a side street across the way. That should bring us out of the quarter, he said. Jin waited for the patrol to move on, then promptly sprinted through the crossroads. Cassian and K2 followed, only to stumble to a halt as Jin abruptly stopped. Blocking the side street, nested in a pile of rubble, was the dusty wreck of an X-Wing starfighter. Cassian swore. It wouldn't be difficult to climb across, but it would leave them exposed for precious seconds. Halt! Stop right there! The trio turned together toward the voice. The stormtroopers who'd passed by were now spread out to block their retreat. Too many to fight, Cassian thought, and his hand drifted to his blaster anyway. His power pack was almost empty, but there was no point in saving his bolts. Jin's shoulders sagged, yet she stared at the stormtroopers like she was eager to enter the fray, glad to have nowhere to run. The squad leader nodded to K2SO. Where are you taking these prisoners? Cassian felt something very similar to hope. The droid stared back at the squad leader as if struggling to process a response. These are prisoners. Cassian winced. The feeling like hope evaporated. He flicked through a deck of possibilities. Maybe K2 was trying to access imperial behavioral programming and coming up short. Maybe overridden imperial loyalty protocols were coming back to life, thanks to hardware damage or some personal memory of the squad leader. Most likely, and worst of all, K2 was that bad at lying. He always had been, since the reprogram. Relentless honesty was his natural state. Yes, the squad leader said. Where are you taking the prisoners? I am taking them, K2 spoke with stilted care, to imprison them in prison. Cassian channeled his irritation into a growl of anger, a sound he prayed resembled something a defiant captive might make. He's taking us too. The droid swung a metal arm into Cassian's face. Quiet! The blow nearly took Cassian off his feet and left his nose and chin throbbing painfully, his lips stinging. K2 loomed over him. And there's a fresh one if you mouth off again. We'll take them from here, the squad leader again. Cassian tried to refocus as the stormtroopers approached the trio. They kept their weapons out, maintained a tight formation, demonstrated all the discipline Imperial soldiers were supposed to. As one retrieved two sets of stun cuffs, the others watched Jin, 
Cassian and the droid. K2 was babbling now. That's okay. If you could just point me in the right direction, I can take them, I'm sure. I've taken them this far. Jin looked to Cassian and reached for her truncheons as the trooper with the cuffs approached. Cassian shook his head. Wait for a chance, he mouthed, and Jin looked ready to bite as the trooper snapped the restraints into her wrists. A few seconds later, Cassian too was cuffed. Hey, he murmured. Hey, droid, wait a second. Whatever the trooper's suspicions, they clearly didn't believe K2 had been subverted. If Cassian could make his intentions known, the droid could locate them in holding, access the Imperial database to free them. It wasn't a good plan, but it was a plan. Take them away, the squad leader called. The stormtroopers circled and moved in unison. Cassian felt a rifle muzzle nudge at his back. You can't take them away! K2 protested. You stay here, the squad leader said. We need to check your diagnostics. Diagnostics? I'm capable of running my own diagnostics, thank you very much. Don't argue! Cassian wanted to snap. He gave the droid as intent a look as he dared, but K2 was too invested in his debate with the squad leader. A stormtrooper shoved Cassian from behind, and he stumbled forward. If they were taken captive, and K2's reprogramming was discovered, then they truly had no way out. They could claim they were residents of Jeddah City, but that would fall apart on a cursory investigation. They could say they were deserters from Saul's band, but they'd gain no leniency. You messed up bad, Cassian told himself. This time... You get to pay the price yourself. Then a voice cried out, steady and commanding, and everyone, stormtroopers, captives, and droid, stopped to look. Let them pass in peace! Chirut Imwe stood in an archway, staring at the stormtroopers with blind eyes. Jin wanted to laugh. Cassian had called him a guardian of the wills, whatever that really meant. He'd played games with Jin to try to buy her necklace. And now he was what? Martyring himself? Maybe he was more zealot than con man after all. Let them pass in peace, he said again, leaning lightly on his staff. The stormtroopers were repositioning themselves, fanning out to defend against Chirrut or another rebel ambush. Chirrut began chanting and the words throbbed in Jin's aching skull. The Force is with me, and I am with the Force. He emerged from the archway, stepped toward the stormtroopers. He was in the middle of the street now, separating most of the squad from Jin, Cassian, and K2SO. And I fear nothing, for all is as the Force wills it. Hey! Stop right there! The squad leader's voice was angry. Not used to being ignored by civilians, Jin thought, and smiled grimly. He's blind! A second trooper called. Is he deaf? The squad leader asked. I said, stop right there! Chirrut raised one foot from the pavement, and the squad leader fired a single shot. 
It was too late to shout a warning, too late for anyone to intervene. And Jin felt an unexpected ache, a pang of guilt over the death of a man who had tried to save them. But Chirrut was not dead. The bolt had been aimed with precision, yet Chirrut was not dead. The merest twitch of his head, a glance to one side, had saved him and sent the energy flashing by toward the captives and over Cassian's shoulder. Stormtroopers who had previously hesitated to shoot a blind man adjusted their weapons with nervous hands and a renewed sense of duty. Jin shifted her wrists and her cuffs, glancing at the two stormtroopers who remained within her reach. Shirat was inside the bulk of the squad in two strides. His staff was suddenly in motion, sweeping behind legs and twisting arms back unnaturally. Jin felt clumsy and graceless, where she had thrown her whole body into every strike with her truncheons. Shirat dropped stormtroopers with a delicate whirl, a flick of his wrist. He was mocking them now, in a voice full of gentle mirth. Is your foot all right? Like a dancer, he leapt a step to the side as another stormtrooper fired his rifle. The bolt found one of the trooper's squadmates, and Chirrut only shook his head sadly. The two stormtroopers by Jin were staring at the melee, as if debating whether to join their squad. Jin chose her moment and swung her cupped hands into the helmet of the trooper nearest. The metal bit fiercely into her wrists as she impacted. Graceless or not, exhausted and cold and hurting or not, she'd do what she could. She'd caught the stormtrooper by surprise. She took advantage of the man's shock by throwing her shoulder into his chest, forcing him to his knees. She heard Cassian and K2SO fighting too, heard continued shouting from Chirrut's direction, but she focused on her own opponent. She brought her shackles down on the back of the trooper's head, pounded at his helmet, drove him low, drove the plastoid against his skull again and again until he finally slumped to the ground. If she'd been sure of his unconsciousness, Jin might have stopped there. Instead, she kicked him fiercely, viciously, three times, until she was certain he couldn't rise. Cassian and K2SO's opponent was down as well. Chirrut stood calmly over a pile of bodies. Jin rolled aching shoulders and felt blood on her raw wrists. But the fight wasn't over. A second squad of stormtroopers, reinforcements maybe, or just drawn by the noise, rushed in from the intersection. Chirrut was too far away to intercept them before they could take aim. Jin scanned for cover, saw none within reach, and prepared to drop flat onto the dust. She heard the crackling snap of a particle bolt, but none of the stormtroopers had discharged his or her weapon. One collapsed, then another, as sniper fire struck them faster than Jin would have thought possible. When the last was dead, the shooter emerged from across the way. Jin recognized him, Chirrut's silent partner from the alley, the one with wild hair and red armor. In one hand, he bore his repeating cannon. In the other was an ornate, gold-trimmed bowcaster at odds with his battered and practical gear. This 
the man passed to Chirut. You almost shot me, Chirut said. You're welcome, his partner replied. Without looking, he fired a bolt into the back of a stormtrooper crawling nearby. Then Chirut's partner turned toward Jin and Cassian. He raised his cannon, expression wary but not outright hostile. Chirrut watched with blind eyes. You both saved us, Jin thought. You won't kill us now. Clear of hostiles, K2SO announced, striding forward to survey the remnants of the battle. Immediately, Chirrut's partner aimed at the droid. K2SO halted and amended. One hostile. He's with us, Jin cried. No. Chirrut spoke to his partner gently. They're okay. The red-armored man lowered his weapon again. Jin thought he looked disappointed. Jin nursed her scraped wrists and flexed her fingers, glad to be free of the cuffs. She'd spent too much time in restraints, gone to too much trouble to ensure her freedom. Even a few minutes was more than she wanted to endure. K2SO was freeing Cassian as Chirrut and his partner looked on. Go back to the ship. Cassian told the droid. Wait for my call. You're wasting your most valuable resource. The droid returned, but he strode away obediently. Jin looked to Cassian for an explanation. They were still in danger, and while the droid brought unwanted attention, he'd also proven useful. She didn't much like K2. He was still more reliable than their new allies. Cassian evidently had other things on his mind. He watched Chirrut's partner. Is he Jedi? He asked, with the hushed doubt of a man on the verge of a great discovery. Jin thought of the spinning staff of Chirrut's graceful dance of battle. Was that what Jedi were like? Her mother had told her stories. The mystic warriors and guardians of the Republic in the centuries before the Empire, believers in a force that guided living creatures. She never really believed in the stories. The Jedi, yes, but not the legend. No Jedi anymore, Chirrut's partner said. Only dreamers like this fool. Chirrut shrugged mildly. The Force did protect me. I protected you, his partner replied. If Cassian was disappointed by his answer, Jin couldn't tell. She was willing to take Chirrut's partner at his word. Easier to believe in what existed now rather than what might have been long ago. She bit back her next words savored the sour taste before asking, Can you get us to Sogarera? She'd already committed to the mission. Might as well see it through. Neither Chirrut nor his partner had the opportunity to reply before someone called, Hands in the air! Rebel fighters emerged from alleys and rooftops. Jin recognized several from the plaza. She wanted to shout in rage, for hours, it seemed, she'd done nothing but fight, and her body had been sapped of every erg of strength, had turned to nothing but a collection of bruises and aching muscles. Cassian was the first to drop his weapon. Jin followed suit. K2 
Cassian mouthed something to her. Not the enemy. Can't you see we are no friends of the Empire? Chirrut asked. He'd set his bowcaster in the dust. Even his partner had relinquished his cannon. One rebel stepped forward. A thin, skull-faced Tognath in leathers who breathed through a mechanical respirator and spoke in his native dialect. Tell that to the one who killed our men. Jin looked to Cassian. In her mind's eye, she saw him fire his blaster in the plaza, felt the grenade explode over her head. She remembered the cold, guiltless sensation that had passed over her then. Shame found her now, gripped her heart, and she tore through it with anger. These were Saw's people. If Saw were alive, she knew how to deal with them. Anyone who kills me or my friends will answer to Saw Guerrera, she called. The rebels shuffled, murmured to one another. One of them chuckled hoarsely. The Tognath cocked his head as if trying to recognize Jin's face. And why is that? He asked. Because Saw knows me, she said. Because I know him. Because I was battling at his side when most of you were still crying in your beds instead of fighting back. She'd begun by choosing her words carefully, but now they spilled from her lips unwanted. I've seen that man at his worst. I know exactly what he does when he feels betrayed. And I'm still alive. The broken hatch made it easy to stumble upon unwanted memories. The battle in the plaza had already dredged up a hundred bloody conflicts she'd barely survived. Thirteen or fourteen or fifteen years old and already trusted with a blaster. Now she remembered the looks from her fellow rebels. The whispers behind her back. The things they wondered about her the things they believed. Because, she finished, I am the daughter of Galen Erso. The Tognath watched her for a long moment. Everyone, friend and foe, was still. Take them, the Tognath said. Two rebels grappled Jin. She didn't fight. Coarse cloth scraped over her nose, and she fought to breathe through the sack that clung to her face. She heard Cassian groan nearby, a growl from Chirrut's partner, and then Chirrut's own voice. Are you kidding me? I'm blind! Supplemental Data Pilgrims of Jedha Document number DN4624 Faith and the Force of Others Fragment excerpted from the archives of the Order of the Esoteric Pulsar. Author unknown. What is the force of others? To ask this, you must ask one question and a thousand. To a cultist of the Hui Yui Tini, you must ask, What is the exhalation of the true amphibious god? To a Jedi, you must ask, what is it that binds and defines all life? To a child of the esoteric pulsar, you must ask, show me the secret pages of the Book of Stars. To a faithless man, you must ask, what power 
enables prophecy and sorcery in a world controlled by logic and law. These thousand questions will garner a thousand answers, all pointing toward the same truth. Now ask, where is the force of others? And one answer becomes inevitable. The kind and cold moon of Jeddah. For a thousand faiths see truth in Jeddah's mysteries, no matter that their stories differ. No matter that not one history of the Temple of the Kaiba can explain each brick in its foundation, or that our legends entwine and part in paradox. I ask you to believe that Jeddah is a nexus for faith, life, and the force of others in all their forms. If the force can be embodied in a vision or a living creature, why not a place? Or why not an idea? Why can pilgrimage not be Jeddah, and Jeddah not be the force? I ask you to believe this not because it is true, but because it is a beginning. Imagine these things and you must conclude that every visit to Jeddah is a pilgrimage. That every visit to Jeddah is an expression of faith and a search for truth, intended or not. When a thief comes to Jeddah to prey upon the vendors in the markets, she does so in accordance with her nature. She will trick and lie and steal. And if she does not trick or lie or steal, then her faith and nature are altogether different. You say, why a thief? Why such a cynical conjecture? To which I say, do you not wonder why the guardians of the wheels protect their temple so? Why the Jedi carry their cruel swords of light even here? It is because our pilgrimages are in accordance with our faiths, and faith can bring terrible conflict. A thief is but the kindest example I can offer. Jeddah does not give answers to those who do not know what answers they seek. Jeddah does not bring into harmony those things that cannot harmonize. Jeddah does not express faith and the force through its pilgrims. Pilgrims express faith and the force through Jeddah. Pilgrims express faith and the force through life. For what is life but pilgrimage? And what is life but conflict? There have been worlds and tyrants who have tried to prevent their people from journeying to Jeddah. But such a thing cannot be stopped. Living beings will always find their way to the kind and cold moon as they always have. Through the Force and Jeddah, they will act as they must for good and ill. And we will know them by their actions there. Chapter 5 Cassian was blind beneath his hood, but although he lacked Chirrut's preternatural senses, he knew how to listen. During the long march from the Holy City, he listened to his captors. He listened to the code words they murmured to unseen allies who granted them passage out of the settlement and into the desert. 
He listened to their confusion. The short-lived cheering and then the grim silence as the Star Destroyer above Jeddah shrank into the twilight sky. He listened to the Tognath state coolly. Saw will know what it means. He listened to Chirrut's endless chanting. May the force of others be with you. May the force of others be with you. Muffled by the cloth sack, the combined effect seemed simultaneously profound and absurd. Most of all, he listened for Jin. He listened for her struggles. He listened for her voice. He tried to determine which steady tread on the sand was hers. For all Cassian heard, she might have vanished from the face of Jeddah. Was it concern that made him fixate on her? His mission was to find Saw, and through Saw, find the pilot. Find proof of an Imperial weapon that could mutilate the galaxy. If possible, he was also to find and eliminate Galen Urso, a man very likely culpable in that weapon's creation. Jin was first and foremost a means of finding Saw. She'd already served that purpose, which meant she was now expendable. She dominated his thinking nonetheless. Cassian believed neither pity nor pragmatism explained it. He had sacrificed Tivik without hesitation. Maybe it was the need he'd seen in Jin, the fire that had carried her through the fighting in the Holy Quarter. It seemed obscene to leave that need unanswered, abandoned to the dust. It was late into the night when the band left the desert for the rocky slopes of a mountainside, then on from the mountain to the echoing corridors of a stone shelter. Cassian recognized the heavier tread of Chirrut's partner at his side and risked a low murmur. We're half a day out. A shrine. A monastery, the man said. The catacombs of Kadera. Down among the dead. The name meant nothing to Cassian. He tried to count rebel voices in the distance, but he rapidly lost track. They'd reached a base of some kind. Weapons clattered and heaters hummed, and heavy doors opened and slammed shut. Shouts of triumph and the click of wooden game pieces suggested the presence of bored guards or off-duty soldiers. Without prelude, Cassian's hood was torn off and a solid kick delivered to his lower back. He pivoted in time to see the blurred shadow of a cell door slam shut. He blinked furiously to adjust to the dim light. The cell was little more than a cramped alcove in the rock. Chirrut and his partner shared the space with Cassian. The former man chanted softly, May the force of others be with you, in one corner, while the latter stood with arms folded across his chest, staring into the darkness of the cavern beyond the door. Jin was missing. Hey! Cassian called. He rushed to the bars, cried out, Jin Erso! Where is she? No one answered. You're a fool, Cassian told himself. They won't talk to you, but they'll try to spot your weakness. He mollified himself with the dubious pleasure of inhaling musty air unencumbered by a hood. The walls of the catacombs were inlaid with humanoid skulls, thousands of them, from what had to have been generations of monks. 
and draped with power cables leading from generators to heaters to comm stations. A handful of rebel guards sat on squat stools nearby, not far from where the group's gear had been splayed on a table. Other cells neighbored Cassian's own, silent and dark. He turned his attention to the door itself and pushed himself against the bars to peer at its outer control panel. The lock was mechanical, but wired into the systems of the rebel hideout. He could definitely reach it, suspected he could pick it, but not without triggering an alarm. You pray? Chirrut's partner asked. Cassian turned to find the man speaking to the still-chanting Chirrut. You pray? The man said and barked a laugh. He glanced at Cassian. He's praying for the door to open. Pray I get a chance to work, Cassian murmured, but both men seemed to ignore him. Chirrut stopped his chant abruptly. It bothers him, he said, because he knows it is possible. Chirrut's partner laughed again. The sound was brief and ugly, but Chirrut only shrugged and told Cassian, Baze Malbus was once the most devoted guardian of us all. Baze Malbus. Cassian ran the name through his mental database and came up empty. Now he's just your guardian? He asked. Neither man took the bait. Cassian ran his hands over his face, scratched at his beard. Both of the guardians were formidable fighters, to be sure. And Chirrut, Jedi or not, half-mad or overzealous or sincere, was an echo of an era the Empire had nearly erased. Even the leaders of the Rebellion rarely spoke about the Jedi. Had men like Chirrut been common, men so certain in their faith that they wielded it like a shield, men so disciplined that, even blind, they could down a dozen stormtroopers with nothing more than a stick... How many people were alive to remember? Before the rise of the Empire, Cassian would have considered the Jedi his enemies. But he'd been so young. Too young to understand who he'd been fighting or who he'd been fighting for. Now the Separatists were as forgotten as their Jedi foes. Why did you save us? He asked. Maybe I only saved her, Chirrut said. Cassian grunted. I'm beginning to think the Force and I have different priorities. Relax, Captain, Chirrut answered. We've been in worse cages than this one. Yeah, well, this is a first for me. There is more than one sort of prison, Captain, Chirrut said. I sense that you carry yours wherever you go. Baze laughed again, but there was no boisterousness this time. Just a coarse hollow sound. Cassian frowned and turned back to the lock in the cavern. It was some minutes later that he realized no one had told Chirrut he was a captain. Jin recognized the soldiers in the monastery, though she'd never met most of them. She knew their scars, the burn marks on their palms from overheated blasters, the short, jagged lines on cheeks and neck drawn by slivers of shrapnel. She knew their carriage. The proud, compact manner they maintained that readied them to take or return a blow. She recognized these things, 
recognized the soldiers not only as rebels, but as Saw's rebels, trained in his image. And she instinctively mirrored their posture, reflected their mistrustful glares. All these years later, she was still one of them. And they hated her for it. She couldn't really blame them. They were mourning casualties in the holy city because of her. They were mourning their brothers and sisters dead at her hand, or close enough. She waited in the central chamber of the monastery, a place stacked with cots and cook stations attended by Saw's people. The Tognath had left her there after guiding her away from Cassian, her hood off and her hands bound. The question of where Cassian might be now was no more than a distant distraction to Jin, like the sound of a rat scuttling along rafters. She had other concerns on her mind. Saw Guerrero was somewhere close. She could almost smell the oil in his favorite rifle. For years, she had anticipated, fantasized about confronting him, picked hurtful words and braced herself for the wrath of the first, last, and only true warrior to stand against the Empire. That confrontation had never come, and she'd let the fantasy die. Now she wasn't sure she was ready for the fight. I remember you. Jin turned to see a woman approaching. She was pale, almost chalk-skinned, but human, dressed in an armored jacket two sizes too large. Her speech was slurred. One of her arms hung limp. Were you on Fashioned or Prime? The woman asked, as if trying to place an acquaintance. No. Jin said and furrowed her brow. Must have been after my time. Jin tried to recall the woman's face and caught other memories instead. She saw a comrade she hadn't thought about in a lifetime. Is Staven still alive? Jin asked. Staven, who'd lectured her for hours one night for miswiring a detonator. Staven, who'd given Jin her first sip of fermented bantha milk and let her sit with the adults telling dirty jokes before anyone else. No, the woman said. What about Kodo? Kodo, who taught Jin how to swim in the mud hole they'd called a grotto. Kodo, who tried to kiss her, and who wouldn't talk to her after she refused. In response, the woman lifted her good hand, put an imaginary blaster to her head, and pulled the trigger. Maya... Jin asked, but that was stupid. She remembered now. She had been there when Maya died. Jin had been the one to inherit and promptly lose Maya's synthskin gloves, the gloves that had been so soft and smelled like carbon scoring. People didn't talk about the dead much among Saw's rebels. It made it easy to forget when someone was gone. The woman grunted and drifted away. The Tognath emerged from a doorway and returned to Jin's side. With a swift, unkind motion, he cut the bonds around her wrists. You'll see you now, the Tognath said. No more distractions, Jin thought. Saw Guerrera had recruited hard soldiers and made them heartless. Staven and Kodo and Maya, everything Jin had loved and hated about them, all of it, was shadow in Saw's fiery light. She shut down a tremor and steeled herself to meet the man who'd saved her from the cave. 
In there, the Tognath said, and gestured at a curtained doorway. Jin stepped through the ragged fabric which parted like a cobweb. The Tognath did not follow. The small chamber beyond was a Spartan living area built for a lonely abbot. It peered onto the valley of the holy city through a window in the rock. A pale gray dawn had crept up behind the horizon, and Jin realized that she was no longer tired. Sometime during the night, during the march across the desert, she had lost the capacity for ordinary exhaustion and taken on a deeper weariness. She heard a harsh metallic clank. She shifted her weight instinctively, ready to take a fighting stance. Is it really you? A hoarse voice asked. She was ready, she told herself. Jin turned her head and looked at Saul Guerrera. The wreck that had been Saul Guerrera. Where she had once known a soldier, scarred but strong, now she saw an old man held together by the scaffolding of armor and braces. His dark hair was frosted with white, grown wild and unkempt about his face. His eyes were keen as ever, but they were trapped inside a rusting cage. Saw Guerrera had been the strongest person Jin had ever known. Even sealed within the hatch in her mind, buried in the darkness, he had shouted to be heard. She loathed him for so many reasons. She had been prepared to fight. Witnessing him like this, she wanted to cry. I can't believe it, he whispered. Jin! He strode toward her, the metallic rhythm of his leg echoing in the chamber. Might be quite a surprise, she said. She spoke in the voice of the Jin who wanted a battle. It was the voice of a soldier, the voice that terrified prisoners and demanded cold, merciless retribution. It was supposed to be Saw's voice, but there was no harshness in his rasp. Are we not still friends? He asked. The last time I saw you, Jin uttered, as casual as if she were butchering a rat on a spit. You gave me a knife and loaded blaster and told me to wait in a shell turret until daylight. I knew you were safe, Saw said. He sounded wounded. You left me behind. You are already the best soldier in my country. Saw shook his head. You were ready, and I saw that, even if you did not. Her words came too fast, too hot. I was sixteen. I was protecting you. Her error seemed to give strength to Saw. His rasp became sharper, a swift slap of correction. You dumped me, Jin sneered, but it wasn't much more than a murmur. She had come full of savagery, ready to pit her fire against his. Instead, he'd stolen her heat, and all either of them had now was embers. You are the daughter of an imperial science officer, So said. He spoke more gently than Jin could bear. People were starting to figure that out. People who wanted to, to use you as a hostage. Not a day goes by I don't think of you. Stop, she said. She didn't want this. The kind Saw Guerrera, the gentle Saw Guerrera, who could afford to look at the girl he raised and pity her. Fight me, she wanted to beg. 
Then So's eyes narrowed and Jin caught a glimpse of the warrior she knew. But today of all days, he asked. He took another step forward, stared at her, unblinking. It's a trap, he said. Isn't it? What? The soldier was somewhere in the wreck of the man, inside the armor and the braces, gasping defiance against his dying body. The pilot, Saw said with impotent urgency. The message, all of it. He grasped at the oxygen mask built into his armor, pulled it to his face and sucked in a mouthful of air before resuming. Did they send you? Have you come here to kill me? There was no humor in his voice as he added, There's not much left. Jin shook her head slowly. The words drifted like motes of dust, like ash, and she began to comprehend. This was still the Saw Gerrera she knew, albeit enfeebled and drained of life. This was the man who knew compassion, who cared for Jin as his own daughter, only so long as there was no battle to fight. No paranoid fantasy of traitors or imperial plots to lure him astray. I don't care enough to kill you, Saw, she said. So what is it, Jin? Why come to Jeddah in the name of the Rebel Alliance? He'd done his research, apparently. He wanted to talk about her mission, about the pilot. Fine. The Alliance wants my father, she said. They think he sent you a message about a weapon. I guess they think by sending me, you might actually help them out. Who sent you? He asked, as if he'd caught her at a lie. Was it Draven? General Draven, Mon Mothma, the whole damn council. Jin snapped. I don't know them, Saw. I'm doing this job because I have to. Saw turned away, snatched up a cane, and leaned heavily against it. His hand was trembling. So what is it that you want, Jin? Did you expect I could welcome you back? Ignore the deaths in the city? She almost laughed. She held it in, smiled bitterly instead. I want to be left alone. They wanted an introduction. They've got it. You should be talking to your prisoners, not me. Again, that distant, distracted thought of Cassian. I'm out now. The rest of you can do what you want. The cane wobbled in Saw's hand. She saw him lurch, catch himself. You care not about the cause. Jin tried to find words to respond. Do you think you're testing me? Do you think I've been hiding anything from you? The cause, she finally managed. Seriously? You were the best soldier in my country. Saw hissed. Not because of your skill, but because you believed. The cane rose and snapped back to the floor, the sound bellowing through the room. Because you knew our enemy like I did. Because you were willing to die for our cause and our army. She had believed. Saw was right about that. But that belief hadn't been preserved in the dark cave in her mind. It had withered there, dried and cracked and turned to dust. The Alliance, she said, the rebels, whatever it is you're calling yourself these days, all it's ever brought me is pain. Saw's throat worked with effort, his nostrils flared. He didn't reach for the oxygen mask. 
You can stand to see the Imperial flag reign across the galaxy? He asked. Jin shrugged. She could have walked away then, turned her back on the shadow of the man she'd known, walked into the desert and called an end to her obligations. But Saw had hurt her. It's not a problem if you don't look up, she said. She had seen Saw Gerrera face disloyalty before. She had seen him spill blood over worse offenses than her own, seen him bind and blindfold a would-be deserter and toss him from an airspeeder in front of an imperial barracks. She knew, too, that he had hidden the worst from her, secret methods of torment and interrogation that he hadn't wished to show a fifteen-year-old girl. She wanted to hurt him. She wanted his old fire back in the hope that it might rekindle her own. She had come into his chamber prepared to fight and found herself suffocating, her rage perishing without fuel. The exhaustion of the night's trek, of the battle in the Holy Quarter, rose to reclaim her after all. You taught me to survive. But Saw only took a drag from his oxygen mask and closed his eyes. The trembling of the cane ceased. When he looked at her again, he seemed to have found a new clarity. I have something to show you, he said. So much could go wrong, Orson Krennic thought. But in the moment before action, in the instant when both triumph and defeat remained possible, the galaxy seemed wondrous. He observed the evacuation of Jeddah on a dozen viewscreens across the Death Star's overbridge. The smaller craft, the personal shuttles of high-ranking officers and the transports of specialized stormtrooper units were the last to lift off. The Star Destroyer Dauntless, once stationed above Jeddah City, had already repositioned itself some distance from the moon. Despite the protests of local garrison commanders, the forces assigned to Jeddah would be safe from whatever followed. One of the bridge officers called out a number. Ninety-seven percent. Krennic amended the thought. Ninety-seven percent of Jeddah's assigned military forces would be safe. That would suffice. Jeddah was a meat grinder. A three percent loss in return for total victory would win any general accommodation. It's past time, Director. The unctuous voice came from the direction of the turbolift. Krennic pivoted on his heel and smiled a broad, respectful smile at Will of Tarkin, as the old man eyed the bustle of officers and technicians. I couldn't agree more, Krennic said, and inclined his head. But under the circumstances, it seems only respectful to await the Emperor's command. The Emperor is awaiting my report, Tarkin retorted. Krennic's smile faded only a touch. One had hoped that he and Lord Vader might have been here for such an occasion. Tarkin's voice was laced with irritation and feigned exasperation. And I thought it prudent to save you from any potential embarrassment. My embarrassment or your own. Tarkin's objective was transparent. The man believed, with typical grandiose certainty, that a demonstration on Jeddah would diminish rather than enhance Krennic's stature. 
Yet why remained an open question. Kranich had turned up no evidence of sabotage. Nor had his contacts close to Tarkin revealed anything of use regarding the governor's plot. And while Tarkin's disdain for Krennic was supreme, he would surely have arranged for the Emperor to bear witness if he assumed Krennic's incompetence would result in the station's failure. No, the most likely possibility was that Krennic's precautions against sabotage or failure had shaken Tarkin's confidence. The man was now hedging his bets. If Krennic succeeded in annihilating Jeddah, Tarkin would attempt to take credit in the eyes of the Emperor. If Krennic failed, all the better. But Krennic would not fail. The Death Star was ready. Once Jeddah was destroyed, he would receive his private audience with Emperor Palpatine. And he was confident he could persuade the Emperor that it was he, not Tarkin, who deserved the accolades. It even happened to be true. Your concern is hardly warranted, Krennic said. The finest scientists and engineers in the Empire have dedicated their lives to this project. You will not find our faith in them misplaced. If saying it would only make it so, Tarkin murmured, just loud enough for the officers to hear him above the din. Krennic barely withheld a snarl. All Imperial forces he announced, striding along the command stations, have been evacuated, and I stand ready to destroy the entire moon. The officers faced him, uniformly at attention. The technician slowed, but did not cease working, as Krennic had earlier instructed. What we do today was once inconceivable, a scientific heresy. Yet our empire and our emperor have ensured our success and granted us the moral authority required to take this step toward peace. The death of a world. He stopped at the sound of brisk applause from Tarkin. Inspiring, he said. But that won't be necessary. We need a statement, not a manifesto. Krennic's smile twisted into a grimace. What is it, he asked, that you suggest? Tarkin shrugged. The holy city will be enough for the day. Krennic tugged at his gloves, felt sweat on his palms as his ire grew. His assessment of Tarkin had been incomplete. The old man was hedging against both success and failure, ensuring that even a perfect performance would be unspectacular at best. Could he subvert Tarkin's orders, arrange the destruction of the moon regardless, and claim that the station's sheer power had been unanticipated? He glanced from a control console to Tarkin and back, not with him watching. Not on short notice, he would find another way. Target Jeddah City, he snapped. Prepare single reactor ignition. Krennic concealed his resentment, calmed himself with the sounds of his breath and the tidal rush of the station reactor. This wasn't how he'd imagined the culmination of twenty years' work. A diminished attack, a Grand Moff's power play. But it was the reality he contended with. Fire when ready. 
His voice was steady. He had earned his pride, no matter the outcome. Chapter 6 Cassian had a plan. He tested the cell door's locking mechanism while the guards were fixated on a game of Dejaric, pressing against the metal with his thumb and probing the limits of its tamper alarm. He'd feigned fatigue, leaning against the door's bar so he could inspect the lock visually and find its make and model. He'd mentally cataloged the picks hidden in his boot and selected the tools he intended to use. He guessed he could escape the cell in under three minutes. As soon as the guards were gone, anyway. But the guards weren't moving, and now he was stuck with two thoughts he had no desire to dwell upon. Had killing Saw Guerrera's people ruined any chance of reconciliation with the Rebel Alliance, even against the threat of a planet killer? And where was Jin? Who's the one in the next cell? Cassian tore his eyes from the guards and glanced over to Chirrut. It was the first time the blind man had spoken for nearly an hour. Baze grunted and shuffled to his feet. What? Where? He crossed the alcove, lightly shouldering Cassian aside to make room at the door. He peered into the darkness of the cell across the way. All Cassian could see was shadows, but Baze pulled back abruptly, snarling. An Imperial pilot! Cassian scowled and leaned in, trying to see what Baze saw. What pilot? Imperial. Baze shrugged, squinted, seemed to assess the distance between himself and the ragged pile Cassian was starting to discern. I'll kill him. Cassian tried to interpose his body between Baze and the cell door as the Guardian straightened with purpose. No, wait! Damn religious crazies. He wasn't sure what Bays could do from behind bars, and he wasn't keen on learning. Back off! He tapped the larger man's chest with his hands, tried to seem insistent without starting a brawl. Bays shoved Cassian once, but then returned to his corner, slumping to the floor. Cassian crouched at the bars. The ragged pile shifted awkwardly. Shadows crystallized into limbs, hair, a dirt-encrusted face, and a battered uniform with imperial markings on the arms. The man didn't seem to see Cassian, staring between his knees, huddled as if in fear of the dark and the cold. Even from a few meters distant, he stank of sweat and filth. Is this what Saw does to prisoners? Is this what he's doing to Jin? Are you the pilot? Cassian called. The man didn't look up. Hey! Hey! Are you the pilot? The shuttle pilot! The man blinked. Cassian watched dim lights from the guard's chamber gleam in wet eyes. Then the man made a noise, a groan, that Cassian had trouble interpreting as a word. Pilot! Chirrut spoke softly. What's wrong with him? Cassian shook his head and tried to recall the words of the Imperial holograms in the city. Bodhi Rook? He asked. The man squeezed his eyes and shrank back. Cassian swore to himself. If he's broken, 
he's no good to us anyway. Galen Urso. Cassian tried. He tried to sound gentle, but he heard urgency slip into his voice. You know that name? The man hissed, turned his cheek as if he'd been slapped. His breath picked up, swift and loud like a hound's panting. Cassian held still. Come on. The man opened his eyes again. His breathing slowed. I brought the message, he said. I'm the pilot. Then, in surprise and horror and hope, I'm the pilot. I'm the pilot. Saw Guerrera clenched one trembling hand around the edge of his console. The other hand moved assuredly, inserting a hollow chip into the comm unit and tapping in a command. This is the message from the pilot, he said. For what it's worth, he believed it was real. Jim's throat seemed to tighten. She rocked half a step backward as if to withdraw from the chamber. She hadn't wanted to see Saw. She didn't want to see this. For reasons she couldn't justify, she stood still and watched. The hollow projector flared and a man she didn't recognize appeared etched in sapphire light. He was gaunt but not haggard, like someone dying under the gentlest of care. And his eyes looked beyond the recorder instead of at it. His face turned something in Jin she couldn't verbalize, some primordial recollection warped by the weight of years. When he spoke, she knew his voice. So, if you're watching this, Galen Urso said, then perhaps there is a chance to save the Alliance. The words had the air of a deathbed confession. My father is alive. My father is a coward. My father is a bastard. Galen Urso is not my father. Galen Urso didn't raise me. Jin wanted madly, childishly, to rush to Saw's side, to cling to him for protection. She wanted to drive her fist into the hollow projector, to bleed from shards embedded in her knuckles, and then tear the hollow chip out, crush it under her heel. She stood and listened. Perhaps there is a chance to explain myself. And though I don't dare hope for too much, a chance for Jin, if she's alive, if you can possibly find her. He trailed off, shook his head briskly. A chance to let her know that my love for her has never faded, and how desperately I've missed her. From the ruin of the hatch, from the cave in her mind came images, sounds, scents. Jin's father holding her, declaring... I love you, smelling as sour as his imperial uniform. She wanted to shout at the hologram, Your love? Who gives a damn about your love? You sent me to Saw. You let my mother die. You did this to me. She didn't say anything, and the recording kept speaking. Jen, my stardust, I can't imagine what you think of me. When I was taken, I faced some bitter truths. I was told that, soon enough, Krennic would have you. He toyed with me that way. For months he would pretend to forget you. 
and then act in conversation as if he'd slipped up. Make mention of a new lead on you or so. Part of me longed for those mentions. I realize now it was a kind of torture. As time went by, I knew that you were either dead or so well hidden that he would never find you. But I knew if I refused to work, if I took my own life, it would only be a matter of time before Krennic realized he no longer needed me to complete the project. He spoke these words swiftly, almost slurring them in his haste. In the silence that followed, his mouth worked noiselessly. Then he began again. You may think that's an excuse, but I was fearful and should have died. In the interest of objectivity, here for the first time he smiled. It was an ugly, effortful thing. I should admit the possibility. History will forgive me or excoriate me as is appropriate. I only wish it would forget me. Jin listened to her father's explanations, his justifications, as they piled on one after another. Too many to consider, too many to argue against. Years of Galen's personal analyses and self-recriminations spat out in the space of seconds. He was trying to answer her every question, anticipate every response, and the torrent denied her any opportunity for logic or fury. How could she not loathe him? How could her heart not break? She needed to sit. Her legs were swaying beneath her as unstable as Saw's cane. She stood and watched. So I did the one thing that nobody expected. I lied. His voice grew steadier, as if here he stood on sure ground. Or I learned to lie. I played the part of a beaten man, resigned to the sanctuary of his work. I made myself indispensable. And all the while, I laid the groundwork of my revenge. You may have heard rumors by now. Leaks regarding a battle station integrating an advanced laser prototype. The battle station is real. Its primary weapon has been built to penetrate the crust of a planetary object to pour energy into a world until the bonds of matter free and break. The ultimate result, we believe, would be the planet's violent obliteration. Nothing would survive. Nothing could ever be rebuilt. This battle station, we call it the Death Star. There is no better name. Jin heard the horrors her father described. But it was only his spellbound tone that allowed her to notice it all. Her thoughts were fixed on his simple presence. His story of years of desperation and labor and doubt. My father is alive. My father is a traitor. My father is building a weapon to destroy worlds. Galen Urso is not my father. Galen Urso didn't raise me. She looked in vain to saw looked for the compassion she had derided and defied minutes before. Yet he too was watching the message, his expression cold and somber, as if for the first time he was hearing Galen's words and dwelling on their implications instead of searching for a trap. My colleagues, many of them, have fooled themselves into thinking they are creating something so terrible and powerful 
it will never be used. But they're wrong. No weapon has ever been left on the shelf. And the day is coming soon when it will be unleashed. His head turned from the recorder as if what he said next, more than anything, he feared to say aloud. I've placed a flaw deep within the system. A scar so small and powerful, they'll never find it. Jin knew the words mattered. Her father spoke with the breathless agony of a man bearing his soul. It wasn't what she needed to hear. Not now. She no longer felt the swaying of her legs. Darkness crept around the edges of her vision, as if the hatch in her mind and the cave where the hatch had been were rising up to engulf her, as if she were descending, falling, to be locked away in her own skull with everything she'd denied. Galen shivered like a man dying in icy rain. The confession appeared to have been too much. Jin, if you're listening... He was slurring again, stumbling and urgent. My beloved, so much of my life has been wasted. I try to think of you only in the moments when I'm strong, because the pain of not having you with me, your mother, our family... He paused seemed to try to refocus with limited effect. The pain of that loss is so overwhelming, I risk failing even now. It's just so hard not to think of you. Think of where you are. I assume logically, rationally, that you fight with the rebellion. It's difficult to imagine so steering you any other way. And you always had the same anger. He smiled for a second time. Here it was unforced, without self-mockery or bitterness. The same insistent sense of righteousness as your mother. It frightens me to imagine you grown, somehow working to oppose injustice in the galaxy, whether from a laboratory or a starfighter. It frightens me, and I think the Rebellion could ask for no better friend. Yet if it isn't so... If I'm wrong and you left the rebellion and saw behind, but this message still finds you, you make me no less proud, Jin. If you found a place in the galaxy untouched by war, a quiet life, maybe with a family, if you're happy, Jin, then that's more than enough. Jin's jaw ached, clamped shut to hold in her screams. She couldn't swallow, could barely breathe. The cave walls rose around her until the only light in the blackness was the sapphire glow of the hologram. If you're happy, Jin. Galen snapped back into focus, no longer hesitant or soft. Saw. The reactor system, that's the key. That's the place I've laid my trap. It's unstable. So one blast to any part of it will destroy the entire station. She was losing her balance. Her legs shook and her head swam. Galen's words were fading behind a roar like the rush of blood in her ears. She tried to concentrate on his voice as if it were a lifeline to haul her out of oblivion. You'll need the plants, the structural plants, to find your way. But they exist. Sabotage from the inside is impossible. Krennic is too paranoid, but I've thought about this, Saw. Prepared everything for you I could. The roar was growing louder. 
The stones seemed to tremble, and Jin fell to her knees. A shock of pain driving back the darkness of the cave long enough for her to realize that Saul too was shaking. His cane tapped rapidly on the floor. I know there's at least one complete engineering archive in the data vault at the Citadel Tower on Scarif. Use what I've told you, run the analysis, and you'll be able to plan your attack. Any pressurized explosion to the reactor module will set off a chain reaction that will... Without prelude, the hologram vanished. Not even the control lights on the console still gleamed. The voice was gone. Saw Guerrera cried out something as the monastery lurched and a choking wave of dust billowed through the window. Something terrible was happening on Jeddah. Chin knew that. But she'd lost her father. The cave beneath the ruined hatch swallowed her, enveloped her in night. Chapter 7 Krennic paced the overridge under Tarkin's watch, observing the technicians and referencing every step against the control protocols he'd memorized long ago. Levers were flipped, rotating, focusing lenses deep within the station's core. Engineers adjusted radiation baffles and ventilation pumps as the main reactor shook with effort and its comforting roar turned to an eerie scream. Krennic saw more than one hand shaking, more than one face flushed or daubed with sweat. But his officers knew their duty. They would do everything necessary to destroy Jeddah City at the bidding of their commander. Obedience and skill, of course, might not be enough. Eight separate beam generators came online in the Death Star's heart. Here the process became too much for Krennic to observe in its entirety. A dozen officers on the overbridge alone chattered into their comms, relaying information through a dozen more teams responsible for monitoring and controlling the primary weapon's final ignition. Krennic turned from the technicians to the monitor screens, saw readings gently crest as the eight beams reached minimum coherency. From the focusing dish on the station's outer shell, the beams of light and charged particles poured into a single vertex, controlled and suspended by the kyber fields. The overbridge's main display blazed with green fire set against the void of space, and Krennic stepped forward, staring in awe at the conflagration. The radiance of the display splashed over his white uniform, over the black helmets of the technicians, over Tarkin's grave face, and rendered the room in carved emerald. For a moment, the blazing nexus of energy hung in the void. Krennic tensed involuntarily. This was the moment where so many tests and computer simulations had failed him. He had seen the Nexus sputter and die, or expand to consume the station itself. He had seen calculations collapse under their own weight as predictions gave way to haphazard guesswork. He had seen successes too, but they gave him no confidence now. Then, the last stage was triggered. From the center of the focusing dish came another particle beam, 
invisible to the human eye. It carved through the nexus and tunneled a path for the energy's release, funneled the conflagration away from the battle station and toward the rust-brown sphere of the Jeddah moon. The atmosphere seemed to flare where the beam struck. Krennic tried to imagine the incineration of the holy city and the ensuing shockwave. He found his mind failed him. Surely no one could imagine such a thing. He had killed a city. He could kill a world. Every morning, Megone ate her breakfast before the smoke ceremony. According to certain ancient customs, this was an act of heresy. But she'd done it every day for sixty-odd years, and no cosmic power had ever smacked the eggs from her withered hands or turned the water in her canteen to blood. Besides, it seemed to Magone that a dollop of heresy kept a person from getting too wrapped up in the particulars of tradition. Smoke ceremonies and pilgrimages don't put one in touch with the Force. She once told a disappointed visitor to her shrine, best they can do is focus head and heart. It was while making breakfast over her portable stove, just outside her tiny shrine in the mountains beyond the city, that Megone noticed the dark silhouette in the sky. It was no more than a smear to her roomy eyes, and she tried to rub it from her vision with her knuckles. It remained, despite her efforts, a blemish on the dim gray heavens. She trembled as she adjusted the stove's heat. Her body had been failing her more and more lately. The dull pain in her ankles had worsened the past few weeks, and the mole she could feel on the nape of her neck had gotten larger. Admit it, Megon, she mumbled. You're finally getting old. She looked back to the smudge in the sky. It wore a fiery halo now, and the world seemed darker, as if the smudge had eclipsed the sun itself. Mixed with her confusion was the elated thought, maybe it's not my sight after all. Then the smudge flashed a brilliant emerald, and her vision spotted as if she'd been staring into a fire. Magone felt the heat wash over her body, but she felt no pain. She ignited in an incandescent burst of burning air, turned to ash and less than ash in an instant. At the age of 93... She was not ready to die. Pendra was pouting. Larn was praying the pout didn't sour and become a full-blown tantrum. He loved his daughter, but he'd seen her shriek for an hour straight, and he was late for work already. You're going to stay with Aunt Jola today, he said. She has those toys you like, remember? The ones that belonged to Cousin Cat? Larn knew very well that his daughter had ignored the toy starship models the last time they'd gathered at Jola's. Still, if he lied in a soothing enough voice, there was always the chance Pendra would believe him. Instead, his daughter ignored his words as he adjusted her boots. I want to go with Mom, she whimpered. So do I, Larn thought. 
then cursed aloud as he tried to stand and banged his shoulders against the kitchen table. Kendra was continuing her protests, but he wasn't listening anymore. He scooped her up in both arms, glancing about the cramped apartment to make sure he hadn't forgotten anything. So far as he could tell, Pandra didn't remember the fight in the Holy Quarter. She didn't remember nearly dying and being saved by the whim of... Who had it been? Not a rebel and not an imperial, but, according to Huika, some woman caught in the crossfire. When had Jetta become such a death trap? It hadn't always been this way. And now they were going to work, doing their shopping like nothing had happened. Maybe Lauren thought he could talk to Wika. Maybe she was right about finding a way off-world. But not tonight. Tonight, he just wanted her home safe. Lauren and Pendra Silu didn't see the emerald light or hear the thunder before they died. Pendra never left her father's arms. The order to evacuate had come while JN-093 was in the Outlands doing recon on suspected rebel hiding spots. All she and her squad had turned up was a shallow cave packed with empty supply crates. Now she was waiting for pickup. So far from the city, they'd never make it back on foot in time for liftoff. You know why we're being moved off-world? JN-092 asked. He was pacing awkwardly by the edge of a long, dry lake bed, occasionally digging the toe of his boot into the dust. I don't, JN-093 said, though she doubted she would have told two if she did know. He was a stormtrooper. He should have known better than to ask. JK-027 laughed into the calm in his resonant bass. He was nearly out of sight, scanning the horizon from atop a boulder. You're getting cozy here? Afraid to leave? Two grumbled something insulting that didn't quite cut through the static. JN-093 shook her head in irritation. There was something going on between K and Two. She wasn't sure what, but it had started after they'd come back from a night at the cantina. She made a note to question them if they didn't reconcile soon. She didn't need her squad members at one another's throats. Where was the blasted pickup anyway? Kay was looking at the sky now. JN-093 felt a shadow fall across the valley, allowed her helmet visor to automatically compensate. She scowled as she tried to contact transport control. The comms seemed to be working, but no one was answering. Two prized off his helmet and tossed it to the ground. He too craned his neck to look skyward. JN-093 prepared to scold him when a surprised voice finally came through. JN-093, please confirm. Your squad's still on the ground? You forgot us? She wanted to ask. Affirmative, she said. Still waiting for pickup. Sorry, 093. You may be stuck out there a while. Just got a... A pause. I'm really sorry. The voice cut out. The calm hissed. JN-093 kicked at the dirt. K and Two were standing by the lake bed together now, both with their helmets off, still staring at the sky. She started to stroll toward them. Maybe they're making up, she thought. And Two started laughing when the sky turned emerald. 
JN-093 was thrown into the dirt as the ground bucked and a gale whipped across the valley. In the direction of Jetta City, the horizon glowed as if a new sun were rising. A sun of white and green fire that swelled and burst, spilling forth destruction. JN-093 instinctively screamed orders into her calm, though no one was listening. She pushed herself to crawl toward her team as the gale grew stronger and black clouds rose and shrouded the distant fire. She fought against the battering wind and dust for what felt like minutes. The next time she could think and see, she was behind a ridge of boulders dragging two by one arm. He was coughing and brushing sand from his face. A wall of churning ruin filled the horizon, rapidly marching closer. Kay was nowhere in sight. JN-093 finally thought to look at the shadow in the sky. She stared at the structure, indefinably large and eclipsing the sun. She knew a weapon when she saw one, no matter how incomprehensible. They did it, she murmured. The rebels finally did it. Two sputtered weak laughter. I don't think that's the rebels, he said. When the storm front hit them, JN-093's armor protected her just long enough to make her death painful. In her last flicker of brain activity, she felt she'd failed her squad. Saw Guerrera looked from the window of the Kadera Monastery and saw his death on the horizon. The holy city was gone. In its place was a roiling storm of sand and fire, like the work of some primal deity. The bed of the valley flowed like an ocean, save where fissures opened and drew the land into itself. The wind battered him, burning with heat and stinking of ozone. He inhaled one scorching lungful of dust, then clamped his oxygen mask to his face. He found himself transfixed by the monstrosity before him. Saw had seen many terrible weapons over the years. Disruptor beams that tore soldiers apart. Screamers that left the residents of whole city blocks hallucinating and bleeding from their ears. Viruses that spread on the wind and adapted to every species imaginable. He had used those same weapons and numbed himself to the outrage of the Rebel Alliance. Yet now... He saw something beyond all his dark dreams, and he remembered fear. No, don't lie to yourself. You feared your death for a long time, and more with every day. He turned away from the window, stumbled, and saw his console spark with one last surge of power. He thought of his soldiers in the catacombs, considered what order to give, but they were surely evacuating already. His lieutenants knew the next rendezvous, and they knew their duty. Well enough to also know he would only slow them down. He envisioned dragging his failing body, trapped in its unwieldy armor, down the collapsing corridors of the monastery with the support of a warrior under each arm. It was a humiliation. It was a fantasy. It's time, so. Past time. There was only Jin then. The girl was on her hands and knees, still staring at the dead hollow projector. 
Saw felt a jolt of ire and shame. Had she become soft after all these years? Which he routed from his mind. Whatever had become of Jin, she was still his. Still his best soldier. Still his only family. The floor jumped, and the tip of his cane skidded out from beneath him. Saw crashed to the ground as chips of stone pelted him from the ceiling. His armor cushioned him from the worst of the blow. The pain was, as always, in the act of motion, in lifting himself back to his feet and clambering to Jin's side. He tried to speak, cursed his enervated lungs and the coughing fit that followed. He sucked at his oxygen mask and watched Jin reflexively rise off her hands without turning from the projector. She was better than this. Better than behaving like an imperial pilot ravaged by Boar Gullet. He found his comlink, rasped a demand for aid, and heard no response but static. He could count on no one else to rescue Jin. Saw had to make her remember. Remember that she was his best soldier. Remember that she had a mission to complete, a war to fight, a Death Star to destroy, an emperor to execute for all the crimes of a nation. He grasped her shoulder as tight as he could and spat her name. Jin! He cried. My daughter! But Jin didn't seem to hear. Chapter 8 What was the message? Cassian asked. You can tell me the message. Bez grunted behind him. The pilot refused to look directly at Cassian. They'd gone around twice already, Cassian asking questions and the broken man answering in jumbled words and mumbles. There were hints of insight to be found. Cassian had heard the words planet killer more than once, but little else. He wanted to tear the answers bodily from the man he'd come so far to find. This had to be worth it. The message, the mission, it had to be worth the cost. Brought the message, the pilot finally said. Brought it from Galen. Brought it from Edu. Edu. He dimly recalled the name from some Alliance intelligence file, a planet somewhere in the outer rim. It was a thread Cassian could follow. Then the catacombs began to rumble. Outside the cell, skulls skittered out of their niches on the walls and shattered on the stone floor. The lights flickered, and guards rushed to exit the outer chamber. An absurd obsessive instinct in Cassian urged him to ignore the quake, to keep the pilot talking, but he tamped down the compulsion enough to recognize the opportunity he'd been provided. Proton bombs, Bay said, turning his eyes to the ceiling. Chirut shook his head. No, but he ventured no alternatives. Cassian freed his security kit from his boot and began work on the cell's lock, clipping wires and shifting tumblers. The quake's force steadily increased, causing his hands to jerk and slip. Finally, the lock made a satisfying click and the door slid open. He had barely enough time to pull his arms out from the bars. He dashed for the table where the group's gear had been stashed as Bays tugged Chirrut along after. Let's go! Bay snapped. 
Cassian snatched up his blaster in one hand, fumbled for his comlink with the other, and signaled, K2! K2, where are you? Please be at the ship. Please don't say you followed me. We're so close here. The comlink crackled with static, and an almost incomprehensible voice replied, There you are. I'm standing by as you ordered, though there is a problem on the horizon. What problem? Cassian spat. There is no horizon. On a positive note, I may have found our planet killer. The catacombs shuddered and bucked, nearly tossing Cassian to his knees. It wasn't until he regained his balance that he understood what the droid was talking about. What was happening on the surface? And did it matter? The planet killer was real. It's here. He felt a thrill, realizing what they'd found. Realizing he would return to the rebellion not just successful, but wildly so, with an eyewitness account of the monster they faced. Realizing that he was imperiled by a menace unheard of in galactic history, and that he would survive or not according to his own skill. The thrill was arrested by the chill that worked its way down his back and the sweat on his brow. Locate our position, he said. Bring that ship in here now! Five minutes to extraction, if I make it at all. Cassian glanced sidelong at Baze, who was either inspecting or caressing his blaster cannon. Five minutes. It wasn't nearly fast enough, and far too fast for what he wanted. Jin was still missing, in the hands of Saw or whatever torturous Saw had sicked on Bodhi Rook. She was extraneous now. Cassian no longer needed Saw, and Bodhi could lead the rebels to Galen Urso on his own. Worse than extraneous, he told himself. She'll try to stop what comes next. All Cassian had to do was forget the need in her eyes. Leave her behind as he'd left behind Tivik on the Ring of Kafrin, as he'd left behind men on Ilora Saint and Chemvau. Where are you going? Chirud shouted. Cassian was already halfway to the cavern exit. I've got to find Jin, he called. You get the pilot. We need him. Then if you want to ride out of here, meet me up top. It was as much a threat as an offer. There was barely enough light to navigate the catacombs. Cassian followed the flashes of swinging overheads, and as he caught up, the handhelds carried by Saw's fleeing soldiers. The rebels all traveled the same path, and Cassian raced upstairs and around corners in their wake. No one seemed to notice a lone prisoner in pursuit. He scaled the steps to the main floor of the monastery and heard new noises over the rumbling of the mountain and the shouts of evacuating rebels. The engines of starships and beyond a terrible howling wind like the hurricanes of Squar. The soldiers scattered from a central chamber, gears slung over their shoulders or abandoned on the ground. Cassian wondered if any of them would survive to see the stars. As a twilight rebel bolted past, Cassian caught the man by his cyan headtails and tossed him against a wall. Where's Jean Erso? he asked. Where was she taken? The Twi'lek pushed back instinctively. He was young and slim, slim enough that Cassian had underestimated him. But he was still a fighter, 
still one of saws. He slammed a fist into Cassian's ribs. Cassian caught the next blow and forced his opponent to the wall again. I'm not here to fight. What's your name? He growled. The boy stared, uncomprehending. What's your name? Ray Sodan, the boy said. Ray Sodan, making him angry won't help you. Keep him calm. We can beat each other up while this place falls apart, or you can tell me where you took Jin Erso. The prisoner from before, the one separate from the rest. The boy took barely a moment to decide. Saw's chambers, the upper level. But I haven't seen him since... Cassian turned and sprinted away. Saw had left the pilot behind. Maybe, if Cassian was lucky, he was cruel enough to leave Jin too. He ascended another stairway, two steps at a time. The monastery made a noise like thunder as some part of the structure collapsed altogether. Cassian was forced to put his sleeve over his mouth and nostrils to keep himself from choking on the dust. Power cables led him to a doorway filled by a tattered curtain where he tripped on something soft. The heap of a rebel body, a youth with a rifle longer than her arm. No blaster marks, Cassian thought. Poor kid must have come for a saw and cracked her head during one of the tremors. She might have been alive, but she wasn't his concern. He called Jin's name, pushed forward through the curtains, and found what he was looking for. Jin was squatting on the floor of the chamber within, her shoulders slumped and her arms limp. With each shudder of the monastery, she shifted her weight, straightened to avoid toppling over, but those were the only motions she made. She was staring sightlessly across the room. She didn't seem to notice the armored figure crouched before her. Saw Guerrera, older, much older than the images Cassian had seen in the dossier at Base One, but unmistakably saw. What had he done? Saw lifted his head. Bloodshot eyes met Cassian's own. The man squinted in thought, then rasped, as if reading the rage and the question on Cassian's face. This was not my doing. She wasn't ready for what she saw. Cassian wanted to yell, What does that mean? But Saw spoke again in a voice that defied interruption. If you can save her, he said bitterly, Take her. The monastery was falling apart. If K2 was coming, he'd arrive momentarily. There was no time. Saw's answer would have to be good enough. Cassian knelt by Jin. Her eyes were glassy, unfocused. We've got to go, he said, soft and stern. She flinched at the sound. Nothing more. Cassian swore to himself. Leave her behind. It would be easier than he'd expected. The need had burned out of her eyes. The feral instinct to survive had been buried kilometers deep. He'd be leaving behind an empty shell. I know where your father is, he said. Jin blinked. Her eyes flickered toward Cassian. Go, Jin! Saw's voice, commanding even in its frailty. You must go! Jin rose to her feet on trembling legs. Her breath hissed between barely parted lips. She turned a blank face to look over the room, over Cassian and Saw. 
and reached out to grasp her mentor's arm. Something passed between Jin and Saw that Cassian couldn't begin to read. Saw spoke simply, softly. Save yourself, please. Jin's face seemed to flash with anger, but her fingers unclenched from Saw, and Cassian grabbed her other arm, tugging her toward the doorway. Come on, he said, and she stumbled one step, then two. Go! Saw urged, somehow stronger now, his voice competing against the tumbling rocks that clattered beyond the chamber window. Jin took another step, but her gaze remained on the old rebel. There's no time! Cassian snapped. He pulled at her again, and now she was moving, unsteady yet swift, making for the corridor at Cassian's side. Saw's bellows seemed to shatter stone behind them and dwarf even the roar of the cataclysm. Save the rebellion! he cried. Save the dream! Bodhi Rook understood the distinction between past and present, between recollection and reality. He just wasn't sure which was which anymore. Bor Gullet had taken everything Bodhi was, every intimate thought and dream, every cherished or forsaken memory, and torn through it with tendrils like scalpels. A scrap of first kiss drifted, ripped and sodden into a pile on the right. A ribbon of kyber crystals floated to the pile on the left, pressed and preserved for further examination. When Borgallet and Saw had completed their investigation, Bodhi had tried to stuff every memory back into his mind. He was certain they hadn't all fit quite right. I'm the pilot! Who had he said that to? Someone had listened to him at last! Or was that a memory from long ago? Was he still in the cage with Borgullet? No, but he was in another cage. It smelled of his own putrid scent. His flight suit chafed his icy flesh, irritated his sores, and ground dirt into his wounds. The whole world was rumbling like a ship taking flight. Surely that, Bodhi thought, was a memory. The pilot... A voice said, low and full of scorn. He focused on the source and saw through the bars of his cage a hulk of a man with dark, wild hair. Behind him stood a slimmer man who carried a staff. The first man, the name Baze, surfaced in Bodhi's brain, though Bodhi couldn't have guessed where he'd heard it, raised a blaster cannon and pointed it at Bodhi's chest. Panic helped Bodhi find words. Wait! he cried. No! He stumbled to his feet, readied himself for the pain of death. He heard the blaster shot and felt nothing. The door to his cell slid open. Bays was scowling at him, pointing his weapon at the burnt and sparking control panel. Come on! the second man called. His name is Chirrut. Let's go! Was this reality? Was this a rescue? Bodhi nearly twisted an ankle on his first step. The ground bucked on his second. 
Then he was running, chasing after Bays and Chirrut, and praying that he had found his salvation at last, found the welcome Galen Urso had promised him when he had said to seek out the rebellion to make amends. Maybe, Bodhi thought, just maybe his torment was over. He recognized some of the faces running with him. There were whole crowds beyond Bays and Chirrut, clattering through the stone hallways with rifles and duffels slung over their shoulders. Among them were Bodhi's captors, the men and women who'd bound him, blinded him, marched him at gunpoint across the desert when he'd begged simply to help them. They didn't look at him now, didn't seem to see him. He pushed his aching legs and cold lungs harder to keep pace. They'll kill us. He whispered to Bays, You don't know these people. Bays laughed so loud that Bodhi was terrified the rebels would look back. They kept running. Forgive my friend, Chirrut said. You would think it's funny too, if you knew he wanted you dead most of all. Bodhi didn't find that funny in the slightest. But a rescue was a rescue. They ran out of the catacombs, up ancient steps worn smooth over centuries, and burst into the frigid dawn. Sunlight slashed Bodhi's eyes with cuts of blue and green and silver. He couldn't recall when he'd last seen sunlight, though Borgullet would have known. He staggered to a stop behind Bays and Chirrut, standing on a broad mountain ledge overlooking a valley. The rebels were gone, scattered, somewhere. In the valley there was nothing but dust, a billowing, blooming storm of sand expanding outward in all directions and rolling across the valley floor. Baze's lips parted without words. He watched like a man in shock. What do you see? Chirrut asked Baze. Bodhi blinked away the scars of light. When his eyes had adjusted, he realized that the valley was now too dim. He raised his stiff neck, looked to the sky, and saw a shadow like a moon eclipsing the sun. What do you see? Chirrut asked again. Realizations crashed together. Bodhi was on Jeddah, had never left Jeddah, and he was looking onto the valley where the holy city had been. And above him, in the sky? No, he whispered. No! This was not a rescue. This was a trick of Borgullet. This was the reason he had left the Empire, abandoned his friends, trusted the words of Galen Urso, suffered torment and humiliation to stop the battle station, stop the planet killer from coming to life. What he saw was not real. It could not be. It wasn't supposed to happen yet. He whispered, though no one listened. He was too late. This was his fault. Scalding wind cut through the cold, nearly blasted him from his feet. The dust storm was getting closer. Then he heard another noise. A screaming boom, separate from the thunderous rumble of the storm. Descending toward the mountain was a ship. A UT-60D U-wing transport. It dipped awkwardly in the buffeting wind, trying to match the level of the ledge. Baze wrapped an arm around Chirrut, started toward the ship. Okay, let's go! 
What was the point? Bodhi wondered. They'd already lost. An open palm smacked Bodhi between the shoulders. Move! A man called. He rushed past, pulling a woman by the hand. Bodhi had seen the man before, he thought. He remembered a gentle, almost pitying voice. What was the point? He didn't want to die. He followed the man, followed Bays and Chirrut through the air that was growing ever thicker with dust. Sand beat his flesh and raked his hair. He couldn't hear the Ewing's boarding ramp descend, but he saw the aperture, a window in the storm. The others were ahead of him, sprinting inside, making the final jump with apparent ease. Bodhi leapt, but his quaking legs failed him. He was falling onto the ramp when a hand caught him, yanked him violently forward an instant before the cabin door shut. He didn't see who it was who'd saved his life. Get us out of here! A voice yelled. Punch it! The cabin lurched and swayed. Bays, Chirrut, and the woman clutched at the seats at support struts to keep from being dashed against the walls. But even with the floor unsteady beneath him, even with the metallic wail of the wind against the bulkhead, Bodhi felt comforted. He was on a ship now. He knew ships. The hull shrieked as something heavy bounced off the top of the U-wing. The deck dropped, sent Bodhi onto his hands and knees, and drove spikes of pain into his wrists. He went sliding as the ship banked. He recognized the sound of the engine. An Incom Corporation rebuild of their 9XR standby, as it strained against the storm. Bodhi dragged himself forward and clambered into the cockpit. He'd never seen a U-wing cockpit before. Seated at the controls were a droid and the man who'd passed by him before. Cassian? Was that his name? They were adjusting thrust madly, trying to ride the waves of the dust storm, trying to turn the ship away from the epicenter and maneuver through the mountains as they cracked and shattered. Bodhi didn't interrupt. He watched their hands play over the controls. He read the instruments and the scanners, nearly useless, never meant for these conditions. He felt the Ewing rise on a crest of the storm, shuddering all the way as it tried to match speed and saw a shadow creep over the cockpit as a heavier, hotter cloud raced overhead and began to fall. He was going to die after all. His rescue was over, and it was his own fault. If he'd been faster, the rebels might have stopped the planet killer. I'm sorry, he whispered. Cassian and the droid didn't hear him. He understood that Borg Gullet was gone from his mind. Yet the memory that seized him was every bit as vivid as those the creature had evinced. Bodhi looked out the viewport and saw, instead of the dust storm, the emerald and turquoise hues of titanic gas clouds. Lightning volleys like alien dancers leapt from one cloud to the next, causing each to ignite and burst. Bodhi was laughing as his shuttle... A new class transport, barely viable for training runs, bounced and twirled, and his classmates cheered him on. It was a memory of utter serenity. Then his flight through the gas giant of Bamayar 9 was over, and he was gazing into the dust storm again, as darkness closed around the U-wing. Look! he cried, and reached toward the viewport, toward a speck of light, a gateway through the dust collapsing as the wave above them crashed down. 
Cassian didn't turn toward Bodhi. Maybe he hadn't heard. But the rebel snarled, Come on! As he diverted power again, urged the ship through that speck of light as oblivion raged around them. And the sky turned blue, then black, and the viewport filled with stars. The U-Wing leapt into hyperspace, and Bodhi laughed on the floor of the cockpit in giddy joy. Chapter 9 The Death Star's overbridge was dark, except for the lit rows of instrumentation and the glow of the main display. Dominating that vast screen was what remained of the valley of the holy city of Jeddah, a churning, whirling, burning storm of sand and rock shards. The air, ionized by the energy of the Death Star's weapon, flashed with lightning, at the storm's epicenter, the crater of the incinerated city smoldered where the beam had sublimed the outermost layer of the moon's crust. This was not the fate Krennic had envisioned for Jeddah. The Death Star was designed to obliterate worlds, not maim them. Yet he wondered if the moon would ever recover from such an attack, or whether the cascading effects of a burning atmosphere and broken crust would result in a tortuous death played out across millennia. He felt in his bones that his weapon had exposed something profound about the nature of worlds, about their lifeblood and their death throes, though he could not have put it into words. Maybe, he thought, that's what poets are for. It's beautiful, he murmured, breaking minutes of near silence on the bridge. Even Tarkin had respected the crew members' shared awe as they spoke in whispers and muffled their keystrokes. I believe I owe you an apology, Director Krennic, Tarkin replied. Your work exceeds all expectations. Krennic did his best to conceal his surprise. And you'll tell the Emperor as much. Too eager. He moderated his tone. He could afford humility if it would comfort Tarkin. After all, this is his triumph. The triumph of his insight and will, more than any other single man's. There, enough for you to say face, but not enough to deny me credit. Tarkin cut the air with a dismissive gesture. The Emperor desires facts, not flattery. Your tenure on this project has been rife with setbacks. Setbacks you have, it seems, overcome. I will tell him his patience with your misadventures has been rewarded with a weapon that will bring a swift end to the rebellion. You're too kind, Governor. Condescending bastard. But you express my hopes as well. We've seen that the Death Star might destroy a city or rebel base unimpeded by planetary shields or defense grids. And what you witnessed today, that is only an inkling of the destructive potential. The same gesture as before. A demand for silence. Smiling acidly, contritely, Krennic obliged. I will tell him, Tarkin said, that I will be taking control over the weapon I first spoke of years ago. Effective, immediately. Taking control? 
Krennic curled gloved fingers into fists and looked about the overbridge as he quelled his first and most vicious response. The duty officers were not watching the confrontation. They remained busy at their stations, checking and rechecking the Death Star's primary weapon status and scanning the system for survivors. That was a very small comfort. Krennic stepped as close as he dared to Will of Tarkin and snapped. We are standing here amid my achievement, not yours! He forced his voice into a hiss. My people are loyal, and my people are the only ones capable of operating this station. He knew it was unwise to threaten Tarkin openly. He could berate a subordinate without repercussions, but not the Grand Moff. And there was no imminent scenario in which Krennic could remove or replace Tarkin. He would need to suffer the man's existence for some time to come. But Krennic was not a man to smile meekly forever. Tarkin shrugged as if he hadn't heard the threat as if he was certain that the officer's loyalty was far too malleable to be a problem. He might have been right. I'm afraid these recent security breaches have laid bare your inadequacies as a military director. Your place, I think, is among the engineers. There are many initiatives that could benefit from your organizational skills. The security breaches have been filled, Krennic retorted. Jeddah has been silenced. There was a flaw in that argument, too, Krennic knew. The ignition of the weapon and the ensuing storm had left the Death Star's sensors momentarily blind. It was conceivable that survivors had escaped the moon. Conceivable, but unlikely. Tarkin had a different counter-move in mind. You think this pilot acted alone? He let out a wheezing half-laugh. He was dispatched from the installation on Edu, Galen Urso's facility. Galen Urso. Galen Urso. Fury made a fool of Krennic. This time, he could not hide his surprise. We'll see about this, he snarled, and turned to leave the overbridge. General David Draven was the bane of his peers and a hero to his subordinates. It wasn't the role he wanted to play, but he believed it was a necessary one. As an organization, the Rebel Alliance was held together more by external pressure than by internal bonds. Mon Mothma's almost pathological need to make political overtures toward peace, regardless of their success, was a poor match for General Jan Dodano's policy of covert strikes that minimized attention from the Empire and its Senate. Dodana's approach, in turn, was incompatible with Bail Organa's desire to rapidly intervene wherever imperial atrocities occurred. Saw Guerrera had effectively withdrawn from the Alliance over strategic disagreements. But there were other council members who shared his more aggressive agenda. If not for the Empire's overwhelming strength, if not for the need for the rebels to work together to even survive, the Alliance would have fractured in a matter of months. 
if not for the Empire's strength, and if not for General Draven. While his peers argued and mapped out roads to an imaginary ultimate victory, Draven maintained a singular focus on protecting the Alliance itself, on ruthlessly defending the organization and its people while correcting their mistakes. If that earned him a reputation for arrogance or intrusiveness, it was a small price to pay. In the matter of the supposed planet killer, Draven feared there was nothing but mistakes to correct. A few of those mistakes were even his own, yet he had no intention of shirking his duties. He marched into the comm center on Yavin 4 with his head held high and his shoulders stiff, the way soldiers imagined a general. He hoped the rebels on duty would forgive the sweat on his brow from the jungle heat. What do you have? he demanded. Private Weems leapt to his feet. A coded message from Captain Andor, sir, he said. That was fast. Andor was smart, thorough, and not particularly inclined to make contact during the course of a mission. This time around, he also had the Urso girl to contend with. Draven hadn't expected to hear from him for a week at best. What's he got for us? Draven asked. Weems read in the deliberate tone of a man pretending not to see what he was seeing. Weapon confirmed. Jetta City destroyed. Mission target located on Edu. Please advise. Destroyed? Draven echoed. Weems only nodded. The planet killer is real. Doubt followed instantly in the wake of that thought. Andor was a fine agent, but not flawless. His message was vague. The transmission could have been intercepted and altered en route. There were a thousand reasons why weapon confirmed might not be confirmation at all. But Draven had seen too many commanders use doubt as an excuse to deny the obvious. He hadn't really believed in the planet killer before, not rationally, not in the cold strategic part of his mind that was, he could admit, if to no one but himself, his only true value to the Rebel Alliance. If the weapon was active, then the strategic framework of the entire galaxy was in flux. Everything the Rebellion had built, every scheme from every council member, would have to adapt. But urgent decisions had to be made first. Andor's message contained nothing new on Galen Urso. Those assumptions remained intact, and if Urso was instrumental in the Planet Killer project, then maybe Draven could give the Alliance breathing room. A chance to evolve before worlds, instead of cities, started dying. Proceed, he told Weems. Tell him my orders still stand. Tell him to proceed with haste and keep to the plan. We have to kill Galen Urso while we have the chance. The first time Jin had been orphaned was on a farm on a shoreline of the planet Lamu. She had seen her mother shot by a death squad and watched her father surrender to the man responsible, abandon her to a soldier he barely knew. The second time had been in the deserts of Jeddah, when she had seen the man who raised her, the man who had taught her everything, 
whom she hated more than almost anyone, buried beneath a mountain after being nothing but kind, or as kind as he knew how to be. Perhaps she'd never been orphaned at all, however. Galen Urso was alive, not the gentle farmer she remembered, nor the coward and monster who'd left her behind to become an imperial weaponeer, earning years of spite. Both of those men had died on Jedi as well. There was another Galen Urso. All she knew of him was a sapphire light in the cave in her mind, the cave where she lived now, repeating the same words over and over. Words about love and happiness and loneliness. Excuses for deeds done long ago. Plans and lies about a Death Star, a planet killer. My love for her has never faded. She couldn't stop the words. Each one tore at her, and she clung to them for solace. She sat in the cabin of the Ewing and stared out at her companions from the cave's depths. She watched their faces through the distant pinpoint of the broken hatch. A very small part of her was aware of how she must have looked. A disheveled and battered and dirt-encrusted creature, all but catatonic as she observed the room blankly and hated herself for her weakness. Base, tell me, Chirrut's voice, the blind guardian of the wills who had saved her life. All of it? The whole city? Baze, Chirrut's partner had a name. He sat beside the blind man with his eyes on the bulkhead. The strobing blue-white light of hyperspace splashed on his cheeks from out of the cockpit. Tell me, Chirrut said again. All of it. Baze answered, short and bitter. Jeddah City is gone. Jin examined the thought numbly. The death of Jeddah City meant the death of Saul, the deaths of many or all of his soldiers, the deaths of red-robed pilgrims and blustering water vendors. It meant the death of the girl she'd swept into her arms during the fighting in the plaza, the brutal, pointless death of the only person she'd helped in any way since this mission began. We call it the Death Star. There is no better name. The planet killer was real. She had mocked it, mocked the Alliance for believing in it. And it was real. If she had believed sooner, kept faith in her father, would anything have been different? Would they have found Saw faster, acted in time to do... What? Was Jeddah City her fault, even a little? Understood. It was Cassian speaking now, a murmur into the comm unit. Then, calling to the droid in the cockpit, set course for Edu. Jane repeated Cassian's phrase in her head, tried to hear it over her father's words in the dark of the cave. Edu, she asked. Her voice sounded thick and hoarse. Sodden lump of a world, according to the files. Cassian said. He looked at her with a hint of surprise, swiftly hidden. Small native population, mostly rural nerf herders. Officially, the Empire designates the planet for research and chemical processing. Is that where my father is? Jin raised her chin, trying to force out the hoarseness. She tried to picture the reunion, 
tried to picture meeting the man in the hologram for the first time and telling him who she was, telling him, I saw your message. She should have felt joy at the idea. Her father was a hero. But who she was was Leanna Halleck and Tanith Ponta and Kestrel Dawn, a blood-stained fighter and a thief and a prisoner who had spent nearly 15 years loathing Galen, locking him in a prison of contempt until when he needed her, she hadn't believed his warnings about the Death Star at all. She'd have to tell him that, too. The thought brought bile up from her stomach. Could she have been someone else if she'd only known? I try to think of you only in the moments when I'm strong. I didn't have a lot of time to question our friend Bodhi, Cassian said. He gestured at the fifth occupant of the cabin. A long-haired man dressed in a stained imperial flight suit and wearing battered goggles, weaving and unweaving his fingers together. Occasionally, the pilot whispered something without looking up. But Edu's where he said his message came from. So is your father there? I think so, yes. Jin nodded distantly. Bodhi's whispers became louder. A stuttered, indecipherable series of sounds. Then he leaned forward in his seat, fully intent on Jin. You're Galen's daughter? He asked. He looked like he hadn't slept in days. Like he expected everything nearby, bays, the seats, the bulkhead, to clamp jaws around his neck if he dared to blink. He looked almost as pathetic as she did. You know him? She asked. What did he think of the stranger in her hologram? Yes. She had a hundred questions, none of which she wanted the answers to. Did he tell you anything? He said... Bodhi ducked his head. He said I could get right by myself. He said I could make it right if I was brave enough and listen to what was in my heart. Do something about it. His lips worked over and over again, forming and swallowing whole sentences before he stilled. Guess it was too late, he said at last. Jetta City was gone. Saw was gone. His people were gone. The little girl was gone. It wasn't too late, she said. At least the pilot had tried. Seems pretty late to me, Baze growled. In the silence of the cabin, in the darkness of the cave, Jin listened to her father's recording. That's the place I've laid my trap. Saw's dying howl echoed. Save the dream! Galen and Saw tore at her together now, asking for what she'd refused them already, demanding recompense for every way she'd failed them, and every day Leanna and Tanith and Kestrel had lived their own glorious, petty existences. But she had nothing to give them. She was hollow, and even what she'd kept in the cave was lost to darkness. All she had left was the voice of a hologram, Yet she broke anyway. She gave in to the demands because her shame was too great to do otherwise. No, she whispered. The single word demanded the attention of the ship. We can beat the people who did this. We can stop them. She would make a deal with the hologram of Galen Urso. 
she would obey his demand, and he would, if not forgive her, cease to remind her of her failures and her guilt and her loathing. And by the time she met the true Galen Urso on Edu, she would have something to show for it. She spoke evenly, slowly, enunciating each word like she was wetting a blade. My father's message, she said. I've seen it. They call it the Death Star. But they have no idea there's a way to defeat it. The tension in Cassian's expression dissipated as he donned his spy's face, his innocently cerebral face. Jin caught it and knew exactly what it meant. You're wrong about my father, she said. You think he's still working for the Empire? He did build it, Cassian said. As if that fact changed everything, and only he was clear-eyed enough to see it. Because he knew they'd do it without him. She dragged a breath between her teeth and waited for Cassian to object again. She might not know the true Galen Urso, but she spoke with the hologram's voice now, echoed his claims and submission to his cause, to Saw's cause. My father made a choice, she said, steadying her intonation. He sacrificed himself for the rebellion. He's rigged a trap inside it, inside the Death Star. She spoke only to Bodhi now. That's why he sent you, to bring that message. Where is it? Cassian asked. Everyone turned to face him. Where's the message? He asked. It was a hologram, Jin said. Sharp and fragile as glass. Cassian didn't back down. You have that message, right? What do you think? She snapped. He knew what had happened to her. He'd witnessed her state in Saw's chambers. She wanted to lunge across the cabin, slam him against the bulkhead, force the calm from his demeanor. She wanted to crack open her skull, let the light and sound of the hologram pour from the cave. Everything happened so fast, but I've just seen it! She heard her own ragged insistence as petulant, childish. You were better off catatonic. Cassian looked to Bodhi now. Did you see it? The pilot shook his head and avoided Cassian's gaze. You don't believe me, Jin said. Cassian almost laughed. I'm not the one you've got to convince. I'm not the one who can authorize a strike against a Death Star because it might have a weakness. Maybe Mon Mothma. I believe her, Chirrut interjected. Cassian shook his head in a show of exasperation. That's good to know. You're also not part of the Alliance. Throughout the exchange, Baze had been slumped forward as if drowsing. Now he righted himself, spoke past Cassian and Chirrut. What kind of trap? He asked. You said your father made a trap. The reactor. On this point, Jin was utterly certain. He's placed a weakness there. He's been hiding it for years. He said, if you can blow the reactor, the module, the whole system goes down. She fixed her gaze on Cassian. You need to send word to the Alliance, she said. I've done that. She said the words the hologram needed her to say, bolstered its voice with her own zeal. 
then they have to know there's a way to destroy this thing. My father said we could find the weakness in the structural plans. We don't have those. Firm but gentle. Patronizing. He said if we can find the plans, she insisted, that they're in a data vault on the planet Scarif. Tell the Alliance. They have to go to Scarif and get the plans. Cassian was silent long enough that Jin thought she had a chance. I can't risk sending that. He answered at last. Even if everything you say is true, we're in the heart of Imperial territory. If the message were intercepted, the whole Alliance fleet could be lured into a trap. He might have been lying so far as Jin knew, avoiding further argument by positing a threat she couldn't disprove and couldn't counter. In the darkness of the cave, Jin heard her father's recording repeat. If she's alive, if you can possibly find her. You still want to go to Edu? she asked. Yes, Cassian said. There would be no redemption then. No ameliorating her choices or hiding her sins. She would, after all, tell the Galen Urso she'd never met exactly who she was and exactly what the Death Star had done. The only bomb would be whatever he did after. Whatever they both managed with whatever deal they struck. That would have to be enough to keep her sane in the dark. She had nothing to guide her but the sapphire hologram. Everything else was gone. Then we'll find him, she said, my father, and we'll bring him back, and he can tell the whole alliance himself. She spoke with conviction she did not feel. Cassian nodded, but he wore his spy's face, and Jin couldn't read him at all. Orson Krennic toured the corridors of the Death Star as he had so often before. He listened to the main reactor's muffled roar like the ebb and flow of a distant ocean's tide. He felt the gentle tremors in the deck plating as the station reconfigured for hyperspace transport. He could even trace the power couplings through the walls, imagine their endpoints in vast artificial caverns. He walked and he could not focus. Tarkin was taking control of his masterwork. Perhaps it was for the best. Perhaps Krennic had spent too long fettered to a single place, a single project. Let Tarkin have the Death Star. He'd soon find the responsibility overwhelming and fail to grasp the battle station's subtle potential. Meanwhile, freed from the behemoth, Krennic would have a flexibility he'd formerly lacked. A hundred small victories across the course of a year might be preferable to one great work over decades. He would have his audience with the Emperor soon enough. But this rosiest of scenarios was only possible because Tarkin had outmaneuvered him over Jeddah. Then Tarkin had outmaneuvered him thanks to the betrayal of Galen Urso. That the Grand Moff had become aware of Urso's treason before Krennic had was unforgivable. Krennic had already determined how his people inside Tarkin's organization had been kept in the dark. Leaks and obfuscation were the nature of the game. 
But how had he not personally seen the betrayal in Galen? For all Galen's faults, he had never been an equivocator. Nor had he ever failed to take pride in his own genius. For him to disrupt the work, to disrupt their work, all they had built these past decades? To have somehow hidden his motives from Krennic, who knew him so well? How was it possible? Had he miscalculated? Could another scientist at the Edu Laboratory been responsible instead? Have I become blind? But no. While Galen was a fluke, Krennic had not failed to spot Tarkin's greed, only failed to anticipate its precise manifestation thanks to Galen's interference. Therefore, Galen was the priority and needed to be dealt with swiftly. Much as Krennic loathed to leave the Death Star now, he could not afford to let his problems accrue. He would eliminate them in sequence, leaving Tarkin for last. He had found weapons he might use against Tarkin already. He only needed an opportunity. He boarded his shuttle, accompanied by his death troopers, just after midnight station time. He'd settled himself in his seat with a glass of wine and a data pad by the time they'd left the docking bay. Corset for Edu, sir, his pilot announced. Krennic barely heard. Galen Urso. Galen Urso, whom he'd given every chance. Galen Urso, whom he nearly died for once on that sad scrap of farmland. I thought we were past this, Krennic murmured to himself with a bitter smile, and his thumb dug into the screen of his data pad until the surface cracked and he began to bleed. Supplemental data. No confirmation. Document number RJ9002C. Jetta query. Forged timestamp unreadable. Actual timestamp presumed concurrent with the Jetta crisis. Sent from Mon Mothma to General Draven and six other recipients. Operation Fracture Oversight. I just received a troubling message from a contact in the Senate. She claims that a total evacuation of Imperial forces has taken place on Jeddah, and that there are rumors of a massive energy burst in orbit. Her source conducts illegal asteroid mining at the far edge of the Jeddah heliosphere, and she stresses that instrument error is a possibility. Nonetheless, she's seeking additional information from me, whether she knows more than she's sharing and what exactly she suspects, I'm not sure. Can we confirm this data? Do we have an update on Operation Fracture? Document number RJ9002D. Reply to Jetta Query. Sent from General Ria to Operation Fracture Oversight. I don't have any new information, but can you clarify? Did you tell this contact about the rumors of a planet killer? If not, this could be a fishing expedition by the Empire. She may want to see how you react to a full story. Document number RJ9002E. Reply to Jetta Query. 
sent from Mon Mothma to Operation Fracture Oversight. Some brief background. My contact refuses to aid the Alliance directly, but she's kept in touch with me since my departure from the Senate. If she can be won over, she could be important to our political strategy. I don't think she's serving Imperial military interests. I have not shared anything about the Planet Killer with her. If we can't confirm her data, however, I'd like to judiciously broach the subject. It may serve us in both the short and long terms. Document number RJ9002F. Reply to Jetta Query. Sent from Admiral Radis to Operation Fracture Oversight. We have a cargo freighter outfitted for long-range scans four stops down the nearest hyperlane from Jeddah. She's tasked on another operation, but I can divert her if Captain Andor doesn't report in soon. I find the possibility that the planet killer is a Jeddah extremely troubling. Document number RJ9002G. Reply to Jeddah query. Sent from General Draven to Operation Fracture Oversight. I'm working as we speak to obtain solid intel on Jeddah. For now, there is no confirmation of any unusual Imperial activity. Strongly recommend that we do not share our intelligence and do not initiate new investigations. I will update the group on Operation Fracture and Captain Andor's status when I have reliable information that can be securely shared. Until then, suggest we shut down this conversation as a precaution. Chapter 10 Cassian Andor had made an error. Like a hairline fracture in a blaster barrel, it was nearly invisible on cursory inspection. When its repercussions manifested, however, they would do so with devastating effect. Cassian would very likely die, though that wasn't what bothered him most. He knew now that he should have left Jin Urso on Jeddah. Better yet, he should never have taken her off Yavin 4. You're showing indications of stress, K2 declared. He sat beside Cassian in the cockpit, monitoring the instruments. You should be careful. You're a much worse pilot when you're stressed. Cassian offered a wan smile. How can you tell? You overcorrect with the throttle control. Not what I meant, he thought. But he didn't clarify his question. For all K2's social dysfunction, or perhaps his disinterest in organic socialization, who could fathom the mind of a droid? He knew Cassian better than anyone. He'd seen Cassian commit acts even Draven wasn't aware of. On Genoport, he'd found Cassian staring at his blaster with tears on his face. K2 had volunteered for a memory wipe in case Cassian's continued dignity and service demanded it. K2 Cassian knew would gladly subdue Jin Erso and lock her somewhere safe. If the Guardians of the Wills hadn't been aboard, Cassian might have been tempted to try. We're approaching Edu, exiting hyperspace in four minutes. Set our approach vector and get Bodhi in here. I want his eyes on the landing zone. As K2 obeyed, Cassian returned to his thoughts. 
Jin's fervor in the cabin had been almost inspiring. Maybe it had inspired Chirut and Bays and Bodhi, none of whom he really knew, none of whom he could trust. Just as her fire had spread to him, made him view her with a sort of awe in the Jedi Holy Quarter. But the stakes were different now. The planet killer, the Death Star, was real. General Draven had determined that eliminating its creator was the best way of ensuring the survival of the Rebel Alliance. If Cassian could stop one more incident like Jetta City, his duty was obvious. Jin would have argued that her father had already provided another way. That his sabotage gave the Rebellion a chance to stop the Death Star now, albeit at a terrible risk. Jin's judgment, however, was compromised. Her fire would burn them all. When Cassian had found her in Saw Guerrera's chambers, she'd been lost in oblivion, awaiting her own death. He couldn't imagine the forces that had shaped her in life. He didn't doubt she was a woman of extraordinary strength, yet whatever message Saw had shown her had broken her completely. She was feigning strength now. She clung to her father's instructions for reasons entirely unrelated to the galaxy or the Alliance. If those instructions led her and everyone around her to their doom, would she even notice? Would she care? Her terrible need had returned. It couldn't end in anything but disaster, no matter how prettily she dressed it in the clothes of the Rebellion. And if Cassian denied her what she wanted, if he assassinated Galen Erso, she would surely be twice as dangerous. Edu was a night world, even during the day, shrouded in storm clouds so thick that Cassian was forced to rely on scanners as they descended through the troposphere. From above, there was nothing to see but slate-gray thunderheads and flashes of light. The panorama was nearly peaceful, but the moment the Ewing broke through the cloud cover, gales battered the ship as water drummed on the hull and streamed down the viewport. Low, Bodhi hissed, gripping the back of Cassian's seat. He was freshly scrubbed and bandaged, and smelled distractingly of cheap cleaning products and disinfectant. His formerly distant, terrified voice sounded almost human again. Lower! Cassian angled downward as much as he dared. He imagined the rainwater wriggling into a hundred metal seams wedged open during the Jetta sandstorm. Droplets creeping among exposed electronics and shorting critical systems. This ship was not meant to be flown this way, K2 observed. The Ewing emerged from a fog bank to reveal the landscape below. A hundred jagged rock formations, broad mesas and narrow spires, rising from an uneven ground. A narrow canyon wove between the deadly ridges, its boundaries barely discernible in the storm. They have landing trackers, Bodhi said. They have patrol squadrons. You've got to stay in the canyon. Keep it low. Cassian nodded, adjusted his altitude, and checked his scanners for TIE fighters. He found nothing, though he wondered whether ships so small would even show up in the maelstrom. K2 increased thrust as the wind momentarily dropped off. The Ewing lurched and Cassian's teeth smacked together. If we proceed... 
There's a 26% chance of failure. How much farther? Cassian shot at Bodhi. I don't know, Bodhi said. I'm not sure. I've never really come this way. I figured that, Cassian thought. They were skimming over a spire, no more than ten meters above the summit. But we're close. I know that. Now there's a 35% chance of failure. Cassian toggled the landing lights. They'd be easily spotted by any patrol squadron overhead, but his visibility was nil. I don't want to know, he said, not glancing at the droid. Thank you. I understand. I'd prefer ignorance myself. The spire fell away beneath them and Cassian descended farther into the canyon. The broken walls curved one way and then another, following the course of a dozen writhing stream beds. The rocks were too close, came up too fast, but if Cassian reduced speed any more, they'd be at the total mercy of the storm. Now! Bodhi shouted and slammed a hand on Cassian's seat back. Put it down now! The wind, K2 started, but Bodhi was squeezing between the seats, gesturing at something through the rain. If you keep going, you'll be right over the shuttle depot. Put it down now! Cassian swore. Bodhi was right. What he'd mistaken for refracting raindrops on the viewport was a series of distant floodlights. A landing pad for Imperial spacecraft. He cut the ship's speed. Almost immediately, the wind caught beneath the starboard wing, sent the U-wing veering toward the side of the canyon. K2 tried to bank, but a ridge of black stone came up too fast for even a machine's reflexes. A ledge clipped the U-wing, and Cassian slammed forward in his restraints, crying out as the ship trailed sparks and went into a steep decline. The dashboard was red with warning lights. Hold on tight! Cassian shouted. We're coming in hard! Whether anyone in the cabin heard him in the tumult, he couldn't guess. K2 extended the landing gear and activated the retro rockets in a futile attempt to break their speed. When they struck the planet's surface, the Ewing's underbelly screamed violently against mud and stone while momentum carried them forward. For almost half a minute, they plowed on as the ship's hull threatened to shred. When the U-Wing finally stopped, cockpit cracked and half buried in gravel and mire, Cassian was certain the ship wouldn't fly again. The rain had tapered to a cold, cruel drizzle by the time Cassian finished a cursory inspection of the damage. His initial assessment had been correct. The U-Wing was largely intact, but the port engine had been dashed into the rocks and was beyond repair. Most of the other components, long- and short-range comms included, were salvageable but non-functional. He could still complete his mission. He could still kill Galen Urso. But he hadn't planned to end the day stranded on Edu. He pictured himself picking his way through the canyons, hunted by both stormtroopers and Jin. He was in a sour mood when he marched back into the cabin. He looked at the faces before him, the zealots, the defector, the madwoman, and K2, and felt a new rush of ire. They'd had opinions on the mission until it had gone south. Now they expected a solution from him. The only one he even trusted 
was the Imperial droid. Bodhi, he snapped. Rainwater streamed down his forehead onto the cabin floor. Where's the lab? Bodhi straightened and took an awkward step forward, like a soldier being called to attention. The research facility? The place you made deliveries and met Galen Urso. Where is it? Bodhi trembled for a moment. Cassian debated whether to push harder or coddle the man, but then the pilot stilled and said crisply, It's just over the ridge, and that's a shuttle depot straight ahead of us? You are sure of that? Yes, Bodhi said. A satellite image would have been preferable, but Cassian had worked with worse than the word of a scared traitor. We'll have to hope there's still an Imperial ship left to steal. The U-wing is scrap. No one looked surprised. Baze smiled sardonically. Grab anything that might be useful, he went on. K-2 will burn anything sensitive. Alliance ships were programmed not to keep Navi records, and all identification had been scrubbed long ago. Cleanup wouldn't be hard. After that, here's what we're doing. He waited for an argument that didn't come. Bodhi still stood at attention. Bayes regarded Cassian like he was judging him at trial. Chirrut looked distracted, cocking his head as if listening to the rain. And Jin? Jin seemed pale and gaunt compared to the woman he'd met on Yavin. Even her momentary zeal after leaving Jeddah was gone, revealed as a pretense to drag them into her madness. She watched him somberly, sadly, like she was sure he would disappoint her. She was probably right about that. Hopefully, he said, the storm keeps up and keeps us hidden down here. Bodhi, you're coming with me. We'll go up the ridge and check out the research facility. I'm coming with you, Jin said. That didn't take long, but he'd planned for it. No, he said, your father's message. We can't risk it. You're the messenger. Jin scowled. That's ridiculous. We all got the message. Everyone here knows it. K2 spoke for the first time. One blast to the reactor module and the whole system goes down. That's how you said it. The whole system goes down. You! Cassian shot toward K2. Get to work fixing our comms. He forced himself to moderate his voice, to sound reasonable, before returning to Jin. All I want to do right now is get a handle on what we're up against. And even if I were ready to extract your father, I wouldn't be stupid enough to try on my own. I need you for firepower. And at this moment, I need you protecting the ship. She returned to that intense, somber stare. Good enough. So, he said, and nodded at Bodhi, we're going to go very small and very carefully up the rise and see what's what. Let's get out of here. There were no questions, and Cassian kept his eyes on his gear as he checked his equipment and reconfigured his blaster, slapping scope and extended barrel into place with rapid familiar motions. At least, he thought, the weaponry survived the crash. He heard Bodhi's footsteps behind him as he trudged back out into the rain and the mud, his soul sucking noisily at the drenched soil. Do I need one, too? Bodhi called. Cassian cast a look backward at the man as he crept down the slick boarding ramp. A weapon? 
You sound like my droid, Cassian said. Then he grunted and shook his head. We won't be long. You'll be fine. It was probably true, and there was a fringe benefit. If Bodhi sided with Jin over Cassian, it meant one fewer person who might shoot him in the back. Jin hadn't spoken to the others during the journey from Jeddah. When Bodhi had approached her, tried to ask about Galen, she'd managed a gentle smile before waving him off. Chirrut and Baze had known better than to try talking, or perhaps they, like Jin, wrestled with truths too difficult to express in words. So she had listened to the hologram of her father in her mind and watched the dark of the cave become the darkness of Idu. The fact that she had no way to leave the planet lay discarded in her consciousness, untouched and irrelevant. Does he look like a killer? She was watching Cassian and Bodhi descend into the mud when she heard Chirrut's voice. She turned to look and saw he was speaking to Baze. No, Baze said after a moment of thought. He has the face of a friend. Who are you talking about? she asked. Baze eyed her appraisingly. Captain Andor, he said, flat. She should have been irritated by the curt explanation. Instead, she could muster only vague confusion. Why do you ask that? she said, looking to cheer it now. What do you mean, does he look like a killer? The force moves darkly near a creature that's about to kill, Chirrut answered. He might have added, as simple as that. Fascinating, K2SO called, heading for the cockpit. His weapon was in the sniper configuration. Jin pictured Cassian assembling his weapon and exiting the ship. She remembered the first time she'd held a sniper rifle, staring down the scope under Saw Guerrera's direction, measuring her breath so she could confidently, quietly, kill a man from a kilometer away. It might have meant nothing. Her heartbeat quickened. She spun toward the boarding ramp and started down into the mud. The chill crept through her boots, up her legs and her spine. She couldn't see the path Cassian and Bodhi had taken, couldn't hear them over the steady rain, but she could see the dim, distant light of the Imperial compound. There she would find her father. Bayes Malbus watched a gust of wind spatter raindrops across the cabin floor, discoloring the metal in a thousand pinpoints like bleak stars in a gray sky. The rain smelt like fecund soil with an undertone of acrid stink. Bayes was not a young man. He had seen rain before, but Jeddah's rains, rare, powerful torrents that were cause for celebration, that he had taken such joy in as a child, had never smelt like this. Soon, Bayes thought, he would forget the smell of Jeddah's rain altogether. Chirrut rose abruptly, swept his staff before him, and marched toward the boarding ramp. Where are you going? Bayes growled. Chirrut paused but kept his back to Bayes. I'm going to follow Jin. Her path is clear. Alone? Bayes asked. The word was volatile with meaning. Good luck! He was certain Chirrut understood his warning. 
But the blind man, once brother to Bays among the guardians of the wills, and now the fool Bays was cursed to entertain, started forward again. I don't need luck, Chirrut said. I have you. Bays watched Chirrut descend the ramp. He listened to the foot of the staff wrap on metal. When the wrapping ended and Chirrut stepped onto soft ground, Bays heaved himself to his feet. Without a glance at the cabin, he followed his brother into the storm of an alien world. The tragedy of K2SO's existence was this. The skills he most cherished were skills his rebel masters disdained, and the skills he considered crude and trivial were skills his masters were helpless to learn. Thus his present circumstances. Instead of traveling to the research lab to manhandle, capture, restrain, and extract the scientist Galen Urso, a mission virtually requiring the talents of an imperial security droid, and which might, if handled delicately, permit the exercise of multiple underutilized procedures hard-coded into K2SO, he was rewiring a communications array and locating faults in each of 84 connectors by touch. Such a task required a bare minimum of computational power. K2SO had more than enough to spare to listen to the goings-on in the cabin and observe the landscape from the half-buried cockpit viewport. He watched Jim depart with disinterest. The woman had always verged on disrespectful toward him. He watched Bays and Chirrut depart with more robust disapproval. He posited an array of scenarios involving their separation from the U-Wing, few of which ended in their continued well-being. What are they doing? He asked sharply. K2SO was not a protocol droid, but he was designed for biological interaction. He found that verbal discussion, even with himself, spurred his creativity he soon came to a solution he was satisfied with. If Cassian comes back, we're leaving without them. Chapter 11 Captain Cassian Andor had failed. That was the assumption Draven had to make. He had activated the homing beacon aboard Andor's U-Wing immediately after receiving his agent's supposed confirmation of the planet killer. The beacon was a risk, but a minor one. Its signal was disguised as pulsar radiation and relayed through a dozen unstaffed rebel outposts before reaching Base One. And under the circumstances, Draven thought it wise to keep tabs on Andor. He had the utmost respect for his agent, for Cassian but only a fool would stake the fate of the Alliance on a single man. Much as Draven detested the fact, this mission had taken on such unlikely proportions. Try them again, he said. He stood behind Private Weems in the communications room, looking over the man's shoulder as he tapped at his console. Two of Draven's captains stood with him, officers he trusted as well as Andor, albeit for different reasons. I am trying, sir, Weem said. The signal's gone dead. Guess wildly for me. Why? He turned toward his captains. 
Better to get the speculation over with. We know Andor made it to the Edu star system. It was Captain Nioma who spoke first. Analyst and technical advisor for Alliance Intelligence. A mumbling genius who hadn't slept since she'd first heard rumors about the planet killer. Could have been shot down, could have been shot at, though the beacon's rugged enough to survive a lot of damage. We don't have much intel on Edu, though, so for all we know, the signal's blocked by a high-energy thermosphere. How likely is that? Draven asked. Not likely. He grunted, leaned his weight against the back of Weem's chair. Say we wanted to send in Blue Squadron. How long do Edu? Captain Vinaris had been, of all things, a spaceport control officer before joining the Rebellion. He had the numbers for half a dozen hyperspace routes at hand. He factored in variable atmospheric conditions and rapidly ran through the lot with Draven. Short version? We're in striking range. But if the Empire's begun to evacuate, we won't catch them. Best case? Blue Squadron arrives just in time to see the Imperials jump out. But would the Empire bother to evacuate at all? Draven tried to put himself in the mind of the commander in charge of Edu's garrison. I just caught a transport. A Rebel Alliance Intelligence U-Wing making a recon run over my base. I shot the ship down and even took prisoners. It was only one ship. It was a threat to operational security, but it wasn't cause for panic. If the Alliance knew for certain what was on Edu, they'd come en masse, and the work being done on Edu was vital. If the decision was made to uproot, the base's chief scientist would need to be the last to go to ensure everything was safely relocated. You couldn't trust stormtroopers with the delicate equipment. So Galen Urso was still on site. The planet killer might not die with him, but... If Urso really was responsible for its main weapon, it would be a hell of a lot harder to keep operational after he was gone. Squadron up, Draven said. Target Edu. We must take out Galen Urso if we have the chance. Captain Vinaris was running from the room, speaking into his comlink almost before Draven had finished. Naoma was looking at him with bloodshot eyes. Do you have authorization? She asked. A full-scale attack on a major imperial installation. Anyone else? Draven would have taken aside and rebuked for questioning him in public. But Naoma had never possessed a military mindset, and she looked like she'd turned to dust at a stern word. The mission's under my department, he said. I don't need the council sign-off. That was true. What he didn't tell Nioma was that, authorized or not, the mission had crept well outside the Council's intended parameters. He'd been hoping to withhold Andor's report of the planet killer over Jeddah until after debriefing the captain himself, revealing the truth if it was true to the Council members without context would only encourage them to pursue their own leads activate their own contingencies, all without coordination or strategy. Half the Alliance would run and hide, while the other half would take the offensive. Word would spread outside the Council in a matter of hours, inciting panic. 
any hope of using knowledge of the planet killer as a form of leverage to manipulate a vote in the Senate to bring Saw Guerrera zealots back on side would be lost. Draven worked for Alliance Intelligence. His job wasn't to share every secret he came across. It was to explain what secrets meant if and when they were safe to share. He couldn't do that yet. But the Council was going to hear about his activation of Blue Squadron. Mon Mothma was going to want to know when the mission had become about assassination rather than extraction. Blue Squadron would be en route to Edo in a matter of minutes. Draven had until it arrived to prepare for the conversation. No, no! Bodhi called, rivers of rainwater dribbling off his hair and beard. We've got to go up! Cassian frowned at Bodhi, then glanced down the slope of the muddy canyon at the distant shine of the laboratory lights. He could have questioned the pilot, but his mood was still sour, and he didn't see the use. Either Bodhi knew the topography or he didn't. Either he was lying or he wasn't. He shrugged and followed Bodhi up the rocky rain-slick slope. At least it took them out of the worst of the mud. As they trudged up the ridge, Bodhi nattered on about his time on Edu. Cassian half-listened to the pilot's stories of running cargo flights, delivering kyber crystal from Jeddah to the local scientists. Bodhi had barely been authorized, he claimed, to access the mess hall while on site, to refresh himself and refuel before heading back to Jeddah. If I hadn't started a conversation with Galen in the meal line... Asked him which droid to grab a bite from? Maybe I never would have wondered what was going on here. What they were working on. It sounded too much like a lie for Cassian to really believe it. But it also sounded like a lie for Bodhi's benefit, not Cassian's. If that was the story he wanted to tell about meeting Galen, so be it. If Bodhi was scared of Cassian, desperate to convince him his defection was genuine... That was fine with Cassian, too. Eventually, Bodhi stopped talking as the path grew narrower. Cassian saw the pilot stumble and noticed the stiffness in the man's legs, the way he bent his knees as little as possible, more so the longer the hike went on. He noticed, too, the dark bruises and the raw, scraped flesh at the back of Bodhi's neck. These were largely concealed by the collar of his flight suit, but the rain had tamped the suit down and left them more evident than before. How long did Sagarera's people hold you? Cassian called. Bodhi flinched but kept walking. What? Cassian repeated his question. A few days, maybe, Bodhi said, not looking back. Cassian thought back to the rumpled pile of a man he had found in the catacombs, malnourished and battered and deranged with trauma. Less than a day later... The man leading him through the canyons of Edu was transparently terrified and far too eager to chat. But he was also doing his damnedest to feign normalcy on what looked likely to be a suicide mission. He was even doing a decent job of it. Cassian laughed. It was a brief guttural sound that seemed drowned in the rain. Bodhi did look back now, surprised and a touch alarmed. What? he asked. Nothing, Cassian said. Then he added, blunt and almost humbled. Must have been a hell of a few days. 
Bodhi smiled, just a twitch of his lips, for the first time since Cassian had known him. They climbed higher. Cassian could make out a platform across a narrow valley now, a raised landing pad separate from the shuttle depot. But the path up the ridge was turning increasingly treacherous. Soon it almost disappeared altogether, and Bodhi drew up against the rock face as scree poured from beneath his feet. I'll be right behind you, Cassian said, with as much reassurance as he could muster. Bodhi looked sickly, but he nodded. Come on! They crossed the next switchback with agonizing care. Beyond, the path widened again, and after a final ascent they crested the ridge and looked down onto the imperial installation from above. The flat metal sweep of the landing pad abutted a series of military spec housing and laboratory stations. Cassian recognized the prefab designs, but the labs at least looked heavily customized. He spotted whole swaths of unfamiliar antenna equipment and generators. He shuffled forward and knelt behind a boulder, felt the cool jab of damp pebbles against his knees. Next, he pulled Bodhi down beside him and fished out his quadnocks, magnifying and surveying the installation. There was activity on the landing pad. Stormtroopers emerging in formation from one of the buildings, followed by figures in blue and white engineering jumpsuits. Cassian held the quad knocks out to Bodhi without taking his own eyes off the platform. Take a look, he said. You see Urso out there? Bodhi raised the quad knocks, shook his head incrementally, and then stilled. That's him, he said after a moment. That's him, Galen, in the dark suit. His voice hitched in excitement. Cassian snatched the quad knocks and scanned the platform again. Among the engineers was a man in gray and blue, with a sharp, angular face and a scalp covered in wisps of frosted hair. Cassian sought a resemblance to Jin and found it in the man's eyes, deep-set and staring. Galen was speaking to the other engineers. The rain made them all look sodden and haggard, displeased at being brought outside so late. Cassian frowned. Why were they there? Had he and Bodhi tripped some alarm? Were they waiting for evacuation? He almost didn't notice the rumbling in the distance. Wrote it off as part of the storm. But the sound was too even in pitch and grew louder too fast. He wrapped an arm around Bodhi and pulled the pilot flat onto the ground as a broad-winged imperial shuttle swooped overhead and made for the platform. Do they ever bring the engineers out for deliveries? Cassian hissed. Bodhi coughed as rainwater caught in his nostrils, then shook his head vigorously. Not like this! Not this time of night! Then something's off. Maybe it wasn't related to the arrival of the U-Wing. Maybe it was connected to Jeddah. The Empire cleaning up its production facilities now that the Death Star was operational. The shuttle was a Delta-class long-range model, used for passengers more than cargo. Whatever was happening, now might be the only opportunity to act. Cassian put the quad knocks to one side and unslung his rifle. He checked its settings, balanced it on the rocks, and shifted his position as he spoke to Bodhi. You need to get back down there, he said, and find us a ride out of here. 
You understand? What are you doing? Cassian put an eye to the rifle's scope, saw nothing but a blur atop the platform. He adjusted his magnification and filters. Let the internal computer compensate for the sheets of rain. You heard me, he said. He made his voice hard, tried to erase any warmth that had sparked between him and the pilot. He couldn't afford an argument now. You said we came up here just to have a look. Bodhi snapped back. Lie to him. Tell him you need to keep Galen alive and on Edu. And you don't know what that shuttle could mean. I'm here, Cassian said. I'm looking. Go. The platform crystallized. More Imperials were emerging from the buildings. He adjusted his aim and began seeking the face of Galen Urso. He heard Bodhi's soft, rapid breathing at his side. Hurry! Cassian snarled. Bodhi's boots tossed flecks of stone onto Cassian's jacket as he ran. During the flight to Edu, Krennic had stoked the fury in his heart. Fueled by outrage and humiliation, its fire burned bright enough to warm him in the chill that swept through the shuttle, to ward off the ice of the raindrops that assailed him as he descended the boarding ramp onto the landing platform. The boots of his death squad squealed against wet metal as he drew to a stop and surveyed the assortment of stormtroopers, officers, and engineers before him. The troopers had corralled the engineers, miserable as wet hounds, standing in a loose, indecorous cluster at one end, while the facility's senior officers were aligned about the shuttle, doing their best to ignore their indignity in the presence of their director. The garrison commander stepped forward to offer a welcome, but Krennic waved her off. He had no interest in delaying what he had come to do. The engineers looked nervously at one another. Krennic noted each in turn, recalled his name, studied his posture. Most he did not know overly well. He had hand-selected Uyon out of the Brentau Futures program, the same program Krennic and Galen had completed together, and been mildly disappointed in the results ever since. Uyon stood straight-backed, expression vacillating between fear and deluded, desperate hope. Onopen, conversely, looked ready to curse loudly about bureaucratic interference and bury his obvious worry beneath a thin layer of professional pride. Krennic liked Onopen, but he hoped he would remain silent this once. None of them showed any hint of defiance. Krennic looked to Galen Urso. The man stepped forward, blinking the raindrops out of his eyes. He held himself as if Krennic's presence neither surprised nor concerned him. Well, Galen, Krennic said, at last it's complete. You must be very proud. Proud as I can be, Krennic. It was false humility, of course. Krennic was certain of that. Gather your engineers, he said. I have an announcement to make. Galen barely gestured. The engineers drifted, herd-like, from one side of the platform to the other, until they stood before Krennic and Galen together. They huddled as if to share heat in the spitting storm and ward off their collective dread. "'Is that all of them?' Krennic asked, though he already knew the answer. "'Yes,' 
Galen said. Krennic smiled acidly and said the words he had selected with care aboard the shuttle. Gentlemen, one of you has betrayed the Empire. One of you conspired with a pilot to send messages to the Rebellion. I urge that traitor to step forward. On cue, Krennic's death squad took position and leveled its weapons at the engineers. There were too many people on the landing pad. Cassian kept his rifle propped against the stone, ignored the trickle of rain like sweat down his spine, and tried to draw a bead on Galen. But there were stormtroopers in the way now, and his shot became no clearer once the shuttle landed and the crowd reconfigured itself. He swore to himself and waited. He dredged his memory to try and identify the officer in the white cape and found the name Orson Krennic. Some sort of project director, apparently attached to the planet killer. If by some miracle Cassian got off a second shot, he decided Krennic would make an excellent target. The Empire could only be improved by the loss of another high-ranking blowhard. But that would be a bonus. He had his mission. He just needed a few inconvenient stormtroopers and engineers to get out of the way. At least Bodhi was gone. No one to witness what happened next. Krennic and Galen were speaking. Still too many people in the line of fire. Cassian would need a story for Jin. He knew that. She wouldn't believe him no matter what he told her, but if he offered her something plausible and Bodhi backed the portions of his tale that were true, she might not act rashly. She'd suspect Cassian in the back of her mind, and he'd need to watch himself so long as they were together. But the uncertainty might suffice to drag her down. Without her father, and without a target, her obsession and need would drain out of her like pus. If they made it off Edu, if she survived to return to Yavin, he would be done with her then. Even with her fire gone cold, she'd be better off than she was in prison. Galen was gesturing. The crowd was reconfiguring again, the other engineers stepping forward. Still no shot. Destroying Jin. That's what it would be, you can admit that much, was his best option. If she did realize what he'd done, she'd turn that feral need against him. She'd want him dead, probably sway the guardians of the wheels and Bodhi against him as well. The engineers were arrayed in front of Krennic and Galen. Krennic's retinue of black-clad troopers found out. A few more steps. Maybe that wouldn't be such a terrible way to go. He'd assassinated better men than Galen. An imperial collaborator. The man who'd built a planet killer. Remorse be damned. And if Jin came after Cassian, he'd die for his crimes. There were worse deaths. Was that what it had come to? Galen stepped forward. Cassian had the shot. But he was breathing too hard now. The rifle rose and fell. He clamped a hand on the barrel, lodged it firmly against the rocks. He was tired of crimes he never answered for. The Death Star is your answer. Finish this mission and all is forgiven. 
He looked at Galen Urso through his scope and saw his daughter's eyes. With a hoarse and ragged cry, he swept the rifle away from the rocks and set it in the mud at his side. None of the engineers answered Krennic's accusation. He hadn't really expected them to. No one, he asked. The traitor will still be executed. But at least he can die making a stand. Maybe he'll convert someone here. He swept a gloved hand around the platform. With his dying words. An open was opening and closing his mouth as if caught between begging for the traitor to step forth and attempting a show of silent indignation. Two of the other engineers were looking at their fellows intently, as if frantically conducting their own investigations. Galen, standing beside Krennic, took a single step forward and did nothing else. Very well, Krennic said. I'll consider it a group effort, then. The words were cruel and sweet. Krennic felt no shame in deriving satisfaction from justice ruthlessly applied. Ready, he said, and his troops checked the settings on their rifles with a metallic click. Aim, he said, and the death squad took aim. And Galen took action at last. He dashed between Krennic and the engineers, spun about and nearly slipped on the wet platform. Stop! He cried again and again, spreading his arms as if he could block the trooper's shots. Krennic, stop! It was me. It was me. They have nothing to do with it. Krennic looked into the face of the man he'd befriended long ago. He waited. Spare them, Galen said. Drenched and tired and wild-eyed, he looked like a man whose genius had deserted him. Krennic crooked a finger at Galen. As if reluctant, the begging man stepped back toward Krennic. Fire! Krennic spat. He didn't watch the crimson bolts flare from his troopers' rifles, didn't bother glancing at the bodies of engineers tumbling to the ground and sizzling in the rain. His eyes were on Galen, and he saw the explosion of shock and fury in the scientist's face saw him try to hide it the next instant behind a mask of iron. But they were long past hiding things, and Galen should have known better. Krennic swung his fist in a tight arc and felt the back of his hand strike Galen's cheek and chin. Galen staggered and dropped to his knees. I fired your weapon, Krennic said. Jeddah saw Guerrera his band of fanatics, the holy city. The last reminder of the Jedi, he paused. An entire planet will be next, Krennic said. Galen stared up and neither trembled nor shouted. You'll never win, he said softly. Such a perfect delusion. It was almost beautiful. Now where, Krennic asked, have I heard that before?
Somewhere in the mud and the rain and the dark, Jean had lost track of Cassian and Bodhi. That wasn't important. She'd found her way down the canyon by the lights of the research facility and onto the base of a landing pad. It was where she needed to be, where her mission to find her father had guided her. It was the answer to the recording that played in the blackness of her mind, and the words of Galen Urso became clearer and louder with every step. She'd needed time to find a way up. There was no unguarded path to reach the platform or the abutting structures from the bottom of the canyon. But she'd located a service ladder built against the canyon wall and begun to climb. The rungs were half-slick with water sprayed against them by the breeze, and where she couldn't get a strong grip, she hooked her arm over the metal and pulled, straining her shoulders and kicking until she found purchase. She did this again and again, driving thought and hope and despair blessedly from her mind, until she was only the body of Jin, who would climb to the top or who would fall. She did not return to herself until the platform was within reach, and she heard soft voices muffled by the patter of rain. She didn't hesitate to pull herself up and over. It wasn't a safe choice, but her gloved hands had gone numb, and she'd begun slipping a bit more with each rung. She preferred to die moving than to die out of caution. The platform's cold metal felt comforting against her prone body. She had no time to rest, however. A pair of white boots stepped in front of her, and the barrel of a rifle lowered at her head. She reached up to twist the blaster away, lunged to wrest it from the stormtrooper's grasp. In a single motion, she was up and spinning, sweeping the trooper off the platform's edge and sending him into the abyss. His head struck the rock wall instantly. He never screamed. Jin nestled the rifle under her arm and looked around. She could still hear voices, but she'd been lucky. She descended behind a row of cargo crates, and her skirmishing had gone unnoticed. She crept forward, head low, and peered around a crate at the gathering on the platform. What she saw was this. Stormtroopers in white spread across the platform and observing the proceedings with their weapons at their sides. Imperial officers of various ranks standing unhappily in the rain. Half a dozen corpses freshly killed with wounds still smoking. Stormtroopers in black like the ones who had executed her mother on Lamu, the man in white who had ordered her mother's execution, and her father, on his knees before the man in white and looking up with pity in his eyes. It was a scene out of her memory, play-acted on a new stage, an impossible nightmare recreation for the benefit of the little girl who had run to the cave but that girl was buried in the wet dirt below the hatch in Jin's mind. Her wails of anguish and terror were muted. With shaking hands, Jin raised her rifle and aimed for the man in white. Cassian sat among the rocks on the ridge and watched. He had chosen to watch. By setting aside his rifle, 
He had forfeited his mission, betrayed his oaths, spoken and implicit to Draven and Alliance intelligence. Under other circumstances, such a betrayal might have felt freeing. As it was, he could do nothing while the man he'd spared was readied for execution. He'd been powerless to stop the slaughter of the engineers. If he'd fired into the crowd, he might have picked off a stormtrooper but done no lasting good. Not that intervention was necessarily in his interests. The lives of Imperial researchers weren't lives that roused emotion in his chest. But it seemed obscene for fate or the Force or ancient Edu gods to slay Galen Urso so soon after Cassian had made his choice. He watched the scene on the platform through his quadnox, scanned the vicinity for anything that might disrupt what seemed likely to happen next. What he found, to his shock, was Jin, hoisting herself over the edge of the platform and throwing a stormtrooper to his doom. What was she doing there? He guessed the answer the moment he posed the question. He didn't have time to consider how he could act on the information before his comlink hissed with static and K2's urgent voice came through. Cassian, can you hear me? He snatched up the comlink in one hand, brought it to his mouth. I'm here. He tried to keep watch on Jin as she crept along the cargo crate stacked at the side of the platform. You got the comms working. Affirmative, but we have a problem. There's an Alliance squadron approaching. Cassian struggled to hear the words through the distortion and the rain. Clear the area! His brain filtered the meaning from the noise a second later. No, he spat. No, no, no! Tell them to hold up! Jin's on that platform! If Draven had sent a fighter squadron, he'd done so in order to complete the mission to eliminate Galen Ursa by leveling the research facility and picking off any soft targets on the ground. The pilots wouldn't know about Cassian and the others. Draven likely wouldn't have bothered informing them, wouldn't have sent them out if he'd thought Cassian was still alive. Cassian looked at the platform, at the shadowy figure of Jin, and thought to himself, I've killed us all. Draven's countdown was nearing zero. There were rumors spreading around Base One that something had happened on Jeddah, and if rumors were spreading on Yavin, they'd certainly crept to more civilized regions of the galaxy. He had to brief the Alliance High Command Council on the Planet Killer and the mission to Edu. More precisely, he had to brief Mon Mothma. He didn't have time for the Council as a whole, and Mothma, much as Draven vigorously disagreed with her strategies, could be brutally straightforward when backed into a corner. The ex-senator and current Alliance Chief of State wasn't above playing dirty politics, and Draven had occasionally caught her playing dirtier than she liked to admit. But in the matter of the Planet Killer, he trusted her to put pragmatism above brinksmanship. He was halfway to Mothma's office on the upper levels of the ziggurat when he was summoned back to the comm center. He hustled down two flights of stairs. His uniform was clinging to the sweat on his back when he arrived. General! Private Weems saluted and gestured him to a terminal. Faint signal from Edu. It's Captain Andor's U-Wing. Full voice. 
No encryption. What? They must have lost the whole comm array. Jury rigged something in its place. He took a seat and hunched over the console. Put it through. A faint, tinny voice spoke. The tone was almost relaxed. Captain Andor requesting a delay on squadron support. Andor's pet droid. Draven leaned closer to the console speaker, clenched his jaw as he heard the remainder of the message. Alliance forces on site. Please confirm. Draven swore inwardly and gestured rapidly at Weems. Get the squadron leader on, he said. Get him on now! Weems looked as aghast, as if he'd been accused of desertion. They sent word three minutes ago. They're already engaged, sir. Damn it all! Draven nodded slowly. Possibilities sprouted in his mind. Desperate options bloomed. One by one, he cut down each. If the squadron was engaged, asking the pilots to abort now would only give the Imperials time to entrench. The dead wouldn't come back to life. Any survivors of Cassian's team would be left without support and made vulnerable to capture. The mission would certainly fail. If you can get a message through, he said, let Blue Squadron know what we know. Not that there was anything the squadron could do about it. And as for Andor's team, he sighed. Sometimes good people meet bad ends. Tell them, he finished. May the Force be with them. Chapter 12 Baines had allowed Chirrut to lead them up the ridge. He'd taken point often enough, pushed Chirrut to the side to stomp at a crumbling stretch of narrow rock, or gone hunting switchbacks where the ridge became less sheer. But it had been Chirrut to insist higher, until they stood together on the apex, looking far below onto the twisted paths and the research facility. You said we were following Jin, Baze growled. Why are you so literal? Shirat asked. His smile was playful, almost smug. Baze grunted in reply. It was an old habit, a way to assure Shirat of his presence without words. He doubted his companion appreciated it in the slightest. A short while later, he had his cannon adjusted and the scope to his eye. There was a gathering on the facility's landing pad. He spied stormtroopers and officers, a shuttle descending. He looked at the pale, clean-shaven face of a young Imperial captain, haughty and smirking at something his neighbor had said. It was the face of a man who had the luxury of thinking of something other than death, something other than the ruin of everything he had loved. Baze, Chirrut said, Baze readied himself to pull the trigger on his cannon, to burn the platform with more blaster bolts than they were drops of rain on Edu. I sense anger in you, Chirrut said. Let the Imperials sense it too, Baze thought. This is not what we came for, Chirrut said. There was no playfulness in him now. This solves nothing. Baze jerked his weapon down and turned to his companion. They destroyed our home! I will kill them! Chirrut said nothing, but the blind man's unflappable calm 
The wind tugging at his clothes and the rain beating against his scalp seemed to leech some of Baze's ire. In time, Baze spun back and lodged himself among the rocks, observing the goings-on on the platform with his naked eye. The Imperials were only smudges that way. Harder to hate a smudge. So what did we come for? Baze asked. If not vengeance, are we lackeys of the rebellion now? Shirat tapped at the ground with his staff, searching out the edge of the cliff before crouching at Baze's side. Captain Andor is the only lackey of the rebellion here, and even he may not last much longer. Then why follow Jin? Baze asked. He had allowed Chirrut to lead the way up the ridge. He had allowed Chirrut to lead him in many things, and learned long ago not to demand answers. But grief had turned all his lessons to tatters. Today was not a day for the evasions of a guardian of the wills. Chirrut knew, of course. So many years together, how could he not? Because... She shines, Chirrut said, and placed a hand on Baze's shoulder. For a few short minutes there was serenity in the rain on the mountaintop. Then the sky roared, and starfighters blazed trails of fire above them, silencing the storm. The alarm began to wail seconds before the first blast hit. Jin's aim slipped from her target. Then she saw the X-Wing diving, saw its laser cannons flare. The volley cut across the platform, setting fire to metal and sending waves of sparks skidding in all directions. The stormtroopers and officers struck squarely by the blasts died instantly, burned to char. Those on the edges of the volley screamed and clutched their wounds and ran. Jin retreated behind the cargo crates, dragged in a ragged breath of the suddenly smoky air. The X-Wing leveled out of its dive. She heard its cannons continue pulsing, the sound rapidly falling off as the vessel flew past the platform. She didn't bother to ask herself where the attacker had come from. She knew, however, it wouldn't have come alone. The alarm's wail seemed faint in the aftermath of the assault. Someone was screaming orders to scramble fighters to return fire. Jin took the opportunity to creep out from behind her cover and scan the platform for her father. He was there where she had left him, still near the furiously yelling man in white, the ghost standing in the midst of mayhem, threatening to kill Jin's mother again with the mere fact of his existence. But her father was pushing himself upright, standing unsteadily. He was alive. She wanted to run to him. She forgot every fear she'd had of the reunion. But now two more X-Wings had begun a strafing run, and the blinding crimson of laser fire, the heat of boiling rainwater against her cheeks, overwhelmed Jin for one second, two, three... She blinked spots from her eyes and cinders from her lashes and sprinted, head low and rifle cradled in both arms. She shouldered a panting officer to one side, leapt over the burning body of a stormtrooper. Papa! She screamed. 
Galen turned. He saw her. For the first time in nearly fifteen years, Jin's father was looking at her. She kept running, struggling to find traction on the wet metal. She saw the man in white stop shouting orders and whirl toward her, drawing his sidearm. She didn't break stride. She brought up her rifle, ready to kill the ghost to reach her father. Whether the man in white ever fired, Jin didn't know. Her body went numb as a shockwave slammed into her, as thunder and shattering metal assailed her ears. She felt her feet leave the ground and her skull strike steel. All she saw of the proton torpedo that hit the platform was a blinding incandescence. She wondered whether her father had even recognized her. The platform was burning. There was nothing Cassian could see besides oily smoke, low-burning flames, and silhouettes crawling through the pandemonium. He had no target, no means to intervene. Jin, he whispered. No. He didn't even know if she was alive. With his rifle slung over one shoulder, he ran. He half slid down the muddy ridge, digging his front heel into the street to avoid doubling over into a roll. When he had enough purchase to maneuver, he set out toward the research facility and the platform, hoping his path would be clear through the darkness. He knew he was running toward catastrophe. The odds of him reaching Jin, if she'd survived, were slim. The Imperials would shoot at him on sight, and there was no time for stealth. The rebel squadron would continue attacking until it was driven off, or until the facility was buried in rubble. But he was free of his mission now, and if he failed to save Jin, he had to save her. The sky was ablaze with green and red energy. TIE fighters had joined the battle, swooping to intercept rebel X-wings and slower Y-wing bombers. Volleys of turret fire from points around the research facility and along the canyon rim glimmered and hummed. Cassian spotted an X-wing caught in crossfire. It spun and plunged toward the rocks. He couldn't see where it struck, but the roar of its death echoed across the valley. He fell as much as he ran, dropping through open air and landing on his heels or tumbling before he rose and resumed his stride. A thought sparked in his brain. If he found Jin, where would they go? They were still trapped on Edu, but it didn't matter. Didn't change the immediacy of his needs. A great bright bolt streaked overhead like a meteor. The bolt lanced one of the TIE fighters, sending it spiraling through the rain until it collided with the turret. The white bloom that followed illuminated Edu as far as Cassian could see. When he glanced behind him, traced the afterimage of the bolt's path toward its source, he saw two humanoid silhouettes standing far above him on the ridge. One of the silhouettes was carrying a staff. The U-wing was on fire. Struck, intentionally or not, Bodhi wasn't sure, during a TIE fighter's berserker maneuvering over the canyon. The Rebel Alliance X-Wing squadron, much like Saw's rebels on Jetta, seemed to have no particular interest in whether Bodhi lived or died. And of the companions he'd taken up with, 
the companions who'd almost started to tolerate him. The only one left was the droid who, Bodhi suspected, wanted him locked away. Would you like to be carried? K2SO asked as they hurried away from the burning hulk of the U-Wing. The droid's strides were markedly slower than Bodhi's, but his spindly limbs crossed twice the distance with every step. No, Bodhi said. It was more breath than he had to spare. I could carry you anyway, the droid said. That way you wouldn't have to choose. Bodhi staggered to a halt and clapped his knees, hung his head panting for what he knew was too long. No, he managed at last. No, listen, I need you to trust me, all right? You need to follow my lead and not say anything unless someone asks you to. Rain bounced off the droid's chest plate. K2SO looked at Bodhi appraisingly. Trust is a matter of degree. I really don't know you, Bodhi Rook. Bodhi cringed and shook his head. There's no time! The others were waiting. Galen Urso was waiting. He wanted to shout. Instead, he talked. You do know me, he said. Look, you, me. He jabbed his finger at the imperial emblem on the droid's arm, then at the identical symbol on his flight suit. We've both got them, and we're both here anyway. We both want to stop the Death Star, right? Both want to help the rebellion? The droid didn't answer. Bodhi was talking too fast now. But if anyone could understand him, it would be a machine. Cassian reprogrammed you, right? Maybe? You're loyal to him. I get that. Galen Urso reprogrammed me. We can still get this mission right, and we want the same thing. But you have to let me lead the way. Something exploded on the canyon ridge. The light made K2SO look wraith-like, a gaunt shadow with deathly bright eyes. All right, then. Bodhi nodded briskly, raggedly, and turned to face the shuttle port. He had never intended to come back to Edu. He'd never meant to set foot in an Imperial garrison again after defecting. Galen had made it sound simple, like... He could turn the message over to Saw Gerrera and sneak away somewhere outside of the Empire, somewhere the Rebellion would hide him and pay decent money for all the good he'd done. He suspected that plan had never really been in the cards. But he'd never been a good gambler, and he couldn't blame the dealer for that. If a fight starts, Bodhi said, try not to hurt anyone we don't have to. I always try. Bodhi started toward the shuttle port's bright lights and prayed he could find a way off-world. Jin woke to something burning in her lungs and the smell of death in her nostrils. When she coughed, the jolt sent needles of pain from her neck to the small of her back. She rolled onto her chest and climbed to her knees and reached with her right hand to steady herself on the platform only to find her fingers tracing the hot, charred edges of a hole that spanned much of the landing pad. To her left was a corpse too black and bloody to identify. She concluded she was alive. Where was her father? Director! someone called. We have to evacuate! She looked toward the noise. Through thick smoke she spotted two officers supporting the man in white, leading him past sputtering fires up the boarding ramp of the shuttle. 
As the ramp began to close, the man in white cast a final glance toward a body across the hall from Jin. Galen's body. Jin forced herself to stand and felt agony wrench her spine. She tried to run and took awkward, plodding strides instead. If anyone had tried to shoot her, she would have died instantly. But no one bothered. She heard footsteps and shouting. She saw no one else through the smoke. Raindrops sprayed against her and a harsh gust of warm air dropped her to her knees again. As the shuttle lifted off the platform, its engine backwash built until Jin was sliding back toward the platform's edge. She prostrated herself, clawed at the slick metal with her fingertips, and only the shuttle's final ascension saved her from the fate of the stormtrooper she'd killed earlier. As she dragged herself from the precipice and stumbled upright, she saw her fingernails were cracked and caked with soot. Trembling, she retraced her path. Soon she was steadier. Then she was running to her father's side. She knelt in ashes, wrapping her arms around Galen and drawing him against her chest. He was so light, a crumpled leaf of a man. But he was warm. He was breathing. Papa, she whispered. It's Jin. His head lolled and he stared at the clouds before finally turning her way. There was pain in his face, bewilderment, and a joy he seemed not to entirely trust. Jin, he said, and she nodded. Her eyes stung with smoke and tears. My father is alive. My father is dying. Stardust, he said, lips moving with overwrought care, as if he wanted her to recognize the word even if his breath failed him. She stroked his wet and grimy hair. Like saw, he was a shadow of the man she remembered. Where she had grown, he had withered. Even the man in the hologram had been more solid than the man she held now. She was surprised to realize she felt no hate at all. There was nothing to hate. Just a dying man who loved her and who exhausted everything else he was. Her confessions, too, fled her. This was not a man who needed to hear what the Death Star had done, or the faith she'd lost in him, or the deeds Liana and Tanith and Kestrel had committed when he began telling himself... If you're happy, Jin, then that's more than enough. He was speaking again, watching with sad intensity. It must be destroyed, he said. I know, she said, soothing, reassuring, shivering as she leaned as close as she could. I've seen your message. She wasn't sure he heard her. He wet his lips. Someone... Has to destroy it. Painfully slowly, he lifted one arm. His wrist was twitching almost imperceptibly as his muscles strained. Three soft fingertips dragged across Jin's cheek and then fell. Papa? Her throat felt thick. No. No. She smoothed hair away from his forehead. He was warm, but his chest no longer rose and fell. 
not even with the tiny, wounded animal breaths he'd struggled to take before. Papa! Papa! Come on! She looked inward, to the cave in her mind. But the hologram was gone and its words no longer echoed. Now there was only darkness and emptiness. Nothing to shelter her or guard her or guide her remained. She didn't let go of Galen, of her father. As a white-armored body stepped out of the smoke and took aim, she felt for her rifle and found nothing. She couldn't remember when she'd dropped it. She clutched the body tighter and braced for one last shock of pain. She heard the shot. She watched the stormtrooper fall. Cassian emerged from the smoke behind him and was by her side in an instant, hands on her arms and trying to coax her upright, tug her away from Galen. Jin, we've got to go. Come on. She didn't understand where he'd come from in the same way she didn't understand the attack by the X-Wings. Understanding wouldn't make any difference. I can't leave him, she said. Listen to me, firm but not harsh. He uncurled her fingers from her father's body. Galen's warmth slipped away, replaced by the chill of the rain. He's gone, Cassian said. He's gone. There's nothing you can do. Come on. Her father dropped the metal. Help me, Jin said, and she was surprised to hear the force in her voice. Come on. Cassian pressed. He hoisted Jin to her feet. The pain raced through her body and seemed to activate her nerves. The smoke hurt to breathe. Footsteps were racing toward them. The platform itself was groaning. She had to leave or die with her father. Move! Cassian urged. She took his hand and let him show her the way out. Cassian had seen Jin broken and trapped inside herself in the monastery on Jeddah. What he saw now was different. She was alert, keenly aware of her surroundings and her decisions. He only needed to make sure she decided to stay alive. He'd failed her father already. He kept one hand on Jin's arm and the other on his rifle as he picked his way around the fires and gaping holes of the platform. He knew their time was short. He'd seen the rebel squadron pull out of the sky shortly before he'd found Jin. Now the Imperials were scrambling as the inferno unleashed by the bombs spread through the facility. Half the garrison was hunting for intruders while the remainder raced to evacuate. Cassian had found a cargo turbo lift, unguarded in the chaos, to bring him to the platform. He'd led Jin half a dozen meters to the door when a stormtrooper squad emerged from one of the neighboring structures. Cassian raised his rifle, too many to take out, but he could give Jin cover and watched a rapid volley of particle bolts topple the soldiers like toy dolls. The bolts had come from the direction of the ridge. He'd only ever seen a sniper eliminate a squad so quickly once before. Thank you, Bayes he thought, and sprinted for the turbo lift. Come on, he called the Jin. Come on! He snapped off three shots as more stormtroopers poured onto the landing pad. 
He didn't see whether he hit his targets. Instead, he glanced over to Jin. She was looking toward her father. When she turned back to Cassian, there was ice in her eyes. But she ran with him. Soon they were on the canyon floor, splashing through puddles and kicking stones behind their heels. Endless barrages of crimson bolts strode down from the landing pad. As Cassian and Jin rounded the base of Rocky Pillar, more particle blasts sounded behind them. Cassian tried to raise K2 on his comlink and failed. He spoke Bays and Chirrut's names into the comlink before remembering they had no comms at all. He caught sight of the stormtroopers in the canyon fanning out, taking a hunting formation. On familiar ground, Cassian might have eluded them, but he could barely see a stone's throw ahead, and he would glow like a beacon to any heat sensors. Without a reprieve, he and Jin would both be dead soon enough. The Starfighters, Jin said with gravel in her voice. Can you call them back? Her hair was plastered to her face. Streaks of ash covered her cheeks and chin. She looked like she'd stepped out of her own cremation to take vengeance on the world that had done her wrong. I can't, Cassian said. They're gone. But they're alliance. It sounded like an accusation more than a question. They're yours. They don't take my orders, Cassian said. And I don't have a way to contact them. They can't save us. He couldn't tell what she was thinking. Couldn't guess what she might fixate on next in her distress. We're on our own, Jin. A volley of blaster bolts sparked against the rock nearby. Jin looked impassively past Cassian at the ghostly troops in white armor. A sudden roar and a blast of wind nearly smashed Cassian against the stone. Rising above the crest of a ridge, diving toward Cassian and Jin, came an Imperial shuttle. Not the one Cassian had seen on the platform, but a worn and battered Zeta-class vessel built for cargo hauling. It rode the storm winds like a boat bobbing in a whirlpool, yet it steadied as it came closer to ground. Laser cannons twitched on its undercarriage, acquiring targets, and spat toward the soldiers in the mist. Stormtroopers cried out and fell in burning heaps. Cassian wanted to laugh, to shout. The shuttle's boarding ramp screeched as it descended from the hovering ship, metal sheeting singing in the wind. A voice came from inside. Let's go, let's go, let's go! Silhouetted against the interior light was Bodhi, waving frantically. Cassian and Jin ran together and clambered up the ramp. Bodhi was grinning broadly, but when he saw Jin, somber, implacable, his face fell. Cassian felt the ship lift beneath him and turned around, nearly stumbling out the door and peering through the shroud of rain. He saw what he was looking for and cried toward the cockpit. Wait, wait! Kay! Chirrut was scrambling down a rock slope, tapping at the ground with a staff in one hand and carrying his ornate light bow in the other. Bays followed, twisting his torso and never lowering his cannon as he watched for pursuit. Both men burst up the ramp and into the bay of the cargo shuttle. Cassian eyed Chirrut's light bow with newfound appreciation. You take out a TIE fighter with that thing? 
Don't praise him, Baze growled, chest heaving with breath. You're lucky he didn't hit you. Bodhi threw a switch and the ramp began to close. As he raced for the cockpit ladder, he called, K2, all aboard, let's go. Copy you, the droid's voice returned faintly. Launching and away. The cabin shook as the shuttle lifted out of the canyon, banked around an outcropping, and began a rapid ascent skyward. A series of distant, thunderous blasts, some clipped and clustered together, others protracted, followed. The laboratory, Cassian thought. The fires had found the kyber crystals, or some other volatile material on site. That limited the likelihood of pursuit, at least. As the sounds of the storm and the destruction faded away, the shuttle steadied. They were leaving the atmosphere. Cassian slumped against the cargo webbing to catch his own breath and felt the exuberance of escape replaced by fatigue. He looked to Baze and Chirrut and saw that both wore bleak expressions. They were expecting Galen Urso. Bodhi almost certainly had been too. Cassian didn't look at Jin at all. Krennic woke to the taste of dust and smoke, immediately coughing and expelling a black wad of phlegm. He was aboard his shuttle, strapped into a seat. Pataro, his aide, knelt beside him. Krennic waved away a question about his health and tried to piece together how he'd arrived. He remembered the torpedo blast. He'd made it to the shuttle before blacking out. The rebels, he growled. An assassination attempt? Yes, sir. Taro replied. Spotters on the ground and an X-Wing squadron so far as we can tell. Something troubled Krennic about that summary. He felt the absence of some element like a missing tooth, caught a flash of dark hair and felt a long-forgotten hitch in his shoulder. But it was a problem for later. He continued reviewing the jumble of images in his mind. Galen Erso, he asked. He didn't survive the attack, sir. Krennic's jaw tightened. For an instant, the smell of ashes was overpowering, flooding his brain until nausea and vertigo assailed him. You'll never win. But he had won, or close enough. Galen had admitted to treason, though of course he'd needed Krennic to play the role of oppressor. As he had on Lemu. Galen had arranged a scenario in which they would walk away hero and villain in which Galen could wrap himself in righteous outrage when he began the work anew. Only Galen really hadn't walked away this time. The X-Wing pilots had given Krennic revenge without reconciliation. He might have still used Galen somehow, albeit under close watch. Now he would remember the man not as a brilliant scientist, but as wasted potential, as little more than Willif Tarkin's cat's paw. Krennic coughed as dust and bile rose again in his throat. He waved off Patero's aid, dragged his gloved fingers over his face, and stilled himself. Maybe Galen's death was for the best, he thought. There were degrees of treason, and some could never be forgiven. Sir! Patero was standing over him, the corner of his mouth quivering. Spit it out, man. 
Krennic growled. He'd lost enough time to unconsciousness on a very busy day. We received new orders while you were occupied, Patero said. Again, he hesitated. You've been ordered to Mustafar. Lord Vader wants to speak with you. Darth Vader? The Emperor's right hand and executioner. Ally of Will of Tarkin. A summons from Vader boded poorly. But the meeting might also be the opportunity Krennic needed. Set a course, Krennic shrugged. We don't want to keep his lordship waiting. He looked down at himself and straightened his uniform with a tug. He noted black smudges from smoke and charred metal. A patch of red where someone, probably him, had bled. He wondered if he would have time to clean up before arriving. Or maybe Lord Vader would respect a man who'd seen combat. 